Okay, all flight controllers, go no go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Econ. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle, Houston, you're go for landing. Over. Roger, understand. Go for landing. 3,000 feet. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. On Tuesday, Donald Trump invoked the Defense Production Act, ordering slaughterhouses to stay open after the meat and poultry supply chain was disrupted by the coronavirus. But our next guest writes in yesterday's Guardian, quote, In ordering the nation's meat plants to stay open, Donald Trump is in essence marching many meatpacking workers off to slaughter. Joining us is Stephen Greenhouse. He covered labor for the New York Times from 1983 to 2014, and he's the author of several books. His latest is Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. He joins us today from New York City. Thank you for doing this again, Stephen. My pleasure, my pleasure. I should mention you were on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour about a month ago, and if you want to hear a really great conversation, not that this won't be a great conversation, but a conversation between Ralph Nader and Stephen Greenhouse, I strongly urge you to go to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour website and listen to it. So before we get to the slaughterhouses, and the way we treat our workers in that industry. How does America right now compare to Europe and specifically Great Britain and Boris Johnson? How do we respond to this pandemic and the the collapse of the job market versus somebody like Boris Johnson, who is a kindred spirit to Donald Trump? Great to be here, David. So, you know, first and foremost, if you look at the unemployment statistics, the numbers in the U.S. are like skyrocketing through the roof, whereas in European nations, they're going up much more slowly. And that's because uh, European nations, including the conservative government in Britain, but as well as France, Germany, you know, Germany is also run by a conservative government, Angela Merkel, Denmark. They, you know, they told companies, we're going to, we're basically going to pay payroll so you can keep your workers instead of laying them off to try to maintain social cohesion, try to prevent companies from falling apart and and, and workers from getting laid off and families panicking. Whereas the United States, instead of focusing on preserving jobs and and, and protecting payroll, you know, uh, President Trump, his Republican buddies, first and foremost, they're all about bailing out corporations. So let me just so, ask you about this, because jobless claims now are up to like 30 million in six weeks. 30 million is a, it's an amazing number. Right. So in, say, Great Britain, France, or Germany, the government pays the salaries of the workers. Do they give the money to the corporations or banks and ask them to hand out the paychecks, or do they just give the money directly to the workers? As I understand it, David, they pay... They, big, they cut a big check to companies, you know, up for like 80, 90% of payroll. And the companies then, you know, give everyone 80, 90% of their regular paycheck. Um, 
And, you know, and the unemployment rate in all those countries has gone up far, far, far less in the U.S. There seems to be much less social craziness, discontent, panic than we're seeing. You know, you've seen, you know, your listeners have seen, have seen these insanely long lines of cars, you know, waiting to go to food banks. It shows that something is profoundly broken in the U.S. Right, right. So the response is different here in the United States. The, the the money there is no money they get twelve hundred dollars they they do get fairly generous unemployment insurance you, know, you get the one time twelve hundred dollars you know good luck with that you know, it's at least something but uh, you know if you qualify for unemployment insurance a lot of people aren't because all these states have these ridiculous hurdles that make it hard to get unemployment insurance you get you know, your regular unemployment insurance plus an extra $600 a week through the end of July. That extra $600 is very nice. And for people who, um, who qualify, that's great. But for instance, gig and Uber drivers, I mean, the Democrats in, in, in Congress pushed to ensure that for the first time gig workers could qualify for unemployment insurance. Yet, you know, the Labor Department, the U.S. Labor Department, Trump's Labor Department, Eugene Scalia has taken steps to make it much harder for gig workers to qualify for unemployment insurance. So I'm, I'm worried that there are millions, even you know, millions of Americans who are just like panic, like, you know, they. So let's circle back here for one second, if you don't mind. So there's an additional twenty four hundred dollars a month until July in terms of unemployment benefits. Over and above what you're already getting. But that $2,400 that you're supposed to get is administered by the states, not the federal government. Right, right. Unemployment insurance in the United States is administered by the 50 states. It is funded partly by the states and partly by the federal government. And so it's in the best interests of a state like New York, for example, which has a big hole in its budget. I think it's... I know it's more than a billion five. It would be in the best interest of New York State to take that money from the federal government and then sort of make it impossible for you to get online to file your jobless claims. Well, that, that's what's happened much more in Florida, where when Rick Scott was governor, he didn't want a lot of people uh, qualifying for unemployment insurance because if that were the case, it would cost the state some money. It would force them to raise taxes on business to um, pay for unemployment insurance. So he really starved the system. There weren't enough people to administer. He created all sorts of crazy hurdles. And now 850,000, a million you know, Floridians have you know, lost their jobs. In the but he still took the years. money. He still took the money from the federal government. Somewhat. Somewhat. Yeah. Somewhat. And, and but right now there's this, you know, uh, like only about. 20% of the people who applied for unemployment insurance over the past four or five weeks in Florida have started receiving monies, money. And imagine what it's like for those six, 700,000 unemployed families that haven't had any money coming in for two, three, four weeks. And we all know the statistics that, you know, 40% of American families, if they face a surprise, unanticipated $400 expense, cannot meet that expense without borrowing or selling off something. So, that's why we're seeing a gazillion people lined up at all these food banks. Yeah, I want to get back to New York State because they're using, I believe it's called Cobalt, like a 50s era computer program to administer. That's New Jersey, no? Okay, maybe it's New Jersey, but yeah, yeah. Uh, but New York 
So has New York been successful in? I think New York's been one of the more successful states in, you know, in the percentage of people who have already obtained their unemployment insurance benefits. Okay. All right. But it, but they do. There, there were some hiccups, but I think it's going much better, David. Yeah. Okay, so the 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 system it does benefit the government though to make it harder for you to file for unemployment. It can't. Well, you know, if you want to maintain your state economy, you know, it's good to have money coming in, you know, from the federal government to pay for unemployment insurance. So, like, that's one way to help make sure people have money to pay the rent and people have money to go to the grocery store and people aren't starving. You know, um, I guess as, as Rick Scott tried to do, he wanted to just, you know, screw unemployed people to help hold down the state budget and help reduce business taxes. And, and you know, no one would ever call Rick Scott a, a, a friend of workers. And I think New York, you know, generally and, and you know, a lot of the northeastern states, they're much more friendly toward, toward workers. Unions are stronger here. They try harder to help, you know, unemployed workers. It's, you know, there's. In many states, including New York, there's still too many hurdles, but it's much better than in many other states. All right, let's turn to the meatpacking workers. You you wrote a great piece in yesterday's Guardian. It's great and infuriating at the same time. Donald Trump uh, invoked the Defense Production Act, ordering the slaughterhouses to reopen. The workers in these slaughterhouses, are they primarily American citizens and are American citizens entitled to unemployment benefits? Uh, so the uh, the overwhelming percent, I should say, you know, in many, many states, at many, many meatpacking plants, the, you know, I'd say majority of the workers are immigrants and many of them have green cards and, and can qualify for unemployment insurance. Undocumented generally cannot. Um, so. But Trump then do they pay built, into it? I know they pay into Social Security. Do they pay into unemployment, even though they're undocumented? Uh, undocumented workers pay into Social Security. They pay into all the, you know, they often have fake Social Security numbers, so they pay into Social Security, they pay into Medicare, they pay into everything that other workers pay into, but they often can't qualify because on the uh, recipient end, they're, they're told, sorry, um, you're not a citizen or you're not, you're not legal. Mm. Okay, and so how have the meatpacking, how have the slaughterhouses fared in in during the the, the coronavirus? So, uh, unfortunately, a lot of uh, a lot of meatpacking plants, pork pork plants, chicken plants have become real horrible hotspots. You know, the uh, Smithfield plant, pork processing plant in, in Sioux, Sioux Falls, Sioux, sorry, Sioux City, South Dakota, more than seven hundred workers there. Uh, contracted coronavirus. That was the biggest hotspot in the nation, aside from places like Riker, Rikers Island. That's incredible. Um, why? Why? Why are they the workers so susceptible to the virus? I think they often work uh, a, f- a foot and a half, two feet away from each other on the deboning line. Uh, you know, they, they, you know, five hundred of them will pack into a cafeteria at the same time. They'll touch. You know, they'll touch trays, they'll touch, and, and then, you know, at the break, you know, the break room, the cleanup room, you know, they're, they're, they're all often touching the same things. At, at a JBS beef plant in Greeley, Colorado, five workers have died from, from coronavirus. And, and, you know, I would submit that, um, you know, a lot of, you know, meat packing places just haven't been nearly as careful and aggressive enough in assuring that the workers are safe. And one of the problems is that, uh, 
federal, Ned Trump's uh, OSHA, the uh, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, hasn't issued firm requirements on company saying companies you got to do you have to do this this and this to make sure your workplace is safe for uh on, on COVID-19 instead tell they us, tell have, us what uh, voluntary guidelines yeah tell us what OSHA is and we might as well mention the role that Ralph Nader played in OSHA what is OSHA there's there and I believe it's one of the agencies that Ralph Nader created well, OSHA is uh, is part of the Federal Labor Department. It's the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and it, in theory, inspects you know a gazillion uh, workplaces around the country to ensure that uh, they're safe. And it issues rules and regulations saying companies should do this, this, and this to ensure they're safe. And it was found. The legislation, I think, was signed into law by Richard Nixon. Uh, Ralph Nader certainly had a big role in pushing for it. The great Tony Mizaki, the labor leader at the oil, chemical, and atomic workers, also played a very big role. And you know, some people say the passage of that law was the most important pro-worker act uh, enacted in the United States since the Great Depression, since since FDR. And it falls and, under and the purview of the labor secretary. Of, of, the, of the labor secretary. And you know, Trump's labor department, Trump's OSHA has reduced the number of inspectors to its lowest level in decades. And here comes this horrendous pandemic. And OSHA says, basically tells the nation's workforce, the nation's essential workers, right now we only have uh, manpower staffing to investigate conditions for healthcare workers, health-related workers. And for all you other essential workers, basically you're on your own. Yes, we're getting a lot of complaints from you. We'll examine your complaints, and, and if we find a problem, we'll call up your employer and say, please fix this. But it, it kind of signaled that it wasn't going to uh, lower the hammer on non-health employers that did not do enough to uh, assure their workers their, their worker safety from, from COVID-19. Amazing. So you mentioned the name of our current labor secretary. That last name uh, is very familiar. Who is our, our labor secretary? So it, it's Eugene Scalia, who was the son of the late uh, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. And for many years, Eugene Scalia, a very bright man, was corporate America's top gun top lawyer in fighting against new workplace protections, new regulations. So now he heads the the department of the federal government that's in charge of protecting workers, the overseeing protections. And, and some people are, are criticizing for Scalia for not doing more, for not being far more aggressive to tell companies, hey, you've got to do more uh, to stop COVID-19 because far too many workers – especially in the meatpacking industry, are contracting uh, COVID-19. We're also seeing many cases in, in public transit, you know, bus drivers, subway operators. It's really scary. You know, in, in here in New York, uh, over 80 uh, transit workers have died from, from COVID-19. You know, bus drivers, I guess there's not enough being done to keep them separated from passengers. I guess subway workers... They must be touching something or the subways must be too crowded. But the number who've died is really alarming. Antonin Scalia, the dad, before he passed away, would have said, well, doesn't New York have its own OSHA? Why are you relying on the federal government? Shouldn't New York State be issuing these guidelines? Well, 
So when the Occupational Safety and Health Act was enacted, it created OSHA as a federal agency, although it also allows states to say, you know, we're going to be really aggressive and we'll uh, take over uh, safety safety investigations in our states. And some states like California do a really good job, probably do a better job than the federal government, but some other states really don't do nearly enough and, and there's a big vacuum. And, yeah. and right now, uh, you know, the, you know uh, Eugene Scalia and OSHA are really getting usually criticized for not stepping up and doing nearly enough uh, to protect workers against COVID-19. And literally an hour ago, I saw this letter that um, Eugene Scalia sent to the AFL-CIO saying, what do you mean we're not doing enough? You know, we, 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 you know we're urging that people do this. And, and for years, employers have done, you know, have been required to do this on safety. But what they're not saying is that the Labor Department has not issued requirements or regulations telling employers you have to do X, Y, and Z. You have to do these specifics to ensure that your workers are safe from from on, on COVID-19. I think it's partly because Scalia, like his father, you know, brilliant men that they are, have this great anti-government, libertarian, deregulatory mindset, and they really don't want to push corporations too far. And I think as a result, you know, workers are suffering and dying. And I think what we're seeing with Trump's executive order on, on meatpacking plants is he's basically saying, I don't want to be, you know, I'm going to be running for president again. Uh, the last thing I want is a meat shortage. All my white male supporters are going to be really pissed at me that they're going to have problems getting enough meat. I'm going to look like an incompetent president. So I'm going to order that these meat plants stay open. And you know, who gives a damn about all these immigrant workers who might contract um might contract the coronavirus and might even die. It's 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 such, you know, to my mind, and I wrote this, that Trump is showing such astounding contempt for workers and for worker health and for health in the communities in South Dakota or Iowa or Nebraska where if you order these plants open, you know, yes, more workers will get sick, and then they'll bring that disease into the community. So it won't just affect them. It will, it will affect, you know, the border states of Nebraska, Iowa, um, South Dakota, and many other states. You write over at The Guardian. This is a great op-ed piece over at The Guardian. I'll link to it at our website. Trump is marching meatpacking workers off to their deaths, written by Stephen Greenhouse, and it's in The Guardian, and it's a great op-ed piece. And in it, you write that... 20, so far, 20 meatpacking workers have died from the coronavirus. 6,500 have tested positive and had to be quarantined. That's according to the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. How many of these jobs, do we know how many of these slaughterhouse jobs are union? And do we know what their salaries are? So many of them are union. And and, and, uh, I was just on the phone with a uh, terrific Harvard professor, Sharon Block, and we were wondering... How could it have come to pass that these horrible things, all these deaths, all these cases are happening at at these slaughterhouses, which are unionized? And I was just reading some stories, you know, which quote union officials in South Dakota, other states, saying we warned them weeks ago that they we need masks, we need to space workers further apart, but uh, they didn't listen to us. So some people on the left are saying the union should have done more; they should have stood up more. Uh, maybe they should have, although when you have this, you know, horrendous uh, pandemic that grows, you know, exponentially, 
you know, you know, you might think things are under control now, uh, but you know, the disease has already has already uh, hit a lot of people. So that in a week or two two's time, it's going to be a huge problem. So, are um, we seeing strikes? Are we seeing wildcat strikes? And not, what is the difference? Really. We're what seeing, is the difference? What we're seeing is some workers just say, "Screw this! I'm not going to show up to work for a few weeks," and some can stay home unpaid. And, and you asked how much people are paid. Generally, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen dollars an hour. That's a union which, wage. That's a union wage, yeah. And that's you know, in, in states like Iowa and and South Dakota, that's not a bad wage. You know, in, in New York State, in New York City, if you're making fifty dollars an hour, you know, working in a really stinky, dangerous job, literally stinky, dangerous job, right? Uh, Fifteen dollars would seem not very good at all. Okay, I, I want to ask you about the Defense Production Act and the history of that, but the striking that we're that I would hope we would be seeing. What kind of strikes are we seeing? Are we seeing work stoppages? You kind of intimated that we are. And are we seeing wildcat strikes? And what does a wildcat strike mean? So we're seeing a lot of sort of little strikes because uh, a lot of workers are just really pissed off that not enough is being done to protect them. We're seeing at some Amazon warehouses, 25, 50 people walk out. At some Whole Foods, people are walking out at 10 or 15 McDonald's around the country, 3, 5, 10, 15. Sometimes more than half the workers are walking out. We... I don't think we're seeing, and, and, and you know, at a at a bus depot in Pittsburgh and in, in Birmingham, Alabama, you know, a lot of the drivers walked out. So we're seeing a lot of kind of the walkouts and sickouts and wildcat strikes. Technically, wildcat strike means a strike at a unionized place where the union doesn't authorize it, and the workers walk out. Uh, irrespective of what the union leadership wants, but g- more generally, a wildcat strike has come to mean kind of a spontaneous unplanned strike where workers are just so pissed off. They say, F this, we're walking out. You're not doing enough on our safety. And I should say another big problem, David, is that, you know, a lot of workers, you know, are making 10, 11, $12 an hour. They're risking their lives every day and they're not getting any hazard pay. And, and, and so companies like, like Amazon are doing amazing business right now, and, and Amazon at least has agreed to play hazard pay, whereas many, many other companies have not. And I think both the lack of adequate safety precautions and the lack of hazard pay together have really pissed off a lot of workers, and I think those two are the reasons that many people have walked out. What would happen if the workers refused to go back? I would assume, given that jobless claims are up another 3.8 million this week. They can find people willing to do those jobs, but is it conceivable they would bring in the national guard, the army to do I, these jobs? I don't, I don't think that would just be too complicated. I think right now, you know, I think one of the reasons that some Republicans are pushing to reopen the economy as quickly as possible, you know, is, you know, they don't like that the states are paying out all this money for unemployment insurance. And, and they think, well, it'd be great. You know, we tell people if you don't go, you know, if we reopen this restaurant, if we reopen this Walmart and you don't go back, then you're not going to get unemployment insurance great. anymore. Great. Uh, thank you for and, saying and, and, that. Thank so, you for saying that. That's the real so, reason so, so, behind. So, you know, I saw a very good story in the Texas Tribune that basically said Governor Greg Abbott, Abbott is telling workers, you know, risk your life with COVID-19 or lose your unemployment insurance and risk having your family starve, right. which, is, which, which is no fun. Is it that calculated? 
do you think they say to themselves, because I, I always say we cannot fathom the venality of these people. I remember Donald Trump in Manhattan in the 80s and the late 70s when he would evict people. And, you know, he, he, I think for, I just saw this quote from Lindsey Graham, whom we often think is one of the you know, smarter Republicans, basically saying, you know, when the economy opens and your job becomes available again, if you don't take it, hey, you lose your unemployment insurance. And I think, you know, it is, you know, for some it's calculated. I think, you know, there's some. So you know, let, let me, I, I have to interrupt. National Society of Manufacturers has been really good. He's been saying, and, 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 you know, hats off to him. He's one of the nation's most prominent business leaders. He's saying, let's hold our horses. Let's not rush to reopen the economy. This is going to be very dangerous for workers. It's not going to be great business because a lot of customers aren't going to want to go. And let's protect workers. And, and, and you know, he, you know, and, you know, there are clearly some people in business who say, uh, we don't want to encourage all these Americans to become takers and rely on, on, on unemployment insurance. You know, let's reopen the economy and tell them, go back to your job or, uh, or you lose unemployment insurance. And then some workers will say, well, it's just, my job is so dangerous, I can't go back. And, and um, I should still get unemployment insurance because the job is, is intolerable for anyone to work for. And that's that would be a very tough case to make in a state like Georgia or Florida. Yeah. I, I interrupted you because I get – I always try to understand how you can think a certain way. And and I, I think we sometimes pr- project our goodness onto evil people. Do you think it's possible that – Governor Abbott of Texas actually said, you know, unemployment benefits, it's expensive. Let's force them to come back to work. They'll be afraid. They'll quit. We save money. We don't have to pay unemployment benefits. Do you think that is calculated? They think that way? In truth, I don't know. I'm sure some people think that. I hesitate to attribute it to specifically to Governor Abbott or Governor DeSantis but you know, clearly some business folks who want to reopen say, you know, if I reopen, my employees should come back. If I think it's safe enough to go back to reopen, uh, if my customers think it's safe enough to go, then our workers should be willing to go. And, and, and you know, I just read this terrific story in the New York Times about this uh, Dollar, General, Dollar General worker in, in Alexander, Louisiana, uh, she makes $10.75 an hour. For many hours a day, she's the only one in the store. There'll be dozens of workers in the store. She's by herself at the cash register. She's a four-year-old daughter, and she's scared shitless. Yeah. And they started giving her a mask. And like she's saying, I'm putting my life on the line for ten seventy-five an hour. And, yes, they're giving her a bonus of uh, – Three hundred, actually $300 for her work over the past four, five, six weeks, which comes out to a, you know, maybe $2 an hour. But I think a lot of workers are saying, I am literally putting my life on the line with all these people coming up to the cash register within two, three feet, coughing on me, and I'm doing this for 10 or $12 an hour. And, and um, you know, something, you know, I, you know, Sherrod Brown, the senator in Ohio, is pushing a bill in Congress that every essential worker should be paid an extra $13 an hour premium hazard pay. Like, if you're going to put your life on the line, if you're not one of these lucky white-collar workers who's working at home, lying on your bed, working on your computer, not having to worry about catching anything, if you're a bus driver or a transit worker or, 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 or a, or a uh, hospital aide or a grocery clerk, 
you know, you should get more than a dollar or two extra an hour when you're being forced to risk your life every day. So we bailed out the airlines. There was a story two days ago that JetBlue has become the first American airline to make masks mandatory. What was your reaction when when you saw that? I'm I'm all for making masks mandatory for you know I think a lot of the airlines have moved too slowly. Well, um, wait, 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 wait. They they come to the federal government for a bailout weeks ago. Now they're getting around to saying uh, they've been they've been slow. Absolutely, they've been slow. I mean, how do you how do you? I mean, this is unfathomable. How does an airline? Allow- it should be from the FAA and the CDC and OSHA saying, you know, weeks ago, weeks ago, you know, you have to require this. But I think they're worried about alienating the um, the air traveling public. You know, that, you know, we have a pro corporate, laissez-faire, libertarian government, and you know, we don't want to be telling airlines what they have to do. We're willing to shovel you know billions and billions of dollars at them, but we're not going to tell them require your your passengers to wear a mask. I, 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 well, how do you fly? Would you get on a flight without a mask? Would you get on a flight if you saw people without masks? If you were a stewardess or a pilot, would you get anywhere inside that aluminum tube? That stale um, air? I mean, how can you... My, my wife and I are debating that. She, our... our, our our daughter-in-law is giving birth in two months in Chicago, and my wife says, let's fly out. And I say, no, let's rent the car. So we're having that debate. Wow. Wow. Last question, and thank you for this. We've been talking sure. with Stephen Greenhouse. He's the author of Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. Follow him on Twitter. And the Defense Production Act... When was that? Uh, you write about this in Beaten Down, Worked Up. When was the Defense Production Act? Uh, I think it goes back at least, I'm not sure, I think it goes back at least until the late 1940s, maybe the 1950s. And there was a famous case when there was going to be a strike at uh, the Youngstown Sheet and Tube steel mill in the 50s during the Korean War. Mm-hmm. And uh, President Truman basically said the federal government, It was. I see it's an act of 1950, the federal government basically said, Harry Truman said, we are going to have the military take over the plant and run the plant because we need the steel for the uh, for the Korean War. And the Supreme Court ruled that, uh, no, sorry, Harry, uh, you're not allowed to take over the plant. Now, one of the weird things about Trump using the Defense Protection Act for meatpacking plants is like, did you ever think that having, you know, filet mignon and sirloin steak on your on your dinner table is a defense, a national defense issue. Right. And, and usually the Defense Production Act is used by the government to pressure companies to like make things that are urgently needed in war, like, you know, planes or bombs or, or, right. or, you know, or, or even N95 masks to protect us. Right. And, and Trump has really, really, really dragged his feet on ordering companies to make uh, testing kits or ventilators or, right. or masks. Right. He doesn't want to pressure companies at all. Amazing. Amazing. But, what, what, but here he used the Defense Production Act to do a big favor for companies because governors and mayors are, are pressuring many companies, many meatpacking companies to, you know, close their plant, clean them, 
quarantine everyone for a few weeks until things come under control. And Trump is saying, F you governors, F you mayors, you know, don't get in the way of business. If business wants to own, wants to operate its plant, let it. We're going to use the Defense Production Act to let business do whatever it wants. And, and, and sorry, workers, sorry, mayor, sorry, communities, if it means more, uh, more COVID-19. Yeah. I think Roosevelt, uh, Frog March, he had the, the military take the CEO of Montgomery Ward. Yeah, 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 yeah. They did. They, before you go, you talk in your piece over at The Guardian entitled Trump is marching meatpacking workers off to their deaths. You say one would think that Trump would go to the, the slaughterhouses and make a speech in front of the workers and explain why he's doing this. One would also think that Barack Obama and Joe Biden and the Democrats would would speak up for these slaughterhouse workers, or at least the McDonald's workers. We really don't see Michelle Obama and Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton marching, Al Gore marching with these workers, do we? You know, it's now, I think Michelle would, would, but that's a whole other, you know, it's really up to Biden now since he's likely to be the candidate. And, uh, he should, you know, I think he should be more outspoken about it. It's not easy to like fly out to Iowa or to South Dakota to meet with meatpacking workers. But if Trump could go to Arizona to hold a campaign rally, or you know, you could know damn well he could also go to go to meatpacking plant in the Midwest. Yeah. And you know, the Democrats, and in, in my book, I say at length, you know, one of the big problems we as a nation face is that Republicans and Democrats haven't. You know, done enough to help workers. Certainly, we expect Republicans to help corporations, but we should expect Democrats to do far more to help workers. And the Democrats haven't done enough. And and one of the big issues now is that I think we need Joe Biden to step up and do far more to to sound more like Bernie and Elizabeth Warren and in, in, in being emphatically pro worker. Yeah. And we'll see how that plays out over the next few weeks. Yeah, I, 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 you don't have to answer this question. Hopefully, you'll come back and answer it. What would happen if we had a labor party in this country? How powerful? Would we will it be? have permanent Republican rule. That's what we will have because it will divide the Democratic Party. So the important thing is for the for a labor contingent to be more influential within the Democratic Party. I submit. Okay, to be continued. I hope Stephen Greenhouse is the author of Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. If you want to learn about the history of American labor, which is not really taught in our schools, I recommend that you pick up Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future, and Future of American Labor by Stephen Greenhouse. And go to The Guardian right now and read his piece, Trump is Marching Meatpacking Workers Off to Their Deaths, how do people follow you on Twitter? It's Greenhouse NYT. Fantastic. Can you stay on the line for one second, sir? Sure. Thank you. We believe in democracy, not oligarchy. <laughs> Today, we say to the private health insurance companies, whether you like it or not, the United States will join every other major country on Earth 
and guarantee health care to all people as a right. is a human right, not a privilege. And together, we will pass a Medicare for all single-payer program. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. It's May Day, and it's being celebrated around the world, except here in the United States, here to discuss the plight of unions, the future of unions, is Professor John Shelton. He, besides being a teacher at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, alongside Professor Harvey J.K., John Shelton is vice president of American Federation of Teachers, Wisconsin, and author of the book Teacher's Strike. Welcome, Professor John Shelton. Thanks for having me, David. Under these strange circumstances, I'm every time I see myself on camera, I'm I'm reminded uh, how much I need a haircut, and it's it's fun to be in meetings with people and and just it's like a time lapse photograph of like how shaggy everybody's hair is getting. Yeah. So you you teach alongside the great Professor Harvey J.K. He is a force of nature. And you teach democracy studies at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. What, What does democracy studies mean? So it's democracy and justice studies. Um, And, you know, so we're looking at democracy from, you know, really this kind of uh, uh, through a sort of positive lens, right? Like, so when we talk about justice, we mean social justice, not like, you know, how to, how to discipline people, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, our, our department is pretty unique. Uh, there's a whole history at our university of, um, organizing, uh, uh, curriculum around, um, social problems. And so our, our problem, we just kind of reconstituted things about 10 years ago is a little bit before my time, uh, around this problem of democracy and social justice. So, um, you know, we have people who come from very different uh, disciplinary angles. So I'm a historian. Harvey's really interesting because he was a sociologist but way back in the day, and now he's sort of become a historian. Um, and 10 years ago, Wisconsin was going through its own transformation with Governor Walker going after yep. the uh, public workers' unions, and I guess he succeeded, didn't he? Uh, well, he succeeded in the sense that um, he was able to diminish the power that unions had held, public sector unions had held in our state. Um, you know, he's obviously um, uh, has gutted a lot of our public institutions, um, you know, took away a lot of money from public education. Um, but we don't we don't see it as though he's he's totally won. Right. We just we just elected a different governor a couple of years ago or and actually uh, last year. 2018, he took office last year. Right. Um, 
And, you know, uh, the union, the labor movement is still very much alive in our state. I'm, as you mentioned, uh, involved with the labor movement. I'm, you know, leader both on my own campus, but also at the state level. And what it's meant is we've had to come up with creative ways to exercise power because we don't have the same collective bargaining rights. The American Federation of Teachers Wisconsin, does that include public school teachers and professors at public universities? It does. Um, it also includes um, uh, faculty and staff at the technical colleges. Um, also, other state employees um, are involved in uh, members of AFT Wisconsin, as well as uh, we, we do have nurses as well. Nurses. And what about private colleges? Um, no, no. So we are we only have uh, public colleges and universities in the state. And uh, there. Go ahead. The, the union only has public. the union. Yeah. Yeah. Why is that? Why don't you have public professors, uh, uh, private professors, professors at private colleges joining unions? You know, that's that's a good question. Um, there are places in the country where um, you do have college, you know, professors and, and other faculty and staff at private universities who have formed, you know, something kind of similar to unions. Um, it's pretty common in particular for graduate students who are, you know, misclassified as students and are actually employees uh, to form. You're breaking up. Um, the main reason for that is that, um, okay, uh, can you hear me now? Yeah, we're having a, a bit of a bad connection. Go ahead. Okay. Um, the main reason that um, you don't have a lot of um, uh, unionized faculty and staff uh, at private uh, universities is because um, there, they were actually, there was a Supreme Court decision back in the early 80s that effectively said that um, they were not, they were not eligible to form unions because they were supervisors. So professors, you know, supervisors. professors, but, but only at private sector, you know, only at private universities. So public universities, th this is one of the is reasons this a that state our, Supreme Court ruling or a federal? No, no, this is a federal court case called the Yeshiva case. Um, it dealt with uh, faculty at Yeshiva University. It was, I don't know, maybe 1980 or 81. It but was if you're part 80. of a department, you're not the supervisor. The head of the department is the supervisor. Well, okay, so this highlights some of the really strange contradictions of American you know, labor law. So first of all, the fact that um, uh, professors at private sector universities and public universities are treated differently is a very strange thing, right? Because public... Um, public, you know, public uh, professors at public universities are covered by state laws, right? Which are all different. Um, but uh, th this is actually again a, a, a th or another part of the problem is that in the 1940s, uh, one of the revisions to the Wagner Act uh, that Taft Hartley uh, basically um, uh, made it easier to classify people like professors. Um, uh, people like head nurses, actually a lot of hospitals, um, and, you know, uh, factory foremen as, um, you know, not part of the bargaining unit. So they, yeah, they, you they know, I understand have labor the, rights. Yeah, you're kind of protecting the union because I belong to the Writers Guild. Right. And John Wells, who helped create ER, and he was one of the big executive producers of the West Wing, he became president of the Writers Guild. Yeah. And I used to complain that John Wells should not be running a union that he negotiates with. He's a sure. supervisor. So there is 
there is a, a built-in, there's a reason they're protecting the union from supervisors, because supervisors speak for the company, not the workers. Sure, but that doesn't hold up in the case of higher education, right? Because, you know, professors generally have, you know, a, a more of a sort of antagonistic or at least a, a difference of uh, interest than, than, say, university administration, right? And so, like any other worker, they should be able to, you know, work together to advocate collectively for their, their own interests. Their perceived management. Okay, so let's yeah. turn to May Day. It's May okay. 1st around the world, except here in yeah. the United States. Why don't we celebrate May Day the way they do in, say, France? And what is May Day? Okay, so... Um, May Day, uh, we celebrate it to commemorate um, this really spectacular labor uprising that happened in the 1880s. Here so, in the United States. Here in the United States, yeah. May Day is based, uh, is, a, is a commemoration of events in the United States. So, um, so in, they celebrate um, it all around the world. They used to celebrate it in Soviet Russia, uh-huh. but not here in the United States, even though it happened, it started. In right, it's not States. it's not an official holiday, right? Yeah. Um, and so the it's a commemoration of this massive labor uprising that happened for the eight hour day. Um, so you know you had this organization called the Federation of Organized Trades, which is like the precursor of the AFL, call for um, uh, workers in different cities to to all um, uh, you know basically take action to get an eight hour workday in May eighteen eighty six. So. Mm-hmm. The centers of that movement, uh, obviously, there's a lot. There were a lot of people doing that in New York. Uh, a lot of workers going out in New York, but the center was really um, Chica- Chicago and Milwaukee, the Upper Midwest, and that's where you actually had this, you know, um, labor labor repression. That in Chicago, some of your listeners, you know, may know something about the uh, Haymarket Square incident, right? Right. Um, and so, you know. Um, the the uh, International Workers' Day or May Day is meant to commemorate the repression of the eight-hour movement in uh, Chicago and Milwaukee. Do we yeah. still have an eight-hour day? I would love to have a That's job. That's a great question. I would love to have an eight-hour day. <laughs> you either have a zero-hour day or a 24-hour day. The eight-hour day doesn't exist anymore. Certainly not. Now with Zoom? Yeah. No, it's... It's fascinating because, you know, and, and I've, I've made this point in different contexts, but the eight-hour day movement, you know, it seems really fundamental to us to, to say, like, some portion of your life shouldn't be about working. But the eight-hour day movement was really about uh, worker self-determination, right? So it was basically like, can, can we actually shut things down so that we can force our employers to basically treat us like, you know, human beings and not just like instruments, um, so the fascinating thing about it is that, you know, it took 50 years after that point for the federal government to finally basically guarantee everybody the eight hour day that happened in the new deal in 1938. Um, but as you mentioned, I mean, we've seen a, we've seen a slow erosion of the kinds of, uh, protections that exist for workers and particularly, you know, for a lot of people in the, in the professional class. You know, a, a never-ending you know sort of work day. Um, I know I'm definitely feeling that right now, and 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 COVID has has forced people into this position. I mean, particularly people with children. I mean, I'm, I'm tearing my hair out trying to do a full-time job and also like you know help my kids do the work that they're supposed to be doing in school. Uh, so, so my, your my sister's a teacher, and she said, I have a feeling a lot of parents when we get back to 
sending our kids to school. She said, I have a feeling a lot of the parents are going to shut the F up and have a lot more respect for teachers. No doubt. I mean, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a member of a teacher union and, uh, my, my wife is a school board member here in, in Green Bay. And, uh, you know, so we, we already shut our mouths when it comes to teachers. We, we know that they're professionals. We know the kind of uh, pressure they're under. Our kids' teachers are phenomenal. And so, you know, we, we treat them like professionals. It's all about like how we can help them. But I think you're right. I think a lot of other people are going to come out of this with a much deeper appreciation for the work that their kids' teachers are doing. Yeah. To teach is the noblest pursuit. You, even being a nurse or a doctor, if you're not teaching, you're not completing your mission. To teach is uh, the greatest gift anybody can give to another human being. In, which, in, which, by the way, is a is a big problem because you're you're right that we have that sort of mentality, but that's a big problem actually when teachers try to advocate for themselves, right? Because we have this sort of expectation that, you know, teachers are engaged in a calling and so they should be willing to sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice. Um, and so oftentimes, and this is one of the things I talk about in my book, actually, is that um, oftentimes, you know, when teachers advocated for, advocated for themselves, a lot of, you know, people sort of observing were like, wait, 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 you're not supposed to be doing that. You're supposed to be caring for our kids. This is a noble sacrifice. Why are you driving Uber? Uh, yeah, exactly. You, you know, know, priests... Um, are, being a priest or a nun is also a calling. They mm -hmm. give you food, they give you housing, they give you clothing. So nope. all you can, you know, they don't do that with our teachers. No, definitely not. Yeah. So May Day is celebrated. I interrupted you. Did you want to finish that thought? Um, just that, um, you know, the, the other thing complicating that is in some ways, the reason we don't celebrate May Day isn't just because other countries have been more accepting of radical ideas than the U.S. has. Part of it is because, um, you know, sort of how strong the labor movement actually was in the 1880s. So our alternative, as you probably know, and I'm sure your listeners do, to May Day is Labor Day, which is celebrated in September. Well, that also was a sort of uh, American innovation, right? I mean, uh, uh, coming out of New York, actually, the first Labor Day parade was actually in New York in um, 1882, I think. So there was sort of this, like, um, alternate trajectory for celebrating the labor movement. And, of course, you know, when it was... When, that, that was uh, a conscious decision to ignore May Day and create a different holiday separate... No, no, because because the first Labor Day parades happened before the the May Day strike, the May Day strikes in 1886. Oh, That's okay. what I'm saying. So, no, now definitely, like when it was recognized as a federal holiday in the 1890s, that was a conscious decision to you know to kind of um, go with the sort of more conservative manifestation of the labor movement. But what I'm saying is that it, it, it wasn't just a, you know, astroturf operation. There, there was a, a movement for Labor Day that, that, you know, existed in the United States, and it, and it predated May Day, actually. Yeah. You know, we, we, we've said, I can't believe it's got to be said, but don't drink bleach. <laughs> uh, I can't believe this has to be asked, but when candidates are running for office in the Democratic Party, they should be asked, do you believe in unions? And how much of our workforce should be unionized? I'd like Joe Biden, who launched his presidential campaign 
in the home of a well-known union-busting attorney from Philadelphia, I would like Joe Biden to answer the question, what percentage of our workforce should be union? Could he answer that? Would he have an answer for that? Uh, I don't know what his answer would be. Um, I mean, Has the Democratic this... Party been taken over by union busters? I wouldn't say it's been taken over by union busters. I, I just think that Is most... Joe Biden a fan of union? I mean, if you're launching your campaign in the home of a union-busting attorney, what message are you sending, at least to the ruling class and to labor unions? Obviously, you know, not a good one. I mean, uh, Biden is a is a neoliberal. He's he's um he's reminiscent of a much bigger trend. Well, he's symbolic and also has played a part in a much bigger trend in the Democratic Party, which is to have really an ambivalence toward unions, right? Is and it an so, ambivalence or he's just not telling the truth? I think it's an ambivalence. I mean, you, you have to remember that Biden has actually gotten the support of a lot of unions. I mean, the, the firefighters union has been behind him for quite some time. I mean, unions, labor unions now, of course, are, are you know falling all over themselves to endorse him, um, at least on the national level. So, you know, I think um, increasingly the Democratic Party in the past 30 or 40 years, and I mean, Clinton was sort of the, the person who initiated this, but they, they love to have uh, unions, you, you know, uh, uh, labor uh, members of unions serve as their foot soldiers and knock on doors during the elections. But then the priorities for unions are very low on their list of, of you know, what they want to do. I mean, I think Biden personally, I'm sure he'd be fine with more people being in unions and more collective bargain contracts, but it's just not the thing that, you know, because of the nature of American politics, where you, you, like you said, you, you have to solicit donations from rich people basically in order to function, especially at the presidential level. Discussing um, Taft Hartley, I would assume you believe Taft Hartley should be overturned through an act of Congress? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. How and, come and that's, that's never discussed? How come, is well, that even on a platform? No, it's, it's nowhere. I mean, you know, go, you can take this back. Um, obviously, you know, Taft Hartley passed over Truman's veto. So Truman, opposed it. Um, Johnson actually tried pretty hard to overturn Taft-Hartley. That's actually the closest we came. Um, it fell a few votes short in a, in a filibuster in the 60s, although arguably, you know, he didn't prioritize that as much as some other things. What was Taft-Hartley? What was it? Sure. Um, so go back to the 1930s, 1935. There's a law that's passed called the National Labor Relations Act, which basically put into the law workers' rights to organize, workers' rights to collectively bargain, and workers' rights to go on strike if they need to. It established a whole range of unfair labor practices. What year was this? This is 1935. So, so this, this is, is at the, uh, the middle of the Great Depression. One would think the corporations would say, uh, no, no, give us a break. You know, we're trying to rebuild the economy now. We Unions are just going to slow things down. Well, the fascinating thing about the Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act, is that if you read the first two paragraphs, the argument that's made is basically the way to get the economy going again is to give workers more purchasing power. And right. because they're paid such low wages, they don't have any purchasing power. We've got we've to not just give them the right to organize, but make it easy for them to organize. Right. So, of course, a lot of corporations didn't like it. You know, They fought it kicking and screaming. 
but with the federal government on the side of workers and the militants that already existed, you know, workers joined unions in the millions in the 1930s after the Wagner Act was passed. And it was good for the economy. It was great for the economy. Didn't I mean, Henry it, Ford understand that? Uh, Ford understood the idea of, uh, you know, beefing up consumer power, but he certainly didn't want that to take place within a union. He Not within a union, dead. but he believed right. early on the lore, the folklore about Henry Ford was that he yeah. believed a well-paid workforce comes back to you in the purchasing of more cars. That's true. But the other thing you have to remember about that is that one of the reasons Ford, you know, pushed the idea of higher wages, it was about paternalism. It was about controlling workers, keeping them in the orbit of, of the Ford company, right? So they would be less likely to leave and go to another, you know, competitor. Right. Um, and, and actually to prevent them from unionizing, right? That was also part of the, part of the deal. And, uh, he turned violent. I believe it was a guy named Bennett, his enforcer who would come in and, literally kill you there were there were they yeah a lot of people and, and, died and and you know ford even even after the wagner act the ford company continued to go after organizers you know uh, walter ruther the famous uaw leader got the shit beaten out of him um trying to organize ford by goons yeah so we're going to reopen this economy so they say it doesn't feel like they're doing it in a way that protects workers safety how do we what what are we supposed to do? How do we reopen this economy and at the same time pay people on the front lines hazard pay and make sure they're safe? I, I cannot believe that they're reopening these slaughterhouses, that MTA workers here in New York don't have the, the proper masks. Right. Yeah, we've we've had a we've had a huge outbreak of COVID where you know Harvey and I live in Green Bay. And it's centered at JBS, which is a meatpacking plant. Um, and, and the president is using the Defense Production Act, ordering yeah, these yeah. Yeah, slaughterhouses the, to reopen. Yeah, the, the plant's been shut down, actually, because of the outbreak. And it looks like they may have to open back up because of this executive, or this you know order to open things back up. This is a plant that's owned, I think, by the Chinese, a Chinese investment house. Uh, I'm not certain about that. I think it's it may be Brazilian. I can't. Okay. I'm, I'm I'm not certain, but I, I think it's it's definitely owned by international capital. And um, there's been an outbreak. It's a vector for COVID nineteen. They're going to reopen. Do we know what kind of safety precautions they're promising the workers? We we have no idea. Are they um, striking? Are we going to see a wildcat strike? Well, I. I I don't know. I mean, the thing, the thing about um, JBS uh, in our, at least in our neck of the woods is that um, they're heavily, they're heavily um, Latino population. So, you know, you, you probably have, I don't know this for certain, but you probably have some uh, undocumented workers there or, you know, at least people with undocumented people in their family. So they're, they're, you know, not looking to take a lot of risks right now. They're are these union jobs? They are actually. Yeah. Can you be a member of a union if you're undocumented? Uh, that's a good question. I, I mean, I, I think generally speaking, um, if you're undocumented, you know, you, you probably have to um, do something to, um, you know, at least legally represent yourself as being documented. So, you know, and the company looks the other way. So 
I mean, theoretically, I think you definitely could. I don't know what the level of comfort is, you know, for the workers here. But, 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 you know, it, 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 the whole thing speaks to the bigger level of, you know, precariousness that working people just in general face. And, you know, COVID-19 and the response to it has illustrated this, right? I mean, there's a, there's a huge kind of catch 22. You've got 30 million workers who are unemployed right now. And in spite of what Republicans, you know, often say about, you know, all these people are making more money than they did when they weren't working. Um, most people want to work. Most people don't want to navigate the unemployment system. They also don't know when or if their jobs will come back. A lot of their employers might actually close down. So I think most people actually want to be employed right now. But um, the problem, of course, is, you know, as we've seen from, I think there's been over 100 strikes, uh, you know, in the, in the past month or so around these safety issues. A lot of workers don't feel safe. And, you know, so, so the question is when things reopen, how do we make sure that they're safe? And, you know, if you had a stronger labor movement in this country, um, you know, I think it would be, we can have a much more humane response, uh, to this crisis. Yeah. How do we unionize? How do we work together if we can't be together? How do we? Yeah, that's tough. I mean, you know, the, again, the, the strikes that we're seeing are in places that are still open, right? So you've got, you know, Amazon workers, uh, you know, walking out. Now, your listeners should know that these are not the sort of traditional kinds of strikes that exist where, you know, workers in a union walk out in a long open-ended strike until some, you know, collective bargaining right. contract has been reached. They're generally short strikes. They're meant to kind of demonstrate the problem and, and, and that's what will happen tomorrow. You know, I'm sure some of your listeners have heard, you know, about the series of strikes that are taking place among Amazon workers and and some other companies. But um, uh, you know, um, so these so these are these are very different kinds of strikes. But those are for people that are still that have physical spaces to operate in, right? For people that are you know working, either they've been laid off or or on furlough or they're um, you know, uh, uh, working electronically, it can be really hard to get people together to actually organize. And that is one of the huge challenges right now is how do you do that? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're just on the cusp of, of people thinking about how to do that well, actually. Are you optimistic? Um, I, you know, Harvey and I talk about this a lot. Um, there's an old, uh, it's, it's a quote from uh, Antonio Gramsci, the Italian Marxist. Um, you know, it basically summarized as, uh, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. <laughs> what does that mean? Right? Well, it means that even if the situation looks pretty dire and you're and you're analyzing it and it and it looks like, boy, these conditions look pretty difficult to organize in, you know, you 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 make yourself optimistic because you have to be, right? And so right now we don't we don't have the luxury of pessimism. We've we've got um, an unprecedented crisis, people unemployed, people losing their health care. Um, institutions that are being radically restructured under our, our under our noses, and so we have to believe that coming out of the, we can come out of this with a better world, and so we have to put the effort into organizing, and that's and that's how we do it. We put the work in, and we overcome the challenges. Is the difference between this and the Great Depression? During the Great Depression, people really didn't have anything before they lost everything. They they didn't really have unions they didn't have wealth we didn't really i think we didn't have a middle class and then the great depression hit and 
the middle class and mass unionization was this new thing that energized the people. This isn't similar to the Great Depression because we've lost practically all the gains of the New Deal. I mean, we still have Social Security, and uh, but we don't have unions. The idea that we can go back and recreate what happened during the 30s is reactionary. It's foolish. It can't happen. Uh, too many people have lost... They've lost all the gains. So we have to reimagine what progress looks like. I don't, you know, Harvey J.K. always talks about, you know, this return to FDR. Uh, and Bernie began to present himself as FDR. But uh, I don't know. I, I think we have to reimagine what workers are, are going to become and how they can organize. I don't know if this is anywhere close to... I, I don't see any similarities between this and the 1930s. I don't think there... I think there are very few lessons to draw. Well, l let me challenge, first of all, the history that you laid out, because, um, you know, I would actually challenge the way you framed the Depression as being a, a time in which people never had unions. You know, okay. the, the, labor, the, the labor movement in the United States states from you know about the civil war until the 1930s ebbed and flowed so 1886 was this real sort of like high water moment um and then there was a sort of series of repressions that that came 18, out what was after, the 18 what 1886 1886 okay yeah after you know after may day actually after right. that what happened in chicago um the during world war one actually there was a huge surge of workers and unions and the reason for that was because they were necessary for the war effort and so the Wilson administration and, and the AFL actually worked very closely. Um, so there was a moment when, you know, you actually had um, millions of workers going into unions. You had um, a, a, a whole series of strikes actually in, in 1919. Actually, in terms of a proportion of workers, that was the year that the most strike, the most workers have been on strike in American history, 1919. That's now, amazing. the problem is... Wouldn't that be considered unpatriotic? I mean, I know that... Wilson was putting, like, Eugene Debs in prison for advocating against the war. Wouldn't you be accused of being unpatriotic by going on strike during a war? You would, but 1919 was after the war. So you had all these workers who were had basically this sort of pent-up energy and had actually seen advances during the war um, who wanted to sustain them when demobilization happened, right? So the war ends in 1918. 1919 is when you have this year of strikes. But the problem is, is that, you know, workers lost. I mean, there was another series of oppressions. You still have millions of workers and unions in the 1920s. Um, but, you know, it's, there was a, a definite, like, you know, there was a decline. I mean, workers lost a lot in the 20s. But mm -hmm. it's not accurate to say that, you know, the, the labor movement in the 30s kind of came out of nowhere, right? I mean, there were these people who had been organizing. They continued to organize. And I think when Harvey talks about FDR, and, you know, Harvey and I, we're like, we're like intellectual soulmates in a lot of ways, right? He's, he's not talking about FDR. In a, he's not talking about going back to FDR in a literal sense. He's talking about taking lessons, at least I think. Mm -hmm. uh, he's, take, he's talking about taking lessons from what happened in the 30s. And what's really important about the connection between the labor movement and FDR is that in a lot of ways, both of them were necessary. Right. You had workers already going on strike to protest the depression, 
but it didn't happen right away. There wasn't a huge upsurge in labor uh, uh, conflict in the 20s, in 1929, 1930, 31. It really kind of, you know, reached a new, you know, sort of level after Roosevelt was elected in 1932, right? Because Roosevelt promised to do things differently. He raised people's expectations. Now, he didn't just, he didn't through a magic wand just say like, we're going to, you know, we're going to give everybody access to unions. In fact, Roosevelt, actually, he kind of had to be pushed along actually to go along with unions. It was really Robert Wagner and others that, that, you know, were pushing unions from the get-go. But having the federal government say, we want you to unionize, we want to give you the right to organize and we want you to use it. That actually helped to, you know, kind of take militancy that was already there and like supercharge it. And so when that's why, and I completely agree with Harvey here on this point, that's why this moment that the, there's a there's such a huge missed opportunity in Bernie not being our presidential nominee right now because Bernie could do that. He can't like Roosevelt. He couldn't wave a magic wand and give everybody access to unions. But as what he could do is continue to raise people's expectations with the kind of bully pulpit of the presidency, right. Right. and you know continue to get people out there in the streets protesting, demonstrating, and organizing. So that so that's 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 where. Uh, uh, Bernie losing the, the the nomination is is so tragic, particularly in the context of this crisis. Yeah, it really is. Uh, and I and I always say the problem with COVID nineteen, among many, is that it was about a month too late. That had it shown up in February instead of March, I wonder if Barack Obama would have put his thumb on the scale for Biden. I mean, nobody was more in tune with the times than Bernie. And he was born for this moment. And I think he missed it by about three weeks. It's uh, maybe I'm a little more skeptical of that idea. I I think Barack Obama was always going to put his thumb on the scale. No matter what. Yep. No matter what. Yeah. You know, I'm supposed to now get in line and say, come on, everybody vote for Biden. Uh, Maybe. I think he's going to have to work a little harder to get my vote. And I know that pisses people off. I know Trump is an existential threat, whatever that means. But, you know, four years of Biden, are we going to see anything? Uh, What was uh, uh, Professor Harvey J.K. was talking about Obama's promise? Is it the Employment Protection the employment, the Employment Free Choice Act. The, yeah, the Employment Free Cho- Choice Act that he had promised. And what what did Obama do for unions? <laughs> Not very much. And I'll tell you something. Just like Clinton in '92, um, without the labor movement, there's a really good chance that Barack Obama doesn't get elected in 2008. I mean. The labor movement provided the foot soldiers to knock on doors. I think the AFL-CIO spent about fifty million dollars on Obama in 2008, which, you know, I know money's gotten completely out of control, but that was a lot of money in 2008. You know, that, that of course, was before Citizens United. Where is, uh, where is, I keep asking this, where's, you know, Barack Obama said, I'll never stop working for you. Who was he talking to? Because I don't see him. I have no idea. In Wisconsin. It, it, it's it's fascinating. You know, he, he gave this speech. I'll, I'll never forget it because... It was February 13th, 2008. And the reason I remember it is because it was the day after my daughter was born. So 
my wife and I were in the hospital and I remember seeing this speech and thinking like, this is my guy. He, Barack Obama was the first presidential candidate I ever donated money to. Um, and the speech, it was in Janesville. You probably remember this, right? Um, this was when the uh, GM plant was closing there and they were making a big issue out of it. And he gave this speech where he criticized, uh, the, you know, he criticized Democrats for NAFTA, for, you know, free trade with China that undercut American jobs. He went you know, after he, NAFTA? He did. He criticized, wow. he also criticized Hillary Clinton's health care plan for not having a public option. Wow. February 13th, 2008, right? And I'm thinking, this is a guy that's going to do things differently. Um, and then at another point during the campaign, he said, you know, I'll put my shoes on and come walk on the picket line, you know. In 2000, you know, 2011, during the protests, the Act 10 protests, Obama, it was radio silence from him, mm. you know, and, and I know that's a, a sore point with Harvey. I, I don't, I wasn't in the state at the time, but of course I watched it on TV like a lot of people. So, you know, it, it's, we're in a, we're in a, we're in a, we have a real predicament here. And I, I tell you, I'm genuinely conflicted. I am genuinely, I know Harvey has come out and said, like, we have to all vote for Biden as much as we don't like it, but I'm with you on this. I actually haven't decided. And, you know, the, the reason I haven't is because um, I think we keep doing this. We keep electing Democrats that promise to do something for working people, and then they don't do it. And it's like, how many more times are we going to do it, right? I mean, you know, you, you can go back to Carter, who promised labor reform in 76 and, and did nothing. Um, you know, we could, we could get into labor law reform. That's a, that's a fascinating uh, story. Uh, and the failure of labor law reform then uh, you've got Clinton who then who gets elected with, you know, basically with labor support and then goes and negotiates NAFTA the next year. And, and, and Clinton, a lot of people don't remember this. He actually told Republicans that he would endorse them, Republican um, Congress people that he would endorse them if labor came after them for supporting NAFTA. Right. Wow. So you got Clinton, you got Obama who does very little 2016, you know, knowing how horrible, you know, Trump was, I went and knocked on people's doors. I knocked on union members' doors right here in my neighborhood to get them to vote for Hillary Clinton, as hard as that was for me to do it. But the question is, we just, we keep doing this. We keep, we keep on nominating neoliberals that, that don't really have much of a plan to help working people. At the same time, the other side of the coin is this. The Supreme Court matters, Right. If 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 uh, if Clinton had won in 2016, we wouldn't have gotten you know a, a Supreme Court decision that was disastrous for public sector unions, the Janice case. Um, or OSHA, we could or we could have a Democratic Party that represents labor, wins by massive margins, and overturns Supreme Court decisions. I mean, acts of Congress can reverse a Supreme Court ruling. I, I completely agree with you, right? But like, you know, then you think about staffing like the National Labor Relations Board, which, you know, I have, uh, Harvey and I, we, we produce students that go into the labor movement and they tell us how hard things have been since Trump has been in office for people to organize because the NLRB makes it difficult for people, right? Um, so it's, it, it's hard. Like I said, I'm genuinely conflicted. Um, and I, I, you know, it, because as you said, you know, how do we ever get to that point where we have a Democrat that, you know, actually supports working people and does something for them and, and, and energizes them? You know, we don't we don't do it by continuing to, you know, vote for the lesser of two evils. Um, but, I, 
you know, so I don't know. I, I am, I am genuinely conflicted. I think the kids in the cages, the plight of the undocumented workers, I think ICE, I think we have a much better chance, not of eliminating ICE under Biden, but making it a kinder and gentler Gestapo. Uh, I think, is he going to stop fracking? Is he going to stop offshore drilling? Is uh, switched from fossil fuels to renewables? Maybe he'll speed up solar research and wind power. I know Biden did that with the Stimulus Act, but yeah. uh, it's incremental, and now is not the time to go slowly. Plus, he's a liar. He's shown himself to be no friend of the unions, and uh, I, I, I just don't see any reason to vote for Biden other than he'll bring us back to where Obama had us, which wasn't even close to where we needed to be, you know? So the, the, the best argument for voting for Biden is that by voting for him, it's easier for working people to organize on their own, right? Because, at least some of these, you know, federal entities will be like the NLRB will be staffed with people that are not averse to what working people are doing. Um, the 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 flip side of that, of course, is that you worry about people getting complacent and doing what they did with Obama and saying like, well, we've got a Democrat now, let's let them, you know, kind of save us. And and they the got Democratic- that evil Mitch McConnell. You know, he's so right. evil. I mean, the the Democratic Party and its current constitution is not going to save us. No, like. They're going to kill us. They're they're killing us. So so the question is, what makes it easier for working people to organize? Um, And at the end of the day, that's probably what I'll end up doing. I'll probably end up voting for Biden for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned. But um, I'm I'm so conflicted. And I might even, I don't know, I might say something like, I'll do it, but this is the last time. Yeah, I I think some of us said that five last times ago. Uh, This will be the first time I'll have said that. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> Professor John Shelton teaches democracy over at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. He is also vice president of the American Federation of Teachers Wisconsin. His book is Teachers Strike and how do people follow you on Twitter? Uh they can follow at prof underbar Shelton. Okay. And tonight, nine PM Eastern, every Friday night, we do office hours. Professor Shelton came to our second one two weeks ago. We didn't see you last Friday. Professor Harvey J.K. will be there. Maybe we can discuss voting for Biden or not. There was nobody to argue with Professor Harvey J.K. when he endorsed (laughs) Biden. I'm not going to stand up to the man. (laughs) Well, we have our own uh, private arguments, but uh, (laughs) I mean, I'm not going to say I won't. I'm not going to say I won't vote for Biden, but I'm not convinced yet. So, yeah, yeah, I should be able to be there. And maybe I'll poke him a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not 2 a.m. yet. I don't have to drink, drink him up and <laughs> go home with uh, the most unattractive in the bar. Can you stay on the line, Professor John? Shelton? Of course. Yeah. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. 
you happy, self-actualized hump. Let us now go to Kennebunk, Maine, where Emmy Award-winning, Peabody Award-winning comedy writer and author Jim Earl is standing by. Hello, Jim. Hello. Oh, is this First Lady Melania Trump? Just Davy. Jimmy cannot come to take your phone call right now. He's busy washing his bridge liquidity off of my blouse, if you know what I mean. His bridge liquidity. Yes, Davy. Bridge liquidity. I'm a first lady, for you who doesn't know me. I have another public servicing announcer. Please, go ahead. I wish to say happy Harbor Day. Harbor Day. Harbor Day. Harbor Day in dedication of the trees. On this Harbor Day, President Tornell and I, First Lady Melania, planted a tree under the White House lawn over a Vince Foster's grave. This tree represents our nation's dedication and admiration for the great outdoors that my husband spray his diarrhea on for profit. Mm. On Harbor Day, let us open our enlarged heart to the words of President Eddie Roosevelt when speaking of big trees with huge girth that look like big penis with veins, when Mm. he said, when you help to plant a new one, you are acting like the part of a good citizens who plant their hardwood into a fertile mother's earth bosoms, or words to that reflect. Mm. And thank you to our nation's chickens for laying so much for the fatherland. Yes. Speaking of laying so much, today is my birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you, Davy. Before I met Donald, I used to get heartburn whenever I ate my birthday cake. Then Donald told me I should take off the candles first. That makes sense. Today, I am 50 years old. Or as the men used to say in Slovenia, time to raid another village. You're, you're no longer attractive to them. Because I am 50 years old. Yes. I wish to thank deeply and passionately with the up and down frosting motion all our essential workers working their essential jobs on the marketplaces doing these jobs no one else will do because they are stupid, idiot, cheap peoples. Donnell is very excited to announce a phased-in opening of certain essential businesses like the topless donut shop, taint bleaching salons, and Lysol injection factories throughout United Empire of American States, a Tandy Corporation. Very sweet. And Americans, we're all pulling for you. Like in my film titled, We Are All Pulling For You where I am surrounded by a room full of guys who are all pulling their noodles for me to soon give double penetration 
in all three holes. Davy, as you know, as part of my Be Best initiative, to help insensual caregivers giving their all care to the uncaring. We thank those who put themselves at risk to keep our grocery stores, pharmacies, and gas stations open in the public setting, where social distances measures can be difficult to maintain. For the only way we can keep this great economy going is by you worthless insects drowning in your own lug fluids, slowly, painfully, tortuously, be best. And now, if you like, I will show you my teats. Uh, no, thank you. No? No. Then I continue. Thank you. So remember, do not despair. We are all in this together. Like my film titled, We Are All in This Together where I am this, and three men are in me together, double penetration in all three holes. And now, if you like, I will show you my teats. No, thank you. Then I continue. Do not get sick, Davy. I must leave now. Would you like to enter me before I go? No, thank you. Okay, Davy. Thank you. And Heil Hitler. Thank you, Madam First Lady, for that. Jim? Yes. Very beautiful. Well, she's kept drugged 24 hours a day. So she comes up to Kenny Bunk just to to detox, I guess. Right. There's a lot of things to do up here in Kennebunk. You can eat lobster, lobster rolls. You can go shopping and uh, eat lobster rolls Hmm. and shoot moose. While they're eating lobster rolls. And burning down barns. While eating lobster rolls. And making math. Sounds like you really love Maine, Jim. Maine is the way life should be. Why don't you uh, remedicate the First Lady, and we'll talk to you later in the show. Sure. Okay. We'll pump her up full of amphetamines. Thank you, Jim. Okay, see you in court. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Let us now go to Tucson, Arizona, where Dr. Jennifer Vertolin is standing by. She's the author of two books, Wild Connection, What Animal Courtship and Mating Tell Us About Human Relationships. Also, Raised by Animals, the Surprising New Science of Animal Family Dynamics with Tri-at-Home Lessons from the Wild. Subscribe to Dr. Jennifer Vertolin's newsletter by going to jenniferverdelin.com and over there you can see her writings, her blog you can subscribe to her YouTube channel and follow her on Twitter at Real Dr. Jen Hello Dr. Jennifer Verdelin Hi, how are you? I'm, except for the fact that I'm miserable, I'm doing great <laughs> Yeah <laughs> except, been, for the, except for the fact that I feel uh, anxious about the world imploding, I'm doing great too. Yeah, I, you know, <laughs> my new motto 
is reality can be deceiving. I think reality is deceiving. And I actually went outside. I've been going for walks. I put my mask on and I'm and I'm going outside and I'm getting fresh air. I should mention that during the pandemic, the David Feldman show is inviting listeners to sit in on many of our conversations via Zoom or phone. And if you would like an invitation to attend something like this, something important like this, a conversation with Dr. Jennifer Verdelin, please go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the office hours menu and sign up. And I should also mention that Friday night at 9 Eastern, we're doing our big office hours where listeners can talk to our guests and guests can talk to our listeners. It's a lot of fun. And if you would like to attend, once again, go to davidfeldmanshow.com and sign up by going to the office hours page of my website. Dr. Jennifer Vertle, and we have a lot of listeners who are sitting in on this via Zoom or telephone. They have questions they want to get to. But first, I have to apologize to you for last Friday's office hours. You, <laughs> you were billed. We were looking forward to seeing you. And the technology got the best of me. And I sent you the wrong invitation. And everybody was going, where's Dr. Vertle? And, and they brought their pets. Can you... Uh, I would assume you're not mad at me and you'll come to office hours tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern. Of course, not at all, Matt. And, and uh, you know, it, I, I tried uh, multiple links to try to get on. And, you know, I, I, I like many of us, the bandwidth for, for navigating a lot of this stuff is is getting narrower by the week. <laughs> and so... Um, I missed I missed being able to be on, but I absolutely am, am ready to be on tomorrow night. And so um, I hope that uh, we will we we won't run into technical problems, but that just happens. So yeah, Dan, not- Dan F says uh, that uh, Antonio Buttons ate the invitation. He did. <laughs> yeah, he, he's he's passed out right now because he's so full from all of that. Invitation that he consumed, he stole it. <laughs> uh, so you'll be there, and we'll see Antonio Buttons. We'll have our pet beauty pageant, as always. People bring their pets, and they will. Uh, do we have a love connection? I know that two weeks ago. I know. I don't know. I set up uh, two pairs, um, and so. You know, uh, we'll see. I don't know if they kept talking. I have no idea. Can you? But we have some. We have a lot of hands raised, and we're going to get to everybody. And I'm hogging the conversation. But <laughs> explain to me and the listeners at home what we did at office hours Friday nights nine Eastern. <laughs> what we did two weeks ago, please. Um, yeah. So I uh, we had been talking on the previous session about and this famous quiz that people could take and fall in love by the end of it. And, and that inspired me to create my own quiz of nine questions that would, would tell you what kind of animal partner you are. And then I, we, we hatched a, a plan to give listeners the quiz who wanted to take it and who were interested in in maybe making a remote uh, digital connection, love in the time of coronavirus. 
and uh, you know we launched the the quiz. I sent out the link, and and actually I looked at some of the results. Quite a few people took it. We did have a squirrel or two out uh-huh. there. Um, and then I uh, solicited folks who were interested, and and they had to tell me what animal they got. And then I said, okay, I think I've got a match for you. Do I have consent to connect <laughs> you guys? Because consent is really important. Yes. Yeah. And uh, those that agreed, I I said, okay, here here you are, here you are, uh, off you go, and it's up to you now. And so uh, there were two, so four people, and I, I matched up, you know, four people. Um, so two 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 part two pairs. We so we will pairs. we will tonight at nine p.m. Eastern. Hopefully, mm-hmm. I hope we will meet the couples and find out if they went on a virtual date. And by yeah. the way, the David Feldman show, all expense paid staycation. We we foot the bill for everything here at the David Feldman show. And we're going to do the pet beauty pageant. Last thing about the pets, because of the way we're doing this, I ask people to bring their pets. I don't understand the technology on this software for us to see your pets the way we're doing it now. But... Tonight at 9, we will continue our search for the world's most beautiful pet. And I figured out how we're going to do this, Dr. Verdolin. And then we're going to start, we're going to take a question from Jody. I realize we're going to do it like the Powerball. Each week, we're going to have a, a beauty pageant for pets. And each week, we're going to say, you know what? We don't have a winner. We're going to double, we're going to double the jackpot to, you know, we'll say the jackpot is now $200. And we'll just keep doubling it. Nobody will win. And I'll just keep it going. It'll be a great scam. We'll get it up to like $5 million. Okay. Now that we got all that out of the way, let's go to Great Britain, where Canadian Jody is standing by. Hello, Jody. Hi, David. How are you today? Uh, so far, so good. Good. What is your question for Dr. Jennifer Verdolin? Dr. Verdolin, I have two questions. Number one, <clears throat> have you ever seen the movie, or the, yeah, the movie, Microcosmos? Wow. You've not seen Microcosmos? I took my kids to see that. It, they, they showed two snails. It changed my life. They show snails mating. It's one of the most erotic things oh, I've ever yeah. seen. Go ahead, Jody. I'm interrupting. I apologize. No, no, that's okay. It, uh, okay, I, I'm going. I mean, I do know about snails mating. That I'm quite familiar with. Um, and, and they're this very. Movie, oops, sorry. Go ahead. I'm going to send you. A, well, someone's going to have to send you a link to see this movie because you will not. Uh, it changed my life. It wow. absolutely changed my life. How did it impact you and change your life? Well, I grew up being terrified of bugs and flying things and squirmy, creepy, crawly things. And this film, uh, which I believe was, it's an Italian film, um, and I didn't understand a single word that was said in it, and there were only about three words that were said in it, um, but it, it I, I can't just—I I can't actually describe it. it. It's a great question. Great, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, yeah. Microcosmos. 
I haven't seen it in 20 years. I do remember bringing my kids to see it when they were very, very young. And there's a scene where two snails are mating, and they speed it up a little, and they added, I don't know, opera, but I remember they played some kind of opera. It was very sensuous. And at one point, I looked at my kids, and I thought, I don't know if I should be, they should be saying this. It was really uh, hot, hot. Uh, Well, you know, it's it's funny because... um, uh, I'm very familiar with the snail sexual relationship um, in the sense that about their love darts and how they stab each other, you know, love hurts. Um, they take it kind of literal. And um, and I, uh, if anybody also wants to see some, some a series, it might not be appropriate for children, some of them, but I, I made uh, friends with Isabella Rossellini who has... Wow. Uh, a series of, you can watch most of them on YouTube called Green Porno. It was initially made for the Sundance Festival. Right, right. I know. I, yes, I didn't see it, but yeah. And she she reenacts many of the sex scenes that we see in some of the unusual ways, um, and snails is one of them, and um, and so. So since snails came up, can I address a, 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 a listener question about snails? Is this from Anthony? Um, I, I think so. I got an email about, um, you know, how the snails smelled food so quickly. Um, and, uh, like, you know, the, some food for a rabbit had been put out, you know, and, and within a few minutes the snails were there. And so I just want to say among the other amazing things about snails is they have a phenomenal sense of smell. And so uh, they have these uh, odor receptors uh, that uh, on their tentacles. And so, you know, they, they're basically like the hounds of, of the uh, invertebrate world. And they can find food from pretty far distances by smell. And that's also how they... They follow each other. You know, those slimy little trails are basically, um, you know, I don't know. I was going to say wet something, but <laughs> mm. uh, it's a, uh, that's a chemical trail that they follow um, as well. So they have a really, really great sense of smell uh, for something so tiny. Two snail jokes. What does a snail say on top of a turtle? Don't go so fast. Or wee, <laughs> and the other one is, and I have to curse. I'm going to curse. Ah, I'm not going to curse. But so anyway, this guy gets up in the morning to get his newspaper, opens the door, he sees a snail, and he picks it up and he throws it across the street. Fifty years later, there's a knock on his door. The snail looks up and says, "What the fuck was that about?" <laughs> All right, great. By the way, I should mention Frank Conniff, uh, his cat Barney, passed away. And oh, he, no. was, he was with Frank for 15 years. And uh, so our thoughts and prayers are with Barney and Frank Conniff. And uh, anyway, let's go to Andy Trudeau. Hello, Andy. Where are you Zooming us from today? Hey, David. I'm Zooming from New Hampshire. New Hampshire. Fantastic. Yes. What is your question today for Dr. Jennifer Verdolin? 
Uh, hi, Dr. Vertolin. My question is, is it possible for a breed of dog to recognize their own breed amongst a group of dogs? Wow. Oh, that's a really that's fantastic a... question. Yeah. Thanks. So, so, okay, so I don't know, you know, I have no empirical evidence or knowledge about this question, but my, my gut would tell me that... Um, I'm not sure that dogs categorize each other the way that we categorize each other, right? Like they, they, they know the difference between a dog and a coyote and a wolf, um, right? And, and there's a, there's a, there's a, some, some don't. I, I saw a golden retriever a few months ago clearly uh, not understand that the coyote did not want to play. And continued chasing the coyote while the coyote was most distressed. Coyotes recognize that dogs are not coyotes and usually try to get away from them. Um, you know, unless it's an urban sort of situation where there's a lot of uh, a contact and then you can have a completely different outcome. So I would say that my instinct would be that, that the dogs know differences among individual dogs. They know that they're one dog and another dog is a different dog. But whether they say, oh, that's a poodle versus, you know, the way that we've categorized breeds is not necessarily meaningful for dogs. They're going to make categorizations based on dogs I know, dogs I don't know, dogs I like, dogs I don't like. Um, those are the things that matter, I think, to them versus, you know, a poodle saying, wow, that's a great Dane, you know. Uh, so, so yeah, I think that, that they do recognize differences, but those differences are under different labels than we think of as breeds. Did we just hear Antonio Buttons? Uh, no, he's asleep. So oh, that- okay. I don't know if I Somebody has a cat. And a follow-up to Andy's question, does a cat ignore another cat? Do they know to recognize other breeds of cats and ignore them? Well, so it depends on defining ignoring. Again, the the things that cause people, cats, to acknowledge, interact, or ignore other individual animals, whether it's within their species or a different species, is going to vary. So, um, you know, Buttons is fascinated by dogs as long as they're on the outside. If a Uh, cat is domestic uh and only knows humans, and then you suddenly take it out of its element for the past, you know, it's been 20 years, 15 years in an apartment. It has never seen another cat. Right. And then you introduce it to another cat. Does it know that that is a similar species? Sure. They Well, by smell, right? There's a sort of chemical recognition and signature that you might think of, you know, all groups of organisms have. And then it gets, um, you know, uh, refined by individual, right? right. And so, every, like even humans, we all have our own chemical signature scent. And so there are features of recognition um, you know, because all cats had parent cats, <laughs> right. right? At least for some amount of time, they had their mom. And, and so there is, and, and you don't get imprinting in cats like you do in, say, ducks, okay. where if a duck, its first big object that it sees is a person, 
it then thinks it's a person. Right. right. It, it matches visually like all and then it'll actually try to mate with a person or court a person, you know, right. like and be jealous of another duck that tries to be near its person and all of these sort of behaviors that come out of that first mismatch that happens. But, you know, um, but then the interesting thing is, what do they think about other species? So when I was living in Ohio, you know, Button's sister, Peanut, who passed away last year, was much more engaged with the outside world in terms of curiosity and looking out windows. Right. And we had a, a groundhog that lived uh, under the, the porch that she and, and she was an indoor, you know, fully indoor. But what really like you, her eyes, biggest saucers was when the deer were in the yard. And I could almost see her going, I have, what is that? I don't know what to be afraid of it. I'm fascinated by it. it it's large. You know, it was really, um, and she would run from window to window to track different right. animals. And so uh, she she definitely thought the foxes were worrisome and the skunks smelled bad. Okay, we you have know? we have a lot of questions, so okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna be a taskmaster here. I'm, I'm not trying to be rude, but no, Andy, no. Did, did the doctor answer your question? I, I muted him, so I think the answer. There yes, is, she did. That was a very good answer. Great. Thank you, doctor. Thank you. You're welcome. Great oh question. no, just call me David. Call me David. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, David. <laughs> Thank you. Please. Professor Feldman. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Let us now go to Los Angeles, where John is standing by. I believe he is the last person to have seen Liam McEnany. Hello, John. <laughs> Hello. Yes, that might be the case. Um, the cat you heard was probably mine because oh. you unmuted my mic as she was meowing. Here, so. Here's my cat. <laughs> So I have two of them, but one of them is louder. Anyway, um, by the way, I saw Isabella Rossellini's uh, green porno. It's worth watching, definitely. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, and she also did another live show related to animals, which I saw uh, yes. a couple of years ago. I did um, as well. That's yeah, uh, and, and it was quite quite fascinating. So my question is not so much about animals, but about animal consumption. As I recall, a few weeks ago, you talked about looking for eggs at the supermarket because you wanted some protein. And I, I know you don't eat meat. Is that correct? Correct. So I'm just wondering why you're not uh, totally vegan. That's yeah, basically that's, it. That's a great question. So I will also specify that uh, my preference is um, – if I'm going to buy eggs in a store that they're pasture uh, raised, so I avoid uh, the the mass sort of produced eggs. Pasture centered are, are I think, more humane. Um, I don't have a problem fundamentally eating uh, a, an egg uh, that a chicken produces if the life of the chicken is fine. Um, I mean, basically, a chicken egg is period, right? You're just making yeah. a period. <laughs> and, and, um, and, and I don't agree with, uh, how, you know, the sex ratios of, of, of chicks that are, are usually one-to-one -one and the cruel treatment of male chicks, uh, needs to be abolished. 
but I I have uh, more than uh, more frequently I get my eggs from someone locally who has chickens. And so I got a dozen, um, you know, maybe a week ago because uh, uh, someone that lives here, a friend of mine knows her. She has chickens in her yard and, you know, they lay eggs and she, uh, you know, gives them or sells them for five bucks for a dozen. And I don't I don't have a problem with that. I do have a problem with industrial farming, industrial egg production and the conditions under which those animals are kept, but there are many local farms that they have pasture centered chickens. They, they move them around in outdoor enclosures uh, on little wheels to let them, uh, you know, and this is part of a sort of holistic farming. They eat up the insects. They follow behind. Yeah. They prevent Lyme disease. Yeah. So, so, so I think um, it's really about where food comes from and also the people, you know, that are responsible for, providing that food for us. I mean, many years ago, I stopped eating shellfish because so much of it is, is uh, you know, collected by slaves. So right. whether you agree with eating shrimp or not, uh, do you agree with slavery would then be the next question because understanding all of the intricacies of food production, food delivery, um, you know, independent of humane treatment of animals is another component for people to think about. So, and Yes, and to think about how we treat the, the, the humans who slaughter these. Uh, these yeah. yeah. So, uh, John, is that, is that good for you? Well, yes, I am vegan, but I, my problem, I suppose, is that if people who are somewhat in the public eye are okay with saying, I'll have an egg and it's humanely raised or whatever, the fact is that well over 90% of them are not well raised and people will, even with its, if the labeling on the product says uh, cage free, it's, it's just a lesser circle of hell. It's still a version of factory farming. I agree. Yes, Mark. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I, I do think pasture centered is different um, than cage free. I think that at the same time, you know, I, I, I make the decisions that I can make for, for myself on my using my moral compass, I fundamentally don't think it's wrong to eat the egg of another animal. Um, I do think that the way that we treat animals is wrong. And, you know, I think a lot of it is about educating people. And I don't eat eggs that often, right? right. I don't have, like, eggs every day. So that dozen that I get from the local person who's got some chickens who she takes very good care of. The chickens are happy, um, and they lay eggs because that's just what chickens do. Okay, I'm going to – I, I, doctor, I, yeah. I, I, I want you to come back, and I want the attendees to come back. Thank okay. you, John. And I'm sure I have to be rude on behalf of the people in attendance, the listeners, sure. and especially Dr. Jennifer Vertolin. We'll feel a lot better <laughs> if we get to everybody's questions today. Thank you, John. For sure. that great question. Let's go to northern Michigan to Henry, who I believe is still sheltering in his parents' basement, even though he spends most of his time in Germany. Did I get that right? That's correct, David. Usually I'm in a lab in Germany, but uh, I can't escape right now. <laughs> You're a lab in. Okay, we'll discuss that some other time. Go ahead. What is your question for Dr. Jennifer Vertolin? Hi, Professor. Hi. Uh, so I've got a question that relates 
human behavior to see if there's an uh, an analog in animal behavior. So recently, we've been seeing a dramatic upsurge in domestic violence cases due to the current pandemic. Uh, and we've seen this in all, all sorts of recessions. Whenever there's economic instability, there's a, a dramatic increase in, in domestic violence. Uh, for example, there was a study in 2004 that found that only 2.7% of couples who had low levels of financial strain experienced domestic violence, whereas 9.5% that had high levels of financial strain had domestic violence. Um, and in every recession, there's been an increase in, in domestic violence amounts. So I was wondering if there was an animal analog where, of course, they don't have financial constraints, but for example, if there was food insecurity among animals, was wow. there the equivalent of domestic abuse among animals or not mm-hmm. that you were aware of? Yeah, right. so this is such a great question, and yeah. I'm really glad that you asked it, Henry. So, so yeah, what we can say is that, so not in monogamous partnerships of other species, but in social group living species where we might have a dominance hierarchy. So thinking about different primates like, you know, macaques, baboons, uh, chimpanzees, um, you know, uh, lemurs, uh, even, even, um, you know, tightly knit social groups of, of most other species. When you have, uh, stress, resource stress or social stress, like overcrowding, um, you know, in, in, in captive groups, um, or in the environment where there's increased competition for food, right? So, so there it's not money, but the, an analog, we use money to meet our basic needs and, uh, it, it, the stress of, of unpredictable and insufficient resources often leads to heightened aggression within the group. And between groups. So we can have, so normally living in groups is beneficial because you cooperatively defend against other groups. And so your between group competition goes up, but your within group competition goes down. You add stress to that, resource stress, um, or, or, or other external stress that even is caused by humans, and you start to see um, expressions of aggression go up. When it comes to domestic partnerships, that's an unusual difference. So in other species that form long pair bonded, um, you know, uh, relationships, you almost never see aggression towards the partner. You see aggression outward or the partnership disband. Meaning if the resource stress goes up too much, the partnership breaks down. Once they start bickering, it's over. You don't see abuse in the way that we see anyway. Do we see females or males more abuse? Do we, do we know which gender? So, so again, in, in the wild for, let's say, prairie voles, they are known to be long-term monogamous. They're extremely aggressive to outsiders. There's virtually no aggression towards each other. Um, in, in let's say resource availability becomes really stressful, if they did start to interact negatively, um, then they would the partnership would end. That's actually what would happen to solve the problem, right? They would split. And so um, in uh, other group living, like let's say lemurs. 
whether the females are doing the aggression or the males are doing the aggression really depends on sort of the structure that is there to begin with. Many lemur groups are female dominating. So meaning they're, they're run by the, who runs the world? Females. <laughs> and in that case, aggression towards males may go up, uh, under situations of intense resource, uh, scarcity or unpredictability, but also females will, will fight with each other more. So you just generally see, uh, also parent to offspring. Violence is pretty rare in other species, uh, much unlike humans. <laughs> Uh, where it's pretty common and very weird. And I talk about this in Raised by Animals. Um, but the exception is that in socially stressful situations, resource stress situations, we've seen in captive environments in particular, uh, really um, unfortunate uh, female aggression towards offspring that's really more about anxiety and insecurity um, in the social environment. Not discipline? No. And then it gets transmitted from one generation to the next. We wow. start to see that daughters of abusive mothers become abusive mothers. But it's accidental. It's not discipline. It's I'm nervous, I'm anxious, and I'm over overly, you know, uh, uh I don't even want to say protective, but in a way, protective. I'm, I'm, I'm just reactive. I'm much more reactive, and the chance of injury goes up under those situations. Great. So, great question. So, yeah, it's a great question, Henry, and it's um, we do see it in other species, uh, but not in domestic romantic partnerships. Thank you, Henry, and we'll see you. I hope Friday night tonight, nine Eastern, at office hours, and we've upped the. The, the seats we can i don't think we're going to have to turn anybody away for office hours tonight we have plenty of seats available okay let us now go to juliet uh and i don't know if she is talking to us on the phone or if that's your mother are you are you phyllis's yes i'm phyllis's daughter um, hi, Dr. Jen. Hi, David. Hi. Hi, Juliet. Are you in Tucson? I actually am in Phoenix, but my mom is listening. From okay, Tucson. wonderful. How are you? <laughs> so I'm so glad to get to. Are you on a speakerphone, Juliet? It's really the only the only way. Is it too loud or echoey? That's okay. It, it's okay. I'll get down right next to it. Okay, thank you. So I have an 11-year-old terrier mixed dog, and I think I sent you a picture of her, Dr. Jen. You know, just the cutest dog ever. Um, adopted her 10 years ago from a rescue who had taken her from the pound. And she's been taken there with her puppies. Um, and she's just the best dog, but she doesn't really like to be petted, mm-hmm. especially by me, even though I'm clearly her favorite member of the family. She'll really only let me pet her when I first come home. But if I try and pet her while she's sitting on a chair or just go over to her, she'll get up and leave. (laughs) It's 10 years of rejection, and I'm just wondering why. Okay. No, this is a great question. And the first thing I would say is don't take it personal. (laughs) Um, You know, I experienced much the same with Button's sister. Uh, It was eight years before she ever came on my lap. And, uh, and then that, even then it was maybe in her entire life of 16 years, it, it happened a dozen times. 
Um, and, 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 and it, it's, you know, some, so the, the interpretation I would give is one, I mean, I don't know if she's always been this way. So if she has always been this way, we have to understand that, that other animals have personalities and they have different interests. And just because it's a dog doesn't mean that, you know, they are as affectionate as, as we sort of always label dogs being. And she could also be overstimulated. So there's different sensitivities, you know, um, skin sensitivities and how you receive touch. And, uh, you know, and if you're in the mood or not in the mood, I mean, just think about your own life. If somebody touches you and you don't want to be touched, mm, you know, <laughs> the reaction is a, a little bit different. So I would be curious if she's if she behaves differently with other people than with you. Right. She if, says she or um, we're going to move on. She says her husband uh, is is allowed to pet her. Oh, well, yeah, then it's uh, then it might be a female competition thing, actually. Um, there's a hierarchy that has been established, and you are not top dog. And, and a dog, a female dog, knows who the female human is and who the male human is. Of course. Really? Of course. They smell different. Hormones. Hormones are the universal communicator. Okay. And so if if uh, there could be some jealousy there, you know, intolerance uh, is, is, you know, she's tolerating the fact that you're there. Right. Um, you okay. know. So that's a possibility too. Okay, we have six more questions, and I want to get to all of them. We're doing. And we can go a little bit longer to make sure we get all. Yeah, of them. Yeah, we'll get to them, but you know, we want to keep this moving along. Let us now go to JS. Hello, JS. Hi. How are you? Where are you zooming us from? Uh, Midtown Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, okay. So, I guess I'm on double quarantine with uh, the the way the governor's behaving, but here yeah. I am. Um, so, Dr. Jennifer Bertelin, thank you very much for um, sharing all your insights about the animal world with us. Um, sure. My question, I think, might actually be the opposite of, of Henry's because I'm curious that there are so many articles right now that you're seeing animals out enjoying life while humans have been quarantined. Some are real, art, you know, real stories, and some are fake. Um, for the real real ones, like the bears in Yosemite, the whales in Finland, uh, the rats in Japan, um, does anything in your species adaptation research indicate that these sudden behavioral adaptations are expected by non-domesticated animals to our um, being human quarantined life? And are there any potential long-term effects? And then for the fake stories where people are posting things about swans and stuff like that in the, in Venice to make themselves feel better, um, do other species make up false narratives or events like we humans do to make <laughs> themselves and others just feel good? What, what's the fake, the great question. What's the fake story? What, uh, well, the, some, the, a lot of people were posting, um, how clear the, the, um, rivers in Venice were, which was true because there was no boat traffic and, and such, but other people were posting pictures of like swans appearing in there and dolphins were in the rivers, but um, those were debunked as, as the swans were always there, first of all, in certain parts, and um, the dolphins' pictures were off the coast of another part of Italy. Um, but So there's all sorts of stories out there. I'm sure if you get yeah. on Instagram or Twitter, you're you're bound to see some of them to, but it's it's usually just people trying to make themselves and everybody else feel good. Okay, right. great question. I, I love this. So, Jance, I'm gonna I'm gonna tackle both of those. 
on the first one, you know, look, we humans, we're noisy. And, and, you know, I've been teaching wildlife conservation behavior this semester. And one of the things that we talked about is, is how human activity disrupts so much of, of life uh, for other species and how some are better able to adapt than, than not. For example, in response to human noise, pollution, I mean, birds are changing when they sing, how loud they sing. Uh, nightingales basically in Europe scream at a, at a, at a, a level that will blow out your eardrum if you are near it. And, and this is to try to overcome the noise. Uh, so from noise to air pollution to vibration of the Earth's crust, which has dropped dramatically, um, I think that, you know, other species are, are, are sort of, uh, what they're doing is they're reverting to behaviors that they would normally do but can't because of all of our activity, or they might feel safer venturing into certain areas just because there's fewer cars on the roads, they, they can cross the roads. Um, you know, we're seeing elk and deer uh, sort of being less apprehensive on roads just because they are, they, they are aware of traffic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they may not be able to navigate roads successfully uh, under, under really dense conditions, it's not that they're unaware that there's a danger. It's just their visual, sensory, you know, perceptions are impacted in ways that they, they just can't figure out when is it safe to cross. Right. Um, so, so I think that what we're seeing is just a relaxation of their um, adaptation to what they do when we're so noisy and, and dirty and, and – um, and that, that will, so I actually was having an interesting conversation about how does this impact in the future. So my, my worry is that animals that are born now, you know, offspring that are born when it's quiet, we know that uh, parent, uh, for example, zebra finch, when it's the temperature is warmer than expected, they have a particular call that they give to their developing chicks that makes their chicks hatch faster and so that they're smaller. And this benefits the chicks if they're going to live in a warmer environment because it, it has to do with how their the, the volume to size ratio and how heat and is coped with. So they set them up to succeed if the temperature is warmer while the chicks are developing. So that begs the question, you know, what's happening between parents and their offspring and offspring that are born now uh, when it's quiet and not dirty, and, and, and everything they're going to learn about how to navigate the world, uh, and then it suddenly changes again. So I don't know the answer to that. I think it's an interesting question. Great, great. The great. other part, which I definitely have to get to really quickly, do other animals tell false narratives to make themselves look or feel better? Uh, the one example I will give, so yes, animals lie. <laughs> um, and they, they Especially make sheep. <laughs> I just I don't want to go into details, but sheep <laughs> lie. I just want okay. to say that. Go ahead. Um, and and they make up stories. There's a very limited uh, sort of window in which that works for them. They can't make up stories about what they look like. I mean, they try to, you know, there's frogs that croak louder to try to make themselves sound like a mighty big frog when they're actually really tiny. 
but the gig is up as soon as anybody sees them. And it's sort of like getting undressed and pulling off your nails and other fake body parts. Like, you, you know, there was, I think, an old Fresh Prince of Bel-Air episode about that. And um, But the best example comes from roosters. Uh, so they, they like to crow that they've got food when, in fact, they have no food. And they do that to attract all the hens, you know, like, I'm a mighty rooster, look at me. And, of course, when the hens get there and discover that he has, in fact, no food whatsoever, um, you know, he, he, they leave. <laughs> it, it doesn't work in, in terms of, you know, long-term benefit. We also have some species like water striders that make motion on water to mimic a predator. So they're telling a false, they're, they're telling a false story to try to get the females. So if the females won't mate with them, they basically vibrate to try to uh, attract predators. And this is a way to coerce the female. There's fireflies tell false stories by blinking their lights um, in a certain pattern to trick males. And then the females just eat them. There's all kinds of fake story, fake news happens in the wild animal kingdom too. <laughs> yeah, of course, the most famous one is the wolf who cried boy. Let us now go to, sorry, I just, uh, <laughs> keep, I keep throwing them out there and let's go to a friend of our show. If you're a teacher, you are royalty on the David Feldman show. Let us go to Professor Hare. Hello, Professor Hare. Hi, Professor Feldman. I'm not a professor. I should mention that Professor Hare got here first. Professor Tortoise <laughs> oh, was too slow. Wow. I hate myself. What is your so, question for Dr. Jennifer Vertel and Dr. Professor Hare? I believe Vertel Professor Hare is a philosophy professor. <laughs> is that correct? I had a question. Yes, that's right. Um, I had a question about foxes. Um, okay. I've always been interested in foxes, and there's an account I follow on Instagram of a woman. I think she rehabs them, um, but it looks like she's living with three foxes and a dog. Okay. And from what I understand, foxes cannot be house trained. Um, and so if these foxes are spraying the place all the time, I'm sure she's gotten used to it if she's, you know, chosen this as her life. But what must the dog think of all that? <laughs> I don't know. So that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, thank you. Yeah. Great, great question. Um, and, um, I, I don't really know how to answer that. I, I'm not necessarily a fan of, of someone that tries to have wild animals um, in the home. I don't know if she had them from when they were young and, and at what point the dog came into the picture. Um, you know, but <clears throat> dogs certainly can get along with many other species. Uh, and uh, I I mean, I, I really I have no idea uh, what the dog thinks of of the, the fox smell and how anybody would want to live with mm, that anyway. So I'm going to chalk it up to, I'm surprised the dog hasn't started peeing in the house then. Right. That, you know, like, oh, the, the, why are the rules different for me and, and the fox? Uh, you know, so, so I don't, I really, unfortunately, that one I'm not, I'm not sure how to answer. Well, it just so happens, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, we have a fox. I'm told we have an actual fox with us. Is that fox? Are you here? Yeah, I'm here, David. You don't sound like a fox. Why was I told you're a fox? 
Uh, that's just my last name. Oh, <laughs> sorry. What's your que- What's your question, Doctor Jen? Uh, in yeah. the midst of yeah, in the midst of this pandemic, I've seen very little news coverage about how the cause of this event is probably due to the way humans interact with animals and their habitats. So my question is, going forward, do you think we'll see any discernible change in the way humans treat animals and their habitats, or will we immediately go back to being as destructive as we've always been? Oh, gosh, yeah, this is where, you know, I, I might be a, a pessimistic pig, um, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, it's a great question. It's, I absolutely, you know, we've been sounding the alarm in terms of we, meaning scientists, wildlife biologists, uh, virologists, epidemiologists, that, um, you know, the, the more contact we have with wild animals. And incidentally, even in our industrial farming, we've given rise to infectious diseases that have spread to humans, uh, swine flu, you know, avian flu. All of these things are a result of, of the way that we treat other species, whether you want to say a, a wet market, uh, you know, deforestation or industrial food production. So do I think that collectively the world will decide to interact differently with other species, habitats, um, and, 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 and that will lead to a better outcome? Sadly, I'm going to have to say no. I, hmm. I really don't think that. I think many of us might. And, and, and I'm not sure that it's any different than the proportion that already was wanting to see a different relationship happen uh, between ourselves and, you know, the environment and the animals that live in it. So, but I don't know. I mean, you know, I don't want to be so pessimistic, but, but I think that, that that requires such an enormous shift You know, I mean, I was listening to uh, Governor Cuomo of New York saying, you know, it's 56 days and we realize it's a lot. But, you know, when you think about past hardships and how long they lasted and how resilient people needed to be for such a really long time, I think my my concern is that, you know, are we willing to have a different way of living? Are we willing to, you know, think about everything that we do and how it impacts each other? If we can't even think about how we, we take care of each other, I don't see how we extend that out, you know, sort of globally and, and in, in, the, in the environment. It almost feels as though, I was talking to a friend about this, again, not to discount the, the suffering that is going on, and it is legion. I mean, it's just terrible, terrible, terrible. That being said, when you look at how the planet, I, I heard their swans are coming back to the canals in Venice. When you see, that's a joke, uh, but, but that this has to be a time for us to think somebody, some force looked at the planet and said, like Chef Gordon Ramsay, shut it down. Shut this down. You know, we can't go another year like this. So uh, anyway, uh, let's go to Anna. Hi, Anna. Where are you Zooming from? Or uh, telef- Denver, Colorado. Denver, Colorado. Hi, Anna. Thank you. What is your question for Dr. Jennifer Vertolin? And by the way, everybody should go to 
Dr. Jennifer Verdelin's website, jenniferverdelin.com. Sign up for her newsletter and follow her on Twitter at Real Dr. Jen. As you can tell, she is very, very generous with her time and <laughs> will answer your questions. Go ahead, Anna. So we just moved, we moved um, in the last year and we had an unfortunate mouse, mice incident when we moved in. And my cat is 13. He's a Siamese. Um, and he's probably never seen a mouse before, even though he was born on a farm. Um, but he was not interested. He did not help with the mice at all. And it was pretty gross. <laughs> we were, I thought that I really wanted him to kill the mice, but... Um, it would have been nice if he had helped a little with helping spread them. Are they in his keep, maybe? What? What did you <laughs> say? Earn his keep. Yeah, exactly. He was not helpful at all. And um, even when we had, like, the little clear, like, humane mice traps, you can catch them and then put them away somewhere else. Sure. He, he would see them, and he wasn't, he didn't even care. And I, I don't know, is that something that, so they have to be kind of trained like barn cats to, um want to yeah. chase mice, or is that it's not like a genetic thing at all? <laughs> I'm particularly interested in this question because I have a, I think it's one mouse in this apartment. <laughs> and uh, so I would like to, I, and I don't want, anyway, so yeah, what's okay. this, can you yeah, train so, a cat to hunt mice? Well, so Anna, so again, I, I always revert back to this sort of personality thing, right? There's, there's big differences in, in curiosity level and interest and, and focus of, of uh, even within a species. So we do have a narrative, right, that and, – and many cats do, in fact, hunt, you know, birds and kill – are responsible for the elimination of many species of songbirds um, and lizards. You know, some don't go after birds. They like lizards. And, and so these sort of uh, personal preferences of, of uh, you know, interest – is really uh, personality dependent. So Senor Buttons is really a fan of insects, like, uh, you know, Daddy Longlegs. Uh, he used to find them when I lived in New York. He'd find where they were, and, and he'd visit with them. He didn't kill them. He would, like, you know, hit his paw up and down, make them bounce up and down. They'd run over his, you know, legs, and, and then he'd, you know, give a little play call. Um, and, and, and he is responsible for identifying, but not doing anything about the scorpion that I had in my house. Um, you know, he was like, I think you should pay attention to this thing. And, you know, there was a snake yesterday at my door, uh, a little king snake, uh, a young one. Um, and, and I didn't want him to come inside because I knew Buttons would, would try to just stick his nose super close and, 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 not catch it or kill it, but was curious about small things. Uh, so I think that we, we have a narrative that, that cats all, you know, some are just indifferent to all kinds of things. So that's, um, you know, I would say that I'm sorry that he wasn't on board with helping you with your mouse problem. Uh, but now you've learned that if you wanted to have a pet mouse, it probably could survive quite well in your house. Okay. Great. Great question. I have a lot of questions to uh, ask about mice, so you're going to have to come back because there's a... I hope it's just one, but let's go to Mr. Hutchinson. Where are you Zooming from, Mr. Hutchinson? Uh, from from London and uh, in the UK, uh, David. Um, good to uh, be on the call with uh, Dr. Verdelin, too. Thank uh, you. Oh, thank you. 
Yes. Um, I, I'm interested in the, the food system and uh, just wanted to um, ask if you had any um, idea of really uh, well-run sort of husbandry operations as far as being quite close to the natural sort of system. I, I had a, I'm a wine merchant, so I had a, um, uh, an article in a wine magazine and, and a guy was visiting a uh, foie gras producer in Gascony. And um, the guy had the the farmer, a French guy, had said to the, the journalist, "Hey, just just be quiet. You know, you're too loud. You're too noisy. Can you just be quiet?" And there was a, a flock of geese or something like that flying over, and they sort of were circling around and landing them. And he was, you know, it's all it's all very sort of um, natural and very close to it. But I'm I'm interested because I you know I like the idea of veganism, but I just accept that a lot of people aren't going to become that, but how can we, you know, what kind of food systems are out there that you think could really right. um, add that to it? Yeah, so, great so I think... Thank you. Yeah, this is a great question, and I think that there are a few um, types of, of farms that are really sort of creating a, a holistic ecosystem from, you know, planting certain crops uh, that work to naturally control uh, pests that also re- eliminate the need for uh, pesticides or, or nutri- uh, fertilizer addition. Um, and, and the problem is that those things are really great at a small scale, right? They don't scale up. And, and so I think collectively, if, if people weren't committed to, I need to have all these things three times a day, um, and and we also had a system where it costs more to produce that, right? Because you get less volume, and so a lot of those. Um, I know of a few farms uh, that you could say are humane in all these areas. They have a. They basically understand the ecological relationships of the different parts, and they create that in a system. It's sort of a system wide. Uh, you know, approach to food production that contemplates water flow, nutrient flow, um, you know, the relationships and in, in, in what we think of as food webs, right? So the chickens processing the insects, the, the you know, uh, grazing cattle in a certain way. Uh, and, and then the final piece is many of those, they do not, so if that all happens, but you still send your animals to a slaughterhouse, that's a problem in terms of humane, humanity, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, so, so some, there's a few places that kill the animals on site. And why does this matter? Well, I mean, you know, the thing is that, the reason why so many people continue to eat meat is because they don't bear witness to the animals being killed. So I think if you're going to eat meat, you get you you should go and you exactly, know, yeah. or even yeah. know what fragua is. What is, we we have to wrap it up. We have one more. Uh, I just want to. I'm interrupting you because this has been a tremendous success. We got to everybody's questions. I'm going to lower all the hands. And I agree about foie, foie gras. I, I I don't think that specifically raising species for what is fragua very quickly what what is it i actually i think it's something like pate of of some part but how do they make it what do they do that i don't know i i I don't eat those things but they shove food into a goose till they give it liver disease and anyway let's i i'm gonna 
be a taskmaster here. We have a question from Nancy and Brad. But first, I launched a poll because you were very generous with your time. And to thank you, I launched a poll of the (laughs) attendees. And I don't know if you can see the poll, but it's still in progress. 82% of the people here have voted. The question is, dogs are better than cats, and Dr. Jennifer Vertling is wrong. True or false, 82% of the attendees have voted. Uh, let me repeat the question. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Verdelin is wrong. Dogs are better than cats. True or false, 82% of the attendees have voted. I will give the results after you answer. Well, Brad's question about species banishing an individual from the group. And oh, yeah. We've already, we, we touched on that earlier, so we'll pass on that and end with Nancy's question. Uh, Pete has a question. I don't, well, let's see how we do. Nancy asks, is it cruel to let poodles hunt chipmunks in the backyard since they rarely catch one? <laughs> well, and I, I typed an answer there uh, briefly saying, you know, even if you don't catch it, you're creating a tremendous amount of stress because for the chipmunk's perspective, it's it's escaping from a predator. And the thing to realize for other animals that may not be the case for us or most of us or those of us who are privileged enough, we're not on the edge of, of this balance between, you know, uh, feeding and, and doing other things. So there's a big trade-off for every other animal and the amount of time you have to be able to watch for predators and the amount of time you have to eat. It is basically the more time you have to look out for things, the less time you have to eat. Great. Not to mention the stress response. So I am not a fan of sort of, oh, look at them, cat, they'll go after it because it's stressful for the recipient. It's sort of like, what if somebody had a lion and it was like, don't worry, he's not going to catch you. Uh, you know, you just got to run around. It's I'm bad habits. Sure. It's bad habits. It's, yeah, it's, it's not right. It's not the, the best way to interact. Okay, we're, we're, we're doing great. Pete, let's go to Pete. You got to keep your question really short. Okay, buddy? Pete, are you there? Okay. Where, are you, where are you zooming yeah. from, mm-hmm. Pete? Seminole, California. Okay, what's your question? Mm-hmm. Okay, um, there was a pug in the news named Winston who was uh, found to have the COVID-19. And my question is, how could that be possible? How could it, how come dogs are getting tested when most people are not able to be tested? That's a great question. Uh, and Dr. Jennifer Verdeland answered this last week about the tiger in uh, the Bronx, uh, Bronx Zoo. Yeah. Is that the same test? Like you, you are not. Um, they're not using the same test that is is for people on animals. Uh, so uh, there's a different a different uh, way to do it. And and just to, I'm so glad you asked this question, Pete, because it brings up a couple of things. One that you know, pet animals or zoo animals are not stealing tests from people. Um, you know, uh, that the, there, there's a different, different test that's used and different reagents and different, you know, so that it's not a competition and, and that our testing problems are not because of pets. <laughs> it's because of a lack of leadership at all levels of government uh, that are creating this problem for us. 
independent of that becomes the issue of did the town test positive? So I want to be clear that, again, um, they detected the presence of the virus in nasal samples of the pug. Um, whether the pug actually had any symptoms, I think there was a, the article said the owners were like, well, he coughed for like a day. That's a pug. That- <laughs> Pugs are pretty poor breathers and yeah. the most silent ones. But people, so, so the pug didn't infect anyone in the family. Again, it, there were family members who were positive. Dogs, unlike cats, do love, if you allow them to, will lick your mouth, your nose, you know, surfaces. I mean, Senor Buttons licks himself. He doesn't lick the floor. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't lick stuff, uh, which is a big difference in behavior between cats and dogs. You know what I used to say about my dog? We would look at my dog licking himself, and I used to say, if I could lick my dog the way he licks himself, I wouldn't leave the house. Yeah, right. If I, so, if that's the, do you get that? It's a joke. If I could lick my dog the way he licks himself, I wouldn't. Because everybody says if I, see, because it's a joke about, so I want to lick, the joke is I want to lick my dog. I'm, yeah. as opposed to licking myself. Last question. I, I, thank, great questions. Everybody had great questions. We had one of our listeners who couldn't be here. Wanted to wanted to know along this line, what are the symptoms of of a dog or a pet who might have COVID nineteen? Are they similar? You kind of touched on this, but well, so, so what we know from from some studies that have been done is that dogs or uh, pigs, ducks, and and a few other animals, when challenged, do not seem terribly susceptible to becoming sick. They can contain in their nose and other things live particles of the virus, infectious particles of the virus. But this is surface transmission, no different than I sneeze or cough on my keyboard, and now my keyboard, for some amount of time, uh, if I keep sneezing on it without, you know, then we'll continue to have potentially infectious particles. Right. So, but the difference is that cats... Are more cats and ferrets are more susceptible to coronaviruses in general. Great. So regardless of type, in general, but in this particular with this particular coronavirus, some small number. There was two cats in New York that have tested positive. Um, they you know and they can be asymptomatic. Uh, so, so, so that's one thing. And the cat in Belgium, it had a cough. Um, the tiger had a cough, but again, it was one out of uh, six or eight that. And were they tested. were healthcare workers, as I understand. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to wrap. I'm sorry. Okay, I, just, I just need to finish that okay. thread. That that you know the the majority of the cats in the zoo, the big cats were asymptomatic, and it was because of the one that has, it was coughing and and. Uh, seemed a bit unwell that they did the test and they discovered that it was an asymptomatic keeper that had actually infected the cats. Mm-hmm. So, so there's still good news for cats in the sense that, you know, they're not vectors. They don't transmit the disease. Neither do the pugs. However, if a pug has active virus in its nose and mouth, and, and starts licking somebody's face that does not have, we don't know yet if it could 
but it wouldn't be any different than you lick your keyboard. Uh, right. I, uh, presumably, it depends on exposure volume. We don't know how many you need, how many they right. have. So people should not be afraid of their pets. They should be abundance of caution, staying away from other people's pets. Right. Period. Oh, and and we should look into how keyboard cat passed away. Well. We're going to end. Let me just say that there's a poll. It's coming to an end. Uh, 31 people have voted yet. 89% of you have voted. The question is, dogs are better than cats, and Dr. Jennifer Vertolin is wrong. True or false? I will have the results of this poll. I'm going to end it in exactly 45 seconds. 89% of you have voted. We'll wrap this up. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin is an animal behaviorist. She teaches at the University of Arizona. She teaches animal conservation. Two books that you should pick up. What Animal Courtship and Mating Tell Us About Human Relationships, authored by Dr. Jennifer Vertolin. Her other book is Raised by Animals, The Surprising New Science of Animal Family Dynamics with Try-at-Home Lessons from the Wild. Your home, you might as well try some of these these lessons. Go to jenniferverdelin.com, sign up for her newsletter. She also has a YouTube channel where you can watch Dr. Jennifer Verdelin and subscribe to her newsletter and follow her over on Twitter at Real Dr. Jen. Thank you so much. This was a tremendous success. You are always fantastic. Every single question that was asked was perfect. I'm, I'm, so proud of the people who showed up and attended and were they were so fantastic uh although uh, i just want to say thank you to all all the people who asked questions like i i love this because you know so many people from so many different backgrounds have such interesting insights and you know and and to the discussions that can be sparked by those questions and the issues that we touch on whether it's silly or serious are are so um you know just really important and interesting and get, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to share the little bit I know well this uh, is this is the one bright bright spot in an otherwise uh horrible dark period in our lives well i'm ending the poll and i you know i was very uh, solicitous of the attendees i thought they were brilliant but these poll results are kind of disappointing, Dr. Vertel, and it makes me question the intelligence of my listeners. I'll ask you to uh, predict what the results are. Dogs are better than cats, and Dr. Jennifer Vertelin is wrong. True or false? Dr. Jennifer Vertelin, what percentage of our attendees say that statement is true, that dogs are better than cats? Well, I think because you didn't give the third option of both are amazing, you know, the results are biased and they're, they're not <laughs> a fair representation, but I'm still going to predict that it's like 63% to yeah, maybe 63% of the people who voted think that I'm wrong about, about cats. Well, you would be pleased to discover that, of the attendees say that statement is false. They think cats are better than dogs. Wait. 44% believe that statement is true. 44% 
of the attendees say dogs are better than cats. 56% say it's false. Now, because I know how to work polls and what I can extrapolate from that 56% is they believe uh, cats are better than dogs, but I didn't give a third option. So, well, and you conflated two things. People can think I'm right, but still think <laughs> dogs are better than cats. Well, thank so. you, Doctor Jennifer Vertolin. I will see you tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern when we conduct office hours. We've expanded the room. There's spaces for everybody for our office hours meeting where listeners get to meet the guests and guests meet. The listeners follow Dr. Jennifer Vertolin on Twitter at Real Dr. Jen. Thank you to all the attendees. Please, all of you, stay on the line. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Professor Ben Burgess joins us. He's a columnist for Jacobin, appears on The Michael Brooks Show, and has authored several books, including Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. His latest work is Myth and Mayhem, a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson. He wrote this with, I think, three other big thinkers. We'll find out who they are. And today we will discuss Jordan Peterson, the intellectual dark web. And since we have some of our listeners in attendance via Zoom or phone, we will take audience questions. I should mention that during the pandemic, we've decided to invite listeners to sit in on many of my conversations via Zoom or phone. And if you would like an invite, please go to DavidFeldmanShow.com, hit the office hours menu and sign up. I should also mention that Friday night at 9 Eastern, we're doing our big office hours where listeners can talk to our guests and guests can talk to our listeners. It's a lot of fun. And if you would like to attend, once again, sign up for it on the office hours page of my website. Welcome, Professor Ben Burgess. Thank you. I just want to tell you how generous you are to do this with my listeners. And we we have... I'm sorry? It was a lot of fun last time I said. Yeah, it's incredibly generous, and we have about 22 people in attendance. This is hard work, folks. This is not going to be easy stuff because we're talking about postmodernism, and it's going to be tough. Uh, But so let me ask you some tough questions, if you don't mind. And I see some hands being raised. We'll get to them in a second. But you're on the hot seat, Professor Ben Burgess. The picture of you that was sent out in our invite to listeners features a picture of Professor Ben Burgess with a black kitten on his left shoulder. Professor Ben Burgess, over the past weekend, you tweeted out a picture of a black cat, fully grown, sitting on a stack of books, situated upon your desk. Professor Ben Burgess, yes or no, is that the same cat who was once perched upon your shoulder? As a kitten. Yes, it is. What is the name of that kitten? Shabazz. Shabazz. Okay. Is it true that you have a cat named Schrodinger? 
<laughs> it is not. Oh, okay. Let's uh, get to the the easier stuff now. Tara Reid is a former Joe Biden staffer. She says she was sexually assaulted by the presumptive Democratic nominee, Joe Biden. Stacey Abrams, who narrowly lost the 2018 race for governor of Georgia, is considered a possible vice presidential pick. She was asked this week who she believes, Tara Reid or Joe Biden. And Stacey Abrams says she believes Joe Biden. You're the author of Give Them an Argument Logic for the Left. So you teach logic. Explain the logic of the left. Well, Joe Biden isn't the left, but the logic of a liberal. Democrats say, I believe the woman. Always believe the woman. If Stacey Abrams says she believes Joe Biden, does that mean, does it follow that from now on, we no longer have to believe the woman? Yeah, if uh, if believe women means anything, uh, it should mean that, uh, that you don't start from the assumption that people making these claims are lying, that you should at least need, like, pretty serious reasons to doubt before you start accusing people making these accusations of that. Um, and, and we haven't seen any of those. Uh, since I don't want this answer to drag on forever, I will, I will just uh, say for anyone who wants like the long version of this, uh, I wrote uh, the last uh, piece I wrote for Arc Digital Media uh, is called uh, Tara Reid's Allegation Against Joe Biden is Plausible. And, and I get into all of the reasons that people have given for, for not believing her. And, and You're why. saying that she has more credible a claim against Joe Biden than Dr. Blasey Ford had against Brett Kavanaugh or sim- both yeah. are equal in their claim. Uh, I think if anything, um, I mean, I, I believe Dr. Ford too, but I think, uh, but if anything, I think Tara Reid's story actually has more corroboration. Um, so one difference is that at the time, Dr. Ford, didn't tell anyone, which isn't a reason to think she's lying. Lots of people in that situation don't want to tell anybody. Uh, but uh, there are multiple people who step forward to say that Reed told them at the time, right, what she says happened to her. Um, and, you know, her, her mother called uh, called Larry King at the time uh, to say, you know, my, my daughter has a situation with a senator that – you know, that the media would be very interested in, but she doesn't want to do that. Do you have any ideas what it should do? That call has come out. Uh, there's a friend of hers uh, who who was uh, interviewed on the Katie Halper show uh, who said she was told, you know, she was told at the time. Her brother has said this. Uh, most recently, her neighbor, who's a Biden supporter, uh, has, uh, has said this. And all of the reasons that have been given uh, to, to think, you know, to think that she's... I mean, I think if you look at what Ford said and what Kavanaugh said, I, I, I think I think Ford is extremely plausible, right? I think that, uh, but really, like the things that people have brought up are are just totally absurd. Like as you know, like and, and prominent people like Joe Walsh uh, is the editor of Salon and her her uh, or former editor of Salon, and she wrote an article, The Nation, trying to discredit Reid. Uh, Michelle Goldberg at the New York Times, Amanda Marcotte, right, at Salon. They've described uh, her as a crazy Putin devotee. Yeah, and, yeah and, absolutely. And, and, that's, and she may uh, have gone crazy because she was sexually assaulted by a United States senator. Right, it, right. I mean, that can't be good. But also, but also, I mean, none of all of these things are ridiculous. Uh, 
So uh, they say she changed her story. She didn't. Uh, she she didn't she didn't go public with the most explosive part of her story uh, until very recently. But that's very different from changing your story. That's not an inconsistency. Uh, they bring up uh, her her history of saying positive things about Vladimir Putin, and the two quick points I'd make about that were a. Um, what she said about Putin is actually slightly less embarrassing than what George W. Bush said about Putin. Uh, <laughs> looking into his heart and seeing yeah, a Christian. He looked, he looked into his eyes and he got the sense of his soul and he knew he was a trustworthy man. <laughs> uh, you know, she didn't go that far. Uh, and the fact is, like, whatever weird gangsterish charisma Vladimir Putin has, uh, lots of lots of Westerners more prominent than, than a former Biden staffer have, have fallen for it to one degree or another, right? That, right. That's, and, and the second and most important point is that's nothing to do with anything, right? Like, what, what she, like, are we really going to make a practice of deciding whether or not we believe uh, victims of alleged sexual assault based on seeing if we agree with their foreign policy views? Okay, so and, let me, we have, a, we, we have a lot, we have 22 attendees, yeah, yeah. I don't want to be a pig, uh, and we have some hands raised. I want to ask you about Tara Reid, though. At yeah. what point in the development of our culture do women have enough agency that we have to deploy a statute of limitations? We've reversed the statute of limitations on child molestation, I believe. But at some point, you can't win the Anita Hill-Clarence Thomas fight. You can't win the the Brett Kavanaugh, Dr. Blasey Ford fight. And you're not going to be able to, I you know, I believe uh, Tara Reid, but you're not yeah. going to win this argument. It's we. This is the old he said, she said. Elizabeth Warren says Bernie told her that a woman can't get elected president. We can fight it out, but in the end, that doesn't help the country. And at what point in our development do we have to say if... You didn't report it to the police. Uh-huh. Uh, well, women can't report. The police don't care. So that, yeah. Well, I would also point out that uh, now she actually has filed a police report, which is significant only in one way, right? Like, I mean, most likely nothing's going to happen with it one way or the other, right? Right. But it's significant in the sense that if some piece of evidence came out that decisively showed that she was not telling the truth... Um, then she would actually, at this point, be legally vulnerable for filing a, a false report. Uh, but look, as far as the statute of limitation goes, nobody is saying, as far as I know, right, um, that based on the evidence that's, that's been presented, right, that um, that Joe Biden should be, like, imprisoned for this. Right. Uh, th- that's not the question, right? Like, if, if we were in a court of law, we would say, okay, you can't, you know, you can't decide that he's guilty until you've had evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, and that's absolutely what the standard should be, and I'm not claiming that that's been met by the he said, she said. What I am saying is because we're not jurors in a criminal trial, we're just private citizens trying to muddle through and figure out what's probably true, then, it's, it, then on the basis of the evidence that's been presented, I think it's more probable than not uh, that she's telling the truth. I'm not making any kind of claims at all about whether – you know, like political strategy, right? Whether like, for you know, um, okay. You know, let me let me. You know, I, 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 I'm just making a narrow claim. If a woman uh, came forward and accused yeah. Bernie of the same yeah. thing, 
if a woman came came forward and accused Bernie of the same thing, then uh, then one, I'd say a relevant difference between the cases is that there isn't a uh, parade of, of instances of both much more mild, right, but still real, um, you know, sexual you know, misconduct, you know, with, with Bernie as there is with Biden. There's this right? woman, Flores, who you write about, the politician. Yeah, uh, that and, seems... And, uh, Caruso, right? That's, there, there are, there what are, is her name? Um, the, the last name, I, if I'm remembering Flores. right... No, Lucy Flores is one of them, but I also mentioned a woman, I believe her name is Caitlin Caruso, if I remember right, I might have my wires crossed. Um, but, okay, and, and and there there are pictures of Joe Biden in plain sight, sniffing women's hair, so, giving so, them so, unwanted well, attention. Not, not, not which, none of which means he definitely did this, but it does, you know, you could be a creep without being a racist, a rapist, right? But... Uh, it does lend some extra credibility. In Bernie's case, we don't have that history. But if somebody did accuse Bernie of it, and um, then after that happened, um, you know, we had, you know, we had something like the Larry King call come out. We had former neighbors of this person who were Bernie supporters mm-hmm. uh, saying, "Actually, yeah, I do remember hearing about that at the time." Right. Then I'd say we should also take it much more seriously. Then a lot of Democratic partisans in the media are taking the. Okay, so to keep this moving, if. A final point about this I don't even think there's any particular political advantage, right, for for the left here, right? Like, let's say this thing keeps snowballing to the point where Biden, like, steps aside. That's not going to mean it's Bernie, right? It's going to mean it's some other feckless, terrible centrist like Cuomo, right? You know, that. uh, So it's it's not even about that, right? It's, It's just about being being consistent about taking this accusation seriously. How do you take it seriously? If so, then what? If so, then what? What do you do? Well, well, I think a good start would be not writing articles uh, where, where you call her a liar on the basis of, uh, of her having uh, bad foreign policy views or not having said it right away or anything like that. Right. I mean, like if, if, you know, I mean, whatever you decide to do with the information, right? Like that's a that's a further that's a further question, and you know maybe there is nothing to do uh, except maybe you know convince him that he can't be the uh, the nominee. But you know I'm not in a position to do that, right? And you you're know? calling into question the entire premise of the Democratic leadership because he was vetted by Saint Obama in 2008. Are there any skeletons in your closet, Joe? Speak now or forever hold your peace. This calls into question Obama's judgment, and it brings back memories of Bill Clinton and Hillary. So there's this isn't going to change. So my question to you before we move on is, Professor Harvey J.K. says he is voting for Joe Biden. Professor Ben Burgess, you are a self-identified Bernie bro. Yes. Will you vote for Joe Biden? Yes or no? Yes. Don't wait for the translation. Yes or no? Yes. You will vote for Joe Biden. Yeah, well, I mean, if if Joe Biden is still the nominee, right, like I said, I think it would be very smart for the Democratic Party to push for him to step aside, uh, even if it's just somebody, some other person okay. I also politically will like FOMO. But if he's still the nominee, then yeah, because... Because uh, Biden, sorry, because uh, Donald Trump won my state 
by a shockingly narrow margin in 2016, so my vote might actually matter. Where are you voting, in Georgia or Michigan? Yeah. Uh, in, uh, in Georgia, uh, both of those actually won by very narrow margins. But right. Georgia, for being, for being a historically red state, you won by very narrow margins, like less than 50.5%. Granted, Gary Johnson got like 3%, but whatever. Right. Uh, so, so that is close enough that I'm willing to hold my nose and vote for him. Uh, because my position is, look, if you live in New York, do whatever the hell you want at the top of the ballot. It could not possibly matter less. Um, you know, I think Trump has about as much chance of, of winning New York as, as the Green Party does. Um, but if you live in a seriously contested state, I think you could say Joe Biden is both personally despicable and politically, you know, an enemy is the things that I care about. Um, and, but also... You can make tactical and strategic choices about which kind of enemy you want to be fighting, about which kind of issues, right? I, I don't. I think that if, I think that if Trump is reelected, you know, he's going to do things like continue to appoint people to the National Labor Relations Board and the courts, who are going to aggressively push to get rid of what's left of collective bargaining. I don't think you know Biden is going to do that. He's going to do a lot of other things. I hate, right? But he's right. not going to do that. And so I think that, like, rather than fighting this kind of defensive battle against this resurgent right-wing aggressive administration, um, if if we could fight a different kind of battle against this kind of decaying neoliberal status quo, I think that's a better terrain for the left to fight on. So, so yeah, I mean, I, despite everything, I'll I'll, I'll vote for him if I have to. If, and you uh, are a Marxist, is that correct, sir? Yeah. That's right. You are a Marxist who will vote for Joe Biden. Yeah, yeah, not uh, not in a primary, and not if we had like a more democratic electoral system where we could do, you know, uh, where we had runoffs or something. Mm-hmm. But given the how many homes, how many homes do you own? Oh, I've lost track. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's turn to your new book, Myth and Mayhem. Zero, zero is actually how many things I but go on. Okay, are you going on a rent strike? Uh, if there was an organized rent strike in my in my complex, I, I would I would feel duty about to participate. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to individually, you know, stop paying rent to get evicted. Okay, and you did you just said duty bound? You said duty. Is that correct? I did say duty. You did yes. say duty. Okay. Let's turn to your new book, Myth and Mayhem, a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson. We have some questions, and I want to turn to Henry and Todd, and I want everybody who attended to get to ask you questions. But before we do, let's make sure we understand some terms, because Jordan Peterson is, I know you don't think he's an intellectual. I think you think he's a fraud, but it's heavy stuff. This is difficult stuff. Very quickly, tell us what modernity means, what postmodern neo-Marxist means, and what cultural Marxism means, because that seems to be what Jordan Peterson is railing against. So before we can have this discussion and get to the questions, what does modernity mean? Uh, So it means different things in different contexts, but as far as the contrast between modern and postmodern goes, um, one of, at least part of what it means has to do with, with, a, with you know, belief in, in progress um, 
and and certain kinds of of, of historical narratives that are associated with the, the modern era and all the progress that seems to be going on. Uh, and uh, post modern was did the modern era start like a hundred years ago? No, uh, like well, hmm. so when it comes to like philosophy, people tend to to talk about, you know, when they say modern philosophy, right, they're like early modern period is like Descartes, so it's like the 1600s. Okay. Uh, but, I think, but I think in general, like broadly, historically, like I think stuff like, uh, you know, the Enlightenment, um, the, uh, the, the sort of, the rev- you know, things like the French Revolution, things like that. That's what modernism, of- because in I mean, literature, modernism is more of an early 20th century yeah, uh, and, and these are all fuzzy overlapping okay. terms. But as far as but as far as post postmodernism goes, um, that uh, you know when um, you know when people talk about postmodernism in, in this context, at least like the word means a lot of different things. You talk about like postmodern literature and postmodern architecture. Right. Okay, uh, but people are primarily talking about these like these like late twentieth century like French thinkers like Foucault and Derrida. Um, and and the important point here is that these guys are actually uh, fierce critics of Marxism, right? You know that Marxism is exactly the kind of grand historical narrative about progress and everything that they want to complicate the question. Uh, and uh, Derrida wrote a book about Marx, but in the book he says that like Marxism is like mostly like irrelevant now, but like maybe there's something about the critical spirit that you can recover, right? That's right. what he says in the book uh, when. Um, when, when Peterson talks about postmodern Marxism, he's really conflating three things, which he's... All right, I'm going to interrupt you because this is really hard stuff for my listeners. They, this isn't the Michael Brooks show where you have the smartest people in the world tuning in. Not that my listeners aren't smart, but Michael gets, you know, Jordan Peterson is a darling of the, the right. He is against the PC culture. He is against Marxism. He's a psychologist, Harvard trained from Canada, and he is being used by the right as a cudgel against the left and the politically correct movement. We'll get to all that just so we could set the stage. Uh, let's go to Henry, who I believe comes to us from Michigan, Ben Burgess country. Hello, Henry. That's true, but I'm in the Upper Peninsula, so quite a ways away from Flint. Okay, so like, uh, so so like Marquette, or where are you? Western end, Iron Mountains. Oh, okay, all right. And Henry also spends a lot of time in Germany. What is your question for Doctor Ben Burgess? And by the way, I had it, you recommended Harriet Fraud to me, didn't you, Henry? Yes, I did. She's on a Tuesday show. Thanks to you. Go yeah, ahead. and she was fantastic as usual. Thank you. Uh, so, Professor, mm-hmm. I'm going to give a short summary of the question and then a, a little bit longer to tease out specifically why this ties into Jordan Peterson. So, in terms of arguments, as mm-hmm. the author of Give Them an Argument, how do you argue with somebody who's just flat out lying uh, to an audience that isn't necessarily aware of the fact that they're lying? And, and I bring this question up because of Jordan Peterson and it's in your new piece in Jacobin um, about Jordan Peterson, about how 
it's human nature to have hierarchy or animal nature to have hierarchy. He brings up the point of lobsters. We know that that's not true. For example, um, 90% of human history was without hierarchies. The anthropologist Richard Lee said in his, in his piece, um, Reflections on Primitive Communism, which looks at the, the Engels point on primitive communism, quote, before the rise of the state and the entrenchment of social inequality, people lived for millennia in small-scale, kin-based social groups in which the core institutions of economic life included collective or common ownership of lands and resources, generalized reciprocity in the distribution of food, and relatively egalitarian political relations. It wasn't really until we started having mass agriculture, which allowed for the accumulation of capital by a small group of people, that we saw a hierarchy in society. Now, in your piece, in Jacobin, you you brought up a way to rhetorically argue against his his ahistorical reasoning, um, saying that you could argue against somebody saying that we shouldn't try to challenge class hierarchy because it's um, human nature by saying, are you a slave? Don't blame your suffering on slavery because it's, cla- uh, it's, it's human nature to have this hierarchy. But how do you argue against somebody that's just lying to an audience that doesn't necessarily know that going in? That's a great question. And for my listeners at home, I, d- I just want to explain that Dr. Jordan Peterson is a defender of capitalism and he says that hierarchies within capitalism are natural and you can study the lobster, uh, our closest analog to humans, he insists, and that even lobsters have hierarchies, therefore it's natural and you shouldn't question the hierarchies, therefore within a capitalist system. Ben Burgess, how do you argue with a liar? Uh well, you could do you could do two things, right? And so one is, of course, you can you can point out why what they're saying is false or misleading, and obviously you have to do that. Like that's that's inevitably part of it, right? Often it's the most frustrating part of it because um, uh, people, you know, lots of times people are very well trained to dismiss any factual claim that comes from somebody they don't like, right? So so often. Sometimes that'll plant a seed and people start looking things up for themselves. They'll realize that, you know, that what this person is saying is wrong, but often they won't. Uh, but another thing you can do is, um, is you can, in fact, I think this is often really useful because when people are making false factual claims, it's often really easy to get sucked into the weeds of spending all of your time, like, arguing about whether their premise is true when actually oftentimes it would be really useful to kind of take a step back and say, okay, even if you were right about this, right, what would follow, right? Like if you were completely right uh, when you make these claims, right, what would, you know, what would then be true? Uh, And I think oftentimes that can be more effective because even if people aren't sure what to believe about the premise, sometimes they'll be able to see why the conclusion uh, doesn't really follow from it. So in the case of Jordan Peterson, um, and yeah, he, he makes the claim that, um, that, you know, because lobsters diverged from us evolutionarily so long ago, and even they have these hierarchical social arrangements, they'll sort of say these sarcastic things like, I don't suppose you're going to blame the lobster hierarchies on capitalism or the West or, you know, whatever. Um, so therefore, the implication is we should we should we shouldn't try to mess with human hierarchies, um, 
because um, because they're too they're too ingrained in our nature. And so you can get you know you can spend all of your time arguing about just how ingrained they are in our nature, or you could point out two things: one, that uh, that the term is incredibly vague, right? What's a hierarchy, right? That like if because after all, even if you listen carefully to Peterson, he'll talk about different kinds of hierarchies, different times, hierarchies and status versus hierarchies and power and dominance versus hierarchies and distribution of you know, you know, goods. Really, it just means any kind of social arrangement that's unequal in any way. And if you're vague enough about that, then sure, everything's hierarchy, right? You know that like you could you could find examples everywhere. Uh, human and non-human, but the important thing is whatever is true about our nature, we, we already know just from looking at human history, and we don't have to go all the way back to um, to tribal societies that you know that may have, have had you know com- you know where uh, most of the uh, resources that they had were held as commons, uh, and like argue about okay, is there some respect in which those societies were hierarchical? Whatever you can even just look at. You know that modern period, those last few hundred years, uh, and said, "Look, there are any number of hierarchical arrangements that we have successfully abolished, and uh, and we all seem to be better off for having for having abolished them. That we that we already know that in certain respects we've been able to create a society that's that's fairer and less hierarchical than what came before the abolition of slavery." The view from feudalism to capitalism; those are both the obvious. Okay, so I'm going to interrupt because we have people uh, oh, well, waiting. Go ahead. I just want to just a final, yes. just a final yes, on that. Right? And we know that we can reorganize workplaces to be less hierarchical because we can actually point to workers' cooperatives that already exist and do just fine. So, uh, so it's it's so obviously if you're inferring. Oh, we have certain tendencies, evolutionary, whatever, allegedly towards hierarchy. Therefore, we can't do this. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't matter what's true about the premise. We know the conclusion doesn't follow because we could just directly see whether it's true. Right, Henry. What I'm going to do if you, uh, other people are waiting, so if you have another question, no, nope, that's it. Okay, thank you. It was a great question. Let's go to Todd. Hey, Todd, where are you uh, zooming from? Hi, David. Yeah, right here. Hi, Professor Bren. I'm uh, from Tucson, Arizona for now, (laughs) and just sheltering in place for the time being. And um, I can't follow up Henry's question. That was a great question. And I did not read the article about Jordan Peterson, so I apologize, but I'll get to that tonight, obviously. Um, But I was just wondering, is there a union or an association that represents the professors or instructors as part of the Georgia State University system, and um, if not, um, yeah. and if not, uh, in realizing the challenges of uh, Georgia being that right to work state, has there ever been a desire or a need on yours or your colleagues' part to organize? Yeah, I have. Great I've, question. I've Thank you. Since, I've been here since August. Uh, that's that's when I that's when I moved to Georgia, um, which actually I just found out last night, by the way, that. Um, that I really got out of the dick of time because I was a uh, adjunct at Rutgers for years. And I, I just found out last night that like all of the adjuncts in uh, my department at Rutgers were, were let go because of the, uh, uh, because of the budget cuts, you know, because of the pandemic and everything that's done to the university. Uh, but what would Jordan I, Peterson say? 
I'm being serious. Jordan Jordan Peterson would say no, right? You shouldn't. You should, uh, instead of organizing a union, you should, uh, you know, sit up straight with your, you know, with your back up and clean your room. And you should, you know, you should, you should like try to, try to rise within the ranks, become an administrator or something, right? That would be, that would be his advice because he's somebody who, who celebrates uh, markets and he's somebody who, uh, who his whole thing is about self-help, which is fine, right? I'm not against self-help, but it's, it's self-help that's all linked to this very specific ideology about uh, meritocracy um, and about uh, and about how you know the only like justice for Jordan Peterson just is equality of opportunity. As long as everybody's got a chance to rise through the ranks, that's all you need. Right? And, so, and he is part of the intellectual dark web. We're going to get to is about right, how to rise through the ranks, not about how to change the system. In fact, he thinks that's innovation. But yes, he's part. Of he makes his program. money out of the system by becoming a celebrity. As right. the, as do the other members of the intellectual dark web. They're not famous because they're great teachers. No, no. I mean, apparently he is a very like Peterson is apparently a very charismatic, you know, professor, uh, which doesn't surprise me, right? But uh, but he also, um, you know, he's also like that's probably at this point, if I had to guess, right? Even even though he has a tenure position at a, you know very desirable place, the University of Toronto. If I had to guess, that's probably not most of his income at this point. Probably at this point, most of his income is, uh, you know, people uh, people who send him, you know, donations, the sort of self-authorship courses he does online, the, uh, the, you know, the fact that he wrote this global bestseller, 12 Rules for Life. Right. Speaking uh, to Todd's question, then we'll get to Kevin. In, in academia, yeah. they're looking for famous professors, people who are draws, who may not necessarily be good teachers. There's a difference between being a professor who teaches and a professor who puts on a show and gets published a lot. Is that a fair statement? Uh, it is, and it depends what kind of institution, like so, like uh, some of them, like like places like where, where, where I teach right now, right? It's very much a teaching-focused uh, place, you know, it, uh the perimeter college part of Georgia state. Um, so they don't care. They do a little bit, right. But they don't care that much about, about research. Uh, teaching schedule is also pretty brutal, but, uh, but, uh, but yeah, there are, but certainly once you get to people who have tenured or tenure track positions at prestigious universities, like the, you know, like the university of Toronto, uh, there, you know, there is a lot of, um, there is a lot of truth to that. I mean, that's actually kind of a funny thing about academia because at least for people who have like those kinds of more research heavy jobs, right. Those kinds of institutions, uh, we don't separate those things and maybe we should, right. That like, you know, that like instead of some people just, you know, being compensated to produce research and some people uh, teaching, uh, we, you know, those things are jammed together, which, which, you know, and it's, it's generally actually, I, I don't want to get off into the whole thing about this. So last comment on this, right. Yeah. It's just generally, I've always thought it was kind of funny that if you want to, uh, to teach like a high school, if you want to teach high school, then you have to take literally years of education classes 
and uh, go through this period of student-teacher, you know, all these stages, right? You have to get a degree specifically in education, uh, whereas when you're a grad student in anything else, you're about to start teaching, they give you like a maybe like a one-day orientation where they give you a few tips. Right. So, uh, the, so I mean, like, I, I, I've often wondered whether, like, I mean, so, like, whether, like, in a more reasonable system, you know, like, you'd have to go through a lot more teaching to get in front of, uh, a lot more training to get in front of a college classroom. Right. Teaching is, in some religions, my religion, a rabbi is a teacher. That's all you are. You have no, you're not a conduit to God. You're just a teacher because in the Jewish religion, there is no more noble pursuit than teaching. Kevin, what is your question for Rabbi Ben Burgess, who, by the way, Hello, is Ben, <laughs> Hello, ben and David. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Uh, just wanted to ask you, I'm from Toronto here, just wanted to ask you, uh, have you read, question one is, have you read any of Wesley Yang's pieces on Jordan Peterson, which leads me to my second question, that is, is Peterson really as far right as a lot of people on the left have pegged him. I get a sense that he's more of a mixed figure and a lot of the people on the left have kind of. Yeah. I notice he can see, he will concede points. And I don't know if that's to show that he's, you know, an honest interlocutor, but yeah, I, I mean, if you read Yang's pieces, he's kind of a mixed figure. I don't remember the, it's from 2018, but I read it a while ago, but he's kind of, you know, he inspires some people. He, I guess these rules help people. I mean, it, I guess his ideological background leans towards the right, but he's he really part of this far right or have leftists kind of mislabeled him as such. Yeah, let me tag on to this question. That's a great question. Was he at one time a leftist? Yes. Uh, he talks about, uh, I'll, I'll start with the last part of the question. Uh, he talks about this in uh, his book, Maps of Meaning, uh, that he, uh, well, he says that he used to be a, a socialist, uh, that, you know, he was he was part of, you know, says he was part of some sort of um, socialist party, although he's so vague about it that, like, it could be that it was like a radical socialist group. And he he could just be talking about the NDP and being weird about it, right? I, I don't know. A lot of guys say they used to be a lefty yeah. to give themselves street cred for their fascism. So yeah, I, I mean, look, I wouldn't go so far as to say you know call Peterson you know fascist, but he's uh, but he's certainly a. He's certainly very much a critic of the left, right? I don't, I don't think there's any there's any doubt about that. Is he important? Uh, uh, yes, and here's why. Uh, he's he's not important uh, in the sense that um, that I think most of what he has to say, ideal, you know, like like that uh, that he's that oh he's got such an interesting argument. You just got to respond to that, right? I don't think he's important in that sense. I think he's important in a real world sense because uh, he's a tremendously popular uh, and influential figure. Uh, and lots of people who could who could go either way on some of these issues uh, read him and 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 take take him seriously, right? Which means that if you want to, is he important know, because academics have deemed him important, or outside forces trying to influence academia have made him I mean, important? He's important because he has because he has a large popular audience. Right? But that, but like it's, is it in academia? Uh, not mostly, no. 
Okay. Uh, but like, I think I think that the um, but I, I that said right I do wish that more people who are academics took the time to respond to uh, to Peterson to people like Peterson uh, because there are you know because you know there are about a thousand times more people reading uh, reading Peterson or listening to his podcast as there are reading academic papers right so if you have this kind of skill set, you know, as, as far as, you know, dissecting arguments and all of that, I think that, you know, it's good if possible, right? If, if you have this way in you and you have, you know, you have the time and the, the inclination and personality type and everything, right. I think that you should, you should use that for the public good by countering some of this stuff. So, so did you answer Kevin's question? Is he? Uh, partially, partially yeah. right. So, 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 um, so I think that, um, so I, I don't know that I'd say far right exactly because for what because I think I think Peterson's actually pretty um, pretty squirrely about like his precise political position. Uh, there was a rumor that at one point he was actually going to run for some office on the Conservative Party ticket in, in Canada. I don't know if that's true. Uh, his it's certainly true that to the extent that he talks about politics, right? And by the way. I'm sure he does help people in his capacity as a self-help guru. I've never denied that, right? Actually, um, I've, I've always liked uh, Richard Spencer, who is an actual fascist, uh, had what I thought always thought was the funniest tweet about uh, Jordan Peterson, where he said, Peterson started out so promising, but two problems. One, he never really confronted the race issue, and two, he became a lame self-help guru, so I like that he, that like Richard Spencer is one of the most vile people in the world. His critique of Peterson is, oh, I like everything else except for the fact that he's not racist enough and he actually does help people. Uh, but look, uh, you know, I have no quarrel with him, particularly uh, in his capacity as a self help guru or even in his um, even in his capacity as a researcher on, on psychology, right? My quarrel with him is entirely about his forays into philosophy and politics. And when he does make those forays, it's always from a right-wing position. So he said, so he became famous in the first place, not for, you know, maps of meaning, uh, which was the, his more uh, intellectual, you know, uh, book, but uh, for his crusade against adding uh, gender identity to Canada's human rights law where he made a lot of extraordinarily misleading claims, right, that we were going to be, they were going to be arresting people for not using proper pronouns. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the Canadian Bar Association stepped in and said, no, it doesn't say that. Uh, right. and, 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 and when he hits these larger themes about politics, it's always for the sake of opposing what he calls equality of, of outcome, right? You know, basically opposing efforts to make our society more equal and less hierarchical. So whether he's far right or moderate right or whatever, I think he, I think he's not in the business usually of taking specific enough political positions to even pin him down. Right. But I think he's somebody who is certainly pushing back against the political agenda that I would like, which is why I think there's this need to respond to him. Okay. So we have a couple of more people with raised hands. I want to get to everybody and we only have about 15. Somebody, somebody, Somebody in the chat wrote, I, I like Richard I know. Spencer. I was just, I was, somebody, uh, Forrest writes, the headline from today's podcast is, I like Richard Spencer's as Ben Burgess. <laughs> uh, Kevin, uh, did he, I think he answered your question properly, didn't he? 
Yes, uh, very good. Thanks, gentlemen. It was great to hear from you both. Thank you. Let's now go to Steve. Where are you joining us from, Steve? Hey, I'm in Florida. How's it going, guys? Good. Where are right. Florida? I'm in St. Petersburg. I was actually in your um, your Discord the other day on Monday, I think. So, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, you were. That's right. I didn't talk much near the end because you guys are just so much. I'm 18. I haven't uh, had any formal college education. You guys are just talking way over my head. I just like to listen to that. Was, was but, this on the Michael Brooks show? No, it was, on, it was on my the uh, Discord for my Patreon. Oh, like, uh, well, let me uh, let me just tell everybody that let me just tell everybody that Dr. Ben Burgess, Professor Ben Burgess, has a Patreon account. Everybody should go there. Go to patreon.com forward slash Ben Burgess. Sign up. Get at least two essays delivered to your inbox each week. And then there are all these other benefits that come from subscribing to Dr. Ben Burgess. He also is the author of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. He's got a new book coming out soon that we'll talk about in the future. But he is also the author of a brand new book called... Myth and Mayhem, a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson. I believe it's published by Zero Books. And yeah. you wrote it with three other people? Yeah, uh, Conrad Hamilton, uh, Marion Trejo, and uh, uh, Matt McManus, who, by the way, I just want to say, uh, Matt. Um, From Jacobin. Know, uh, yeah, he's been, yeah, he co wrote the Jacobin piece with me, and, and he's. He's, he's a terrifyingly productive writer. He, he puts stuff out all the time. And I think he's somebody really worth reading because I think he has a knack for, um, for conveying complicated ideas in a clear way for popular audiences without losing rigor. So I'm a big fan of his. Also, there's an introduction by uh, Slavoj Žižek uh, where he talks a little bit about his debate with Peterson. And um, Did they and decide he, that was like the – that was like – Frazier versus Ali. Have they decided who won? Well, uh, I mean, I have my thoughts about that, but I will say that I, I remember that the day after the debate, uh, seeing a lot of people in the uh, Jordan Peterson Reddit uh, making very disappointed comments. So I think that at least some of his fans thought that, uh, that Zizek won, even though Zizek was not being aggressive at all, right? Like he, in fact, if anything, I think he was kind of trying to to kill them with kindness, you know, right? Mm-hmm. So, so um, because I think he was part of his agenda in that debate was to show a more appealing image of the left, you know, that uh, that's that's instead of you know kind of yelling at people that they're racist and fascist to try to uh, show, hey, some of us are you know laid back and funny, and so like you know you should take your defenses down. Um, but the thing, the reason that I think he, that Jack was widely perceived as as uh, as winning is that uh, it was so obvious that Peterson hadn't done his homework, you know, that like he, he hadn't done very much reading to prepare for it. You said he only read the Co- the Communist Manifesto. Yeah, he only read the Communist Manifesto, right? He uh, he didn't read any books by the person he was debated, and he only read this like extreme, like it's like this, you know, people listening to this won't know what to do with my fingers, but it's very thin, right? Right. And, um, and he did this kind of ridiculous middle school book report on it, uh, you know. So I think just just putting him next to an actual intellectual like Zizek 
made him look really bad. And there was also moments in the debate that I think they could have made him look very bad when uh, Zizek said, so uh, these, uh, these postmodern neo-Marxists you're talking about, uh, this is a, who are they? Can you give me some names? And he couldn't think of any. Wow. So uh, I, I think that I think all of that is why, despite the fact that Zizek took such a conciliatory approach, he was widely perceived as having won. Okay, Steve, what is your question? Yeah, so um, Jordan Peterson, he talks a lot about um, political correctness and uh, like sort of leftist uh, deplatforming, but I just wanted to ask if, if you've seen the recent de Blasio tweet and what you have to say about that. Oh, uh, the, uh, the anti-Semitic one? Um, I I wouldn't say it's anti-Semitic, but obviously that's what a lot of people in the replies are saying. Look, it might not have been anti-Semitic in terms of intention, but um, I – I, I'm, I, I was surprised that it went out, right? Oh, what, what, out. What, I know that de Blasio, I know that de Blasio broke up a Hasidic funeral. Yeah, so there so was a he, tweet? Who, who tweeted? There's a, uh, there's a tweet where he said to the Jewish community and to all communities, you know, the time for patience is over. I will enforce this, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and I think, I think regardless of, of, of his intentions, um, I think saying to the Jewish community like that sort of sort of singled out and kind of and kind of equating these like ultra orthodox Jews with the Jewish community in general. At the very least, I don't, I don't think it was a I don't think it was a good idea for him to tweet that. He showed up personally to stop a funeral. I don't know. I'm Jewish. I was glad he did that. Am I sure, wrong? Sure. I mean, like, like like I think you shouldn't be able to do in person. Uh, funerals right now. That's a lot. That's a good way to have a lot more funerals. But right. uh, you know, so so I, I'm with him on the policy. I think that it was maybe at the at the very least. I think it was a uh, it was a bad way to. I think I'm sorry to interrupt. It, no, it's so, your like, question. More, I'm interrupting. More optics, I think. But I think it's very. Um, you have to be very intellectually dishonest and very uncharitable to, you know. And that's what that's was the root of my question. You know. The yeah, right yeah. wing is being so uncharitable towards his um, his tweet. Yeah. I found pretty harmless. I don't know. I yeah. can, I definitely understand why it was. Yeah, I mean, look, look, like I said, I, as you said, the optics are bad. Right? I I don't particularly, you know, have any reason to think that he's like um, harboring anti-Semitic feelings. But I think that I think that he should have known that, like, putting it that way, right? Like, instead of just saying, "Hey." If you try to hold a funeral right now, right, we're 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 going to stop it because we we can't we can't allow this to all New Yorkers. The time for patience over, whatever, right? You know, I think that I think that framing it that way, that like the Jewish community, right? I think I think was I think was again at the very least very badly advised. But I do take your point, Stephen, because if you look at a lot of people who are getting upset about this, right, who who are you know right wing people. Um, as I've often thought, right? Like it's amazing to watch people like Ben Shapiro do this, like on a dime transformation from, uh, you know, the the left is always accusing people of racism. It's so ridiculous, you know. Everything is racism. Stop crying, racism. To then, whenever anything could could, whenever he thinks he detects microscopic traces of anti-Semitism on something, he's all over that. Yeah, Stephen, did he ask answer your question? Yeah, thanks, guys. Great question. 
a brilliant question. Let's go to Tony, because I spoke to you earlier, and you said I can call you Tony. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Yeah. What's your question um, for Professor Ben Burgess? This isn't um, exactly a question. It's more of kind of like an anecdote about uh, – somebody kind of uh, adjacent to the intellectual dark web. Uh-huh. Um, I, had, I had a friend back in college who uh, was a really big fan of uh, Stephen Crowder. He was kind of a conservative guy, and we'd have conversations, and sometimes we'd see the same problems, but we'd have different conclusions. And uh, we kind of, uh, you know, we graduated from college, and we went our separate ways, and he was kind of uh, isolated in a way, and he was just like... Yeah like by himself. And then when we came together to hang out, he had like all these kind of crazy theories about like Holocaust denialism and like explaining away like uh, slavery of uh, black people, like to me, like a black person myself. It's just kind of crazy. Like in, in my mind, I always thought that as time went on, like all this like racism would die out, but like seeing this kind of resurgence is, you know, like, worrying to me. I'm just wondering if you'd speak on that and how we can effectively, you know, combat it. Yeah. So, uh, it's about the resurgence of, of racism and how we combat it. That's the question. Basically in, in like how we can like have a kind of counter narrative to these people who are like soft peddling it and something. Good. Like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that a lot of it has to, um, I mean, obviously, we want to tread carefully here because I don't want to fall into kind of a simplistic, monocausal kind of explanation. In other words, like any kind of anything with any significance that happens usually has more than one cause, right? Like that's 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 that should be the baseline. But that said, I think um, I think a lot of it uh, does have to do uh, with um, with larger complaints, many of which many, many of which are economic, right? I know that some people go nuts when they hear that, right? Because they say, oh, you know, I, you know, like like any suggestion that like Trumpism, for example, has anything to do with economic complaints, um, you know, or economic anxiety, right? That that phrase has almost become a joke, especially in some liberal quarters, you know, they're you know they, they dislike hearing that so much. Because they found that most of his voters come from the upper middle class. Uh, yeah, although, so, so two, two points about that, right? Uh, so first of all, um, I don't, I think that saying that most of them come from the upper middle class is slightly off. What's true is that, or the secure uh, middle class is, is, is that, is that Republican voters, uh, statistically skew higher income than Democratic voters, right? That's, um, which is obviously a very long term trend. Uh, but you know, it was no different in 2016 uh, than it had been before that. Uh, a lot of that actually is a symptom of the uh, the racial politics of it, right? Because uh, uh, because uh, African American voters are overwhelmingly Democrats, and also some of the poorest voters, right? So that a lot of that is you know contributes to that trend. But it is true, right, that uh, Republican voters are at the very least, you know, plenty of them are working class people. But like, but Republican voters do skew more in that direction, right? They are more likely to be middle class than Democratic voters. Um, And the other thing people always bring up is they'll say, oh, well, there are these studies showing 
that the the single best indicator of who was going to be a, a Trump voter statistically uh, wasn't uh, wasn't about economic anxieties. It, it was about uh, racial resentments, and that's true. Right? But what bothers me about that, uh, just methodologically, is that people are taking this single piece uh, of evidence in isolation. Because I'm pretty sure, right, if anybody can find any kind of study or anything that contradicts this, I'd love to hear it, right? But my very strong guess would be that if you looked at Romney voters in 2012 or McCain voters in 2008 or Bush voters in 2004, you would find the same thing, that, you know, that you'd have this strong correlation between voting for the Republican candidate and racial resentments because the Republican Party has been pursuing this Southern strategy since Nixon, right? They, they've, they've been doing that. They've been doing that since then. But it's also true that Trump talked constantly about trade, about job loss, uh, about uh, how he wasn't like other Republicans. He wasn't going to cut entitlements, right? You know, he said that repeatedly in the campaign. And the stuff about trade, the stuff about like if you look at like the final commercial he did on the campaign. Yeah, it had all this stuff about Goldman Sachs in it. Um, it was all totally hypocritical if you look at how it was governed. Right? It was but, anti-Semitic. It was there was veiled anti-Semitism yeah, in well, that. Well, but yeah. that, that's not that's not unlinked to the the economic part either, right? I right. mean, right, there's this classic phrase from uh, early 20th century German socialism about how anti-Semitism is the socialism of fools. You know, meaning that um, anti-Semitism is socialism for fools. That's great. Yeah, but like the idea is that it's it's uh, is that oftentimes what anti semites do is they they scapegoat um, you know is they scapegoat Jews for uh, for larger economic problems and by talking about rich Jews they obviously ignore the fact that there are plenty of non rich Jews and right. there are plenty of rich people who are not Jews obviously right but 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 but, it, but it's linked is the point right and i think that especially if you if you think about the electoral college map right where um, where like a slight wind would have been enough for hillary clinton to win michigan and wisconsin right like that it was that close and a big part of of why she lost um, is because trump was talking about all this stuff about jobs and trade, uh, and and she she was not, and uh, and she was very associated with the economic policies that really devastated that region, which meant two things. One of which is that some white voters who might have gone either way voted for Trump because of that, and some non-white voters, although mostly not. And the other thing it meant is that lots of non-white voters who came out in 2012 stayed home in 2016 in those states. And if, I mean, forget the so-called white working class, if if there had been the same level of black and Hispanic turnout in 2016 as 2012, Hillary Clinton would be president right now. And just since we got off onto this thing, right, just to really quickly address the original larger point, right, that uh, the question, uh, I think that it's it's got to be a multifaceted thing, but I think that uh, I think that the more you allow the right to scapegoat, uh, well, you know, Mexicans mostly in the case of Trump, right, uh, or immigration, China, right, you know, for things like the economic, uh, the uh, 
for things like job loss in the 2016 campaign or like the way that Trump is trying to scapegoat China now for his totally inadequate response to the pandemic, uh, that like that's going to get a foothold and that's going to appeal to more people unless we have a compelling counter narrative, which is going to be have to be about a kind of egalitarian economic program that feel more public. We have a lot. We have two more questions. And I, I speaking to Tony's question, I think Jordan Peterson allows racism into academia's back door by, and you write about this, by addressing identity politics, how the the failure of Stalin gave rise to identity politics. And I think we we're, we're, this to be continued. I want to get to Todd. We already Paul's question. Uh, Paul, what is your question? And we're, thank you, Tony, for that question. Uh, Paul, where are you Zooming from? I'm coming from uh, Maryland. Okay. And what is and, your question uh, for Dr. Ben Burgess? Well, uh, it's a little off topic. Um, I have to admit I don't know who Jordan Peterson is. Don't worry about it. And, and I'm wondering, <laughs> maybe that's a good thing from what I'm hearing. Um, uh, so I was at a Zoom meeting today, I guess I was doing the Zoom circuit, uh, uh, Congressman Jeremy uh, Raskin had a, a Zoom. Former Nader's Raider. Yeah, he's fantastic. He's actually my congressman. Yeah, he's a great guy. And um, it was through Nation, and unfortunately they had a Gestapo there who was not allowing, they basically were reinterpreting people's questions, and it was very frustrating. But um, my question is, um, and l- let me just give a little preface. This is a a one-sentence quote from Henry Ford. uh, He says, it's perhaps well enough that the people of the nation do not know or understand our banking and monetary system. For if they did, I believe there would be a revolution by tomorrow morning. So my question to um, Raskin was, which didn't get asked, was, as you know, the Federal Reserve is forbidden under the Federal Reserve Act to create money to fund congressional spending, and that the multi-trillion dollar spending needed to address COVID-19, as well as other programs that the congressman supports, like the Green New Deal and Medicare for All, will require unsustainable amounts of borrowing. Um, Will the congressman support legislation, such as that introduced by Kucinich and Conyers in 2011, to allow the federal government to create the money we need as a nation to survive. And if not, why not? So I just wonder what your take is on that. And uh, I've had a lot of frustration. It almost seems that the, the left just uh, there's doesn't like a- understand the Federal Reserve and doesn't understand that we're not printing money. We're borrowing money to well, create money. They- yeah, yeah, they they uh, are oblivious to the fact that the only entity that creates money in in our economy are private commercial banks when they lend. That's the way it works. It's not a secret, but it's made so complex. David, I remember your comment the other night was, you know, you, you had Sarah Bloom Raskin on the Ralph Nader show, and she she's uh, his wife and. She was on the Board of Governors, and I actually met her the following week at another Raskin Town Hall. Right. She's a very gracious woman, really sharp, and she agreed. You have All a great memory, day. by the way, uh, Paul, because on the show last week, I said somebody on the Ralph Nader show 
for like two minutes made me understand how the Federal Reserve works, and then it went completely out my ear. Yeah. How, you remember her? That's right. It was Jamie Raskin's sister who did it. That, no, 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 thanks. his wife. His wife. Uh, his wife, I'm sorry. Right. Could be. And she remembered, she, that was my question, to, my question to Ralph, and she remembered me. She kind of laughed, and I talked with her at the, uh, but, you know, it's one of those best-kept secrets out, out in plain sight that people just are not aware of, that we could create all the money that we need. But right now, this $2 trillion is one-tenth of our entire GDP, and it's going to grow you know, well beyond that. There's no way we can, uh, we can pay for that. Thank you, Paul. That's, that's really interesting that I could, I, I was, we talked about this, I think it was with Professor Harvey J.K., Professor Burgess, and the Federal Reserve, my eyes glaze over, and Professor K.'s eyes glaze over when you bring up the Federal Reserve. I'm going to let you answer that question. What I find really interesting is that Paul remembered who, for one brief shining moment, was able to explain the Federal Reserve to me, and I can't, and it was Jamie Raskin's wife. Go ahead, Professor Ben Burgess, and then we're going to wrap it up, because uh, I want to bring this in uh, uh, under a half hour. And well. I think I've succeeded. In- <laughs> uh, that's okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, the legislation you mentioned sounds like a good idea to me. Uh, I mean, I don't want to go, uh, I think sometimes people who are fans of what's called uh, modern monetary theory or MMT do slightly overstate the case because they'll say, you know, basically suggest that uh, that governments can, can print money right up until you've hit the sort of human or ecological limits of, uh, of what society could do which would be true if, if we had, like, a global government, uh, but is not entirely true in, uh, in a system where national currencies like the dollar do have to maintain that some value in the global market. Um, so, you know, as, you know, so because they have to be the store of value, at a certain point, uh, printing, you know, uh, printing money can have possibly bad consequences. But very briefly, um, I don't think that inflation or any of those concerns, right, are anywhere near the top of our list of concerns in a crisis like this. Uh, I, I, you know, I think we could do a, a great amount of that. My suspicion is and we'd be just fine. Uh, and two, if you are super worried about that, right, then you say, okay, um, like let's let's just assume for the sake of argument that all of the all of the right wing objections to this are true, and I don't really think they are. But like if you if you assume that, right? It's like oh, it's it's that it would be really bad to take on um, a bunch more debt, and it would be really bad to just let the Fed print money. Um, you know, well there is a there is a third alternative here. I just don't think that, that most of the people who press this would like it, right? Which is to soak the hell out of the rich. Um, and uh, and and get the money that way. So I'm I'm fine with any I'm fine with any of the three because honestly I think uh, you know I, I think that the the uh, value of the dollar consideration and the deficit considerations are just not what the priority should be right now. And obviously I'd love to soak the rich, but however we fund it, um, I I think you've got to uh, you've got to take much more serious action right now because. Uh, 
you know, this is the last thing I wrote for Jacobin before the Peterson article um, was, was one making the case that uh, if you don't, um, you know, if you continue the shelter in place orders, which you absolutely should, it's a necessity as far as public health, but if you continue it without much more serious economic assistance for ordinary people, then um, these kinds of uh, astroturfy logic, you know, uh, anti-lockdown protests that are currently only supported by a minority of the population aren't going to stay supported by a minority population. Right. More and more people are going to have that perspective unless we do something real to help them uh, beyond, like, miserly unemployment payments for people who even get unemployment. So I think at the very, I think, bare minimum, uh, total rent forgiveness until uh, until the end of the crisis and at least a temporary UBI. There's absolutely no reason why um, they, everybody shouldn't be sent to check every month right now. Um, would I mean? I think those I think those things should just be should you know like that's not even like radical socialist stuff. Like that should just be like obvious that like you know while you have an emergency going on, you need to take some emergency measures. And, you know, print the money, borrow the money, soak the rich, you know, figure it out. But you got to do it. We're the richest country in the history of civilization, and we can't even so do it. Professor Ben Burgess is a columnist for Jacobin. You can see him every week on The Michael Brooks Show. And he has authored several books, including Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. His latest work is Myth and Mayhem, a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson. Follow him on Twitter, and where do you buy Myth and Mayhem, a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson? Uh, well, you can, uh, well, let's see, starting soon, you'll be able to buy it on uh, Amazon again. They're actually out of stock right now. Uh, but if you go to uh, John Hunt Publishing, that's the parent company of uh, Zero Books, and so look it up there, There's, or I can, I can just give you the link, and we can put it in the show notes. They have a whole list of all the, all the online booksellers, uh, you can get it from there with all the links, um, and uh, and yeah, uh, and and but if you even if you don't buy it from Amazon, leave a review of on Amazon to balance out the people who uh, the Peterson fans who admitted they hadn't read the book but still gave it one star reviews. Right, right. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, I should also uh, should also plug the uh, the Patreon. I've been uh, I, I I said on Twitter last weekend that if I got. Uh, up to 100 subscribers on the Patreon. I would do the literary equivalent of eating a bowl of spiders, and I would read Glenn Beck's book about socialism. <laughs> uh, so we're up at uh, uh, we're up at 107. Uh, so I did indeed order the <laughs> order that book, uh, so you can hear my thoughts about that soon. Okay, I want to thank all the people who came today. You asked brilliant questions. Fantastic, everybody, stay on the line. Have you called in your backup becomes now? See if we can get some more brain power in this. We thing. got one here. Roger. Fly to Inco. Go and go. Uh, he's never mind. He's straight in a little bit. Okay. Okay. Now let's everybody keep cool. We got the uh, limb still attached. The limb spacecraft's good. So if we need uh, to get back home, we got a limb to do a good portion of it with. Okay. Let's make sure that we don't do anything that's going to blow our CSM electrical power with the batteries or that will cause us to lose the main or the uh, fuel cell number two. Okay, we want to keep the O2 and that kind of stuff working. We'd like to have RCS, but we got the command module system, 
so we're in good shape if we need to get home. Let's solve the problem, but let's not make it any worse by guessing. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Let us now go to Washington, D.C., where the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is standing by. He was the executive director of Americans United for Separation of Church and State from 1992 to November of 2017. Besides being an attorney, he is also an ordained minister in the United Church of of, hang on, I think I got this. I got it. Christ? Excellent. I pronounced it properly. Welcome. It was, welcome, the well, Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Hello? No music? Oh. I'm here. Where's my music? Oh, my intro music. Oh, hang on, hang on. I was playing. <laughs> I was playing. I what were you playing? Uh, we, we were going to talk about Hitler and I have his indoor voice, but that's not what I wanted to play for you. Please right. welcome, give a warm Georgia and Florida welcome to the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for your entire audience out there. Yes. Um, hey, we are yeah. doing office hours tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit office hours, get an invitation. I'll send you an invitation automatically, folks, and you don't have to register. Just type in the password and you'll be part of the meeting. We have room for as many people who want to show up, I think. I mean, unless it, unless it's insane, but I can't imagine it being that crowded. And you delivered a convocation last Friday that was... That would, it, be, an, it, that would be an invocation. No, a, a convocation. Con- you okay. delivered a convocation. You brought a group of people. Another, you brought another meeting. Together. Yeah. You brought another meeting to a meeting. It was like a Starbucks inside of a Starbucks. <laughs> what, what did you deliver? Well, it was an invocation. It was designed uh, to be the kind of thing that I think is a centerpiece or should be a centerpiece of the Church of Feldman, where I'm both the official chaplain and its legal advisor. Yes. And I just thought I would comment on uh, on a few things. It's kind of a few, what you're supposed to do, what they teach you to do in theology school is only make three points. In other words, if you have a sermon, it should never last more than 21 minutes. And really? And it should have three points. Yeah. Wow. Some would say 18. And uh, I, I, believe me, I've been at uh, services where two minutes would be too long. But in, the, in vocations, I wanted to make three points, which I did, uh, calling on the spirits of benevolence, and of uh, wisdom and humor. Yes, you did a great job. Well, I appreciate that. And thinking of uh, that, I was um, 
You do recall that a few weeks ago, my religious right nut of the week was a pastor uh, from Florida who refused to air his uh, services on the Internet. He insisted on people coming, and they were all hugging, and he was arrested. And his name was uh, Rodney Howard Brown. You remember him? Yes, I do. Well, just curiously, uh, I happen to have a, a number for him. Uh, you may recall you called a prayer line a few weeks ago, and I, I found a prayer line that Rodney Howard Brown runs. Would you like that number? Well, do you you have? You don't have to call it now. It's, yeah, I'm just thinking that perhaps when we're done and you need more spiritual solace, you could call this number. Well, here's the thing, because here's what I want to tell the listeners. We're going to talk about Mike Pence and face masks, yep. Tara Reid and Biden. We're going to talk about the uh, the PPP, and we're going to talk about fixing our unemployment system. And April 30th, yesterday, was the anniversary of two huge historical events. One of them is Hitler's death and... We're going to talk about John Ford films, Grape of, Grapes of Wrath and The Searchers. So that's what we want to get to. All right. I also want to talk about your wife. Okay. Who was the hit of our office hours. It was exactly what I have in mind for office hours because we didn't know what to expect. We have mm -hmm. a rough idea of who's going to show up. And it's where the listeners get to mingle with guests of the show. Well, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin didn't show up because I screwed up. But Dr. Lynn was there and proceeded to conduct a seminar on COVID-19 that was riveting. And we were spellbound by her and... It was an honor. I'm being serious. It, it, sure. it, it was an honor. And it's exactly what these office hours should be about, where we don't know what's going to happen. And suddenly you discover the Reverend Barry W. Lynn's wife is one of the most amazing people who's ever graced this planet. So, you know, thank you. That. In all seriousness, thank you for no, that. I, that's terrific. And, uh, she had a good time doing it. I, I, I was interested in some of the comments people were making on the side. By the way, uh, I should mention she curses like a sailor. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, why do you think we've been able to stay together for literally almost 50 years? I'm kidding. I'm two, kidding. Two months away. I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. 50. Yeah. Well, How many years have you been married? Almost 50 years. Wow. We'll be married 50 years on June the 6th. People could send cards if they wanted. We were when, was D -Day? To... when was D-Day? When was D-Day? That was a couple of days earlier. Oh. No, that was June 6th also. Was it really? See, we're, yeah. Now, we're is it true you said, historical... on your what? wedding night, is it true you said, I'm going to storm the Omaha Beach? Is that true that you said that? <laughs> You'll have to wait for um, my book. You know, I'm writing a new book, mm -hmm. and it's based on all the people that have had an influence in my life mostly people had a good influence a couple who had a bad influence and uh, i expected to have a hundred short chapters i finished four and a half chapters in the last week and a half 
So I'm well on my way. I might reveal that kind of information. But in your, order for but your anniversary a... is D-Day. Yes, it is. June 6th. That's incredible. June 6th. Yep. Well, a lot of important things happen on the same days, as we know, as you alluded to. What is This is, of course, not only the 75th anniversary of the death of Adolf Hitler, but also the 50th anniversary of, depending on your political viewpoint, the fall of Saigon or the liberation of Saigon 50 right. years ago today. And you knew the Berrigan brothers. You, you... I knew one of the Berrigan brothers. And... You marched against the war. Absolutely. Many times, uh, including with Dr. King, when he made his dramatic and very, at the time, very controversial decision to link his discussions of poverty with an end to the Vietnam War. And a lot of his close advisors said, don't do that. He kind of tried out a speech at the Riverside Church, which is a church uh, where uh, the Reverend William Sloan Coffin, another great anti-war activist, was the minister. You would and think a, a guy named Coffin, later, you would think a guy named Coffin. Co- <laughs> well, you would think he'd sell cigarettes. Is that what you were going to say? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's better. Thought, Go ahead. Yeah, well, it's a... It's a but no, and then so the let me. Later, I, I, he spoke I, I, at the United Nations. You're saying Doctor Martin Luther King delivered the same speech twice? <laughs> I think he probably changed a few words. But it was the yeah, same speech. There was like, there was the first show and the second show. The second show exactly. was at the UN. I understand exactly. it was a little dirtier because it was a, it was the late night show at <laughs> the, the late UN show. Yeah, you know, uh, many of us that are um, uh, ministers do that. Just in the same way that the comedians, because, you know, I've, I, the last couple of years, I've spent a, a lot of time with comedians, not just with you, but I mean, with other people that I met because we were on together and John Fugel sang show or I met them in some other way. And uh, I know that they work bluer. That's what it's called, right? They work bluer in the late show. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's what you're supposed to do. But of course... Yeah. I switched it around. <laughs> can I can I uh, tell you something that I found really interesting? Sure. There's a comedian named Tomlinson. I believe that's her name. Uh, she's on Netflix, and I was looking around for something to watch. Her name is Taylor Tomlinson, and I watched her special, Quarter Life Crisis. And she is like 25 and I'm watching it, and I'm going, this is some of the best stand-up I've ever seen. And, you know, and a 25-year-old, good God. And she's fantastic. And I looked her up, and it turns out she started in the churches of Southern California. Because, you know, there's Christian comedy. Oh, I do know that. Yeah, and, you know, what do I know from Christian comedy? <laughs> And uh, and I wa- and I thought, well, that makes sense because she was smart, and she wasn't dirty. She talked about sex, but in a way that was not it wasn't pushing the audience away. She wasn't being grotesque. She was being mm-hmm. reasonable. She was touching on it. But and I thought that's interesting. You know, I'm so sick of blue 
comedy and filthy comedy. It's so easy, and it's not working the edge. It's the easiest laugh you can possibly get. And then you watch Taylor Tomlinson, and I'm thinking, you know, Christian comedy. All it is is it's, I don't know, I, I don't know that much about it, but if that's what Christian comedy is producing, and I wouldn't call her a Christian comic. She just started in the churches. Sure. It goes against everything I was raised to believe as a stand-up comic, that, oh, Christian comedy it has no edge. It's not, well, go watch Taylor Tomlinson. Watch uh, her Netflix special. It's amazing what you can accomplish when you're not allowed to be blue. I will certainly watch her. I, I saw that pop up on Netflix, but I had never heard of her either. But Christian comedy is a thing. I mean, there are there are comedians who... Um, if you think of the the people that are on that Fox News comedy show on Saturday night, I mean, I literally, I have never heard them say a funny thing. But they they too are not dirty, but they travel around to conventions and conferences of Methodists and Presbyterians and much more conservative. Uh, oh, Greg Gutfeld, well. that guy. Like, yeah, Greg. Uh, Greg yeah. Gutfeld. Have you ever heard him say any anything? That's funny. I have never heard him say anything funny. No, it's the fascism no. of television. You give somebody yep. a show, it automatically is funny because he's surrounded by supplicants who, that, you know, that's great, that's great, <laughs> that's funny, that's funny. And he doesn't yep. work in front of an audience. So no, if he thinks it's funny, it's funny. And, it, and then it's exactly. the power of television. People say he must be funny. What do I know? <laughs> so. But we know he's yeah. not funny. So what else is on your mind? Well, I just want to make sure that people understand that Taylor Tomlinson is not a Christian comic. And, for, no. you know, that's not how she advertises herself. She is a comedian who came out of the churches of Southern California. And, you know, uh, it's great. It's yep. really great. It's really great. It's just great stuff. Uh, are you going to come tonight, and uh, and are you going to bring? I, I'm not going to be able to come tonight, but I uh, I'm looking forward to joining you in a future Friday okay. event. Do you have Absolutely. another office hours that you have to attend? Yeah, I have to ch uh, chat with my children in a pre-arranged event uh, before I was even aware that you were doing this. Let me, let me tell you something about children. Yeah. You spend too you much time, you know, you spend all your time with your children. One day you'll wake up and you'll say, I don't recognize the David Feldman show anymore. Do you want that to happen? <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm going to write this down as a warning to myself. I, I had a, if I could go to a tattoo parlor here in the District of Columbia, but I can't because they're, they're still closed, luckily, um, I would tattoo that very message onto my arm. All right. So let's talk yeah. let, let, before we get to COVID-19. Yes. Let us talk about Mike Pence, who showed up at the Mayo Clinic, not wearing yeah. a face mask. That's right. 
and uh, that was terrible. It's everything you're not supposed to do as a public health officer. You're supposed to do the things you expect other people to do. There was a preposterous effort on the part of Mrs. Pence on a Fox and Friends a few days after this incident where she said he didn't know he was supposed to wear a mask. Now, that's uh, number one. A complete lie because, of course, the Mayo Clinic had sent instructions to all of his handlers. Uh, you know, we have a mask policy. Mm-hmm. But even if somehow that got lost in the mail, don't you think a normal person, he is not a normal person, would notice that every single other person is wearing a mask and then think, perhaps I should wear a mask? Yeah. Yeah, but he didn't. And and then his wife lied about it a few days later and said, oh, well, he didn't really know, uh, ignoring the obvious fact that uh, even if he hadn't gotten the memo, he should have seen what other people were wearing. But then but things get a little more strange because I can't leave the Mayo Clinic off the hook completely either. It seems to me that when a guy comes in, he's not wearing a mask. He has no intention or willingness to wear it. There are some words you could use politely. You could say, I'm sorry, Mr. Vice President, but if you're not going to wear a mask, we can't let you come in. That is not a hard sentence. Why didn't they do that? Well, they did tweet out. they, They tweeted out that we told him to wear a mask and he refused. And then the Mayo Clinic deleted the tweet. <laughs> or they said something to the effect, our protocol is to wear a mask, and he violated it. And then they chickened out and deleted that tweet. The Mayo yeah. Clinic, I mean, that's where you go, right? Isn't the Mayo Clinic the... the- oh, it's one of the preeminent places in the, in the country. And, of course, he's literally he's talking to doctors, and he's talking even to patients uh, during his trip there. And it, it seems to me that he's he's got... A fundamental misunderstanding of a couple things. Um, first, of first of all, he should have gone to the Mayo Clinic on the fifth, on the fifth of May. Yeah, he should have yeah. because uh, cinco. Yeah, I, I really don't. That's the only word of Spanish that I know. But you speak fluent German. From. Uh, yes. Uh, okay, go ahead. I, I go, did go, at go, one go, point. Please stay on. Okay, point, here's the Reverend. problem. <laughs> Doesn't he realize? You know, it, 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 I love this explanation. You said I, I get tested all the time, which raised a lot of people's ire. And they said, if you get tested all the time, why can't my sister get tested when she walks toward a hospital with symptoms? And they look at her and they go, "We don't have any tests." And by the way, you don't look sick enough. But there's something else. He clearly doesn't understand how these tests work. A test is just a snapshot of a moment in your life. If he was tested, say, 24 hours before he got on the airplane to go to the Mayo Clinic, in that time, overnight, in the airplane, he could have gotten infected. So the test 24 hours ago is not necessarily any evidence that he's not infected by the time he gets to the doors of the Mayo Clinic. He just has an insufferable ignorance about the things he he talks about in in what are thankfully no longer daily three-hour coronavirus task force press conferences. I should mention that he visited a ventilator plant 
yesterday, and he wore a ventilator. So he did learn his. <laughs> he did. No, he yes, did he visit did. a ventilator plant, and he wore a mask. So that's right. He but did. there has to be some. The, the the mixed messaging that goes on is calculated. That's part of the fascist playbook: is to send two different signals. One is these businesses have to be remained closed. Let's open up the businesses. I mean, that's how it's part of the confusion that the Trump administration foists upon us. It's it's part of the the fascist playbook. The guy in charge, I mean, Pence is in charge of the COVID-19 task force for him to show up at the Mayo Clinic and not wear a mask is not an oversight. That's part of the plan to make people wonder what they to keep people confused. I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, there's a politics end of this too which is to say to the extent that trump wants to take credit uh, as he did about 24 hours ago uh, saying uh, i am we're doing a uh, massive effort to develop a vaccine it's my decision but then of course a few weeks ago when he was asked if he took any responsibility for any of the policies about covid 19 he said no i take no responsibility for that in other words if it's good or if it's not yet proven to be ludicrous and false he says it's my baby if it's already happened and it didn't work he goes uh baby uh are you talking about that chimpanzee right but this is part of his ideology yeah this is it is it really is it's the federal government is the provider of last resort you're on your own states that's what that's what his people believe yeah, I mean, he's, he, as you probably saw, he has threatened to fire uh, the guy that's responsible for his polls because, of course, his polls, uh, and as we've discussed on numerous occasions, I'm very skeptical of these polls, particularly if they're done by Fox News, and Fox News polls show him dramatically behind in Florida, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, and he's mad about it. He threatened but to I sue his... He threatened to sue him. I'm literally never heard of that ever, ever happening. But he's he mad. should threaten to sue the COVID nineteen virus. <laughs> you know, if I wasn't spending so much time uh, writing the book that I mentioned and uh, uh, working on your legal problems with the Church of Feldman, I would personally uh, write uh, to the president and ask him if he wanted my help in suing. A coronavirus. <laughs> well, let's turn. Let's yeah. turn to Joe Biden. Yeah. Barack Obama vetted him in 2008. Yep. He knew about Tara Reid. They go through your skeletons in your closet. They knew about Tara Reid, and they decided this isn't a credible rape allegation. And so Joe Biden got picked. And 2020. Barack Obama, St. Obama, puts his thumb on the scale for Joe Biden right before Super Tuesday. He knew about Tara Reid. He knew about Flores. He knew about all the women getting the unwanted back rubs and the hair sniffing. And he said, not Joe Biden. I mean, Barack Obama is responsible for Joe Biden being the presumptive nominee. And I want to know, 
Does he believe the woman or does he believe Joe Biden? Because Nancy Pelosi says that's just Joe being Joe. Yep. Gillibrand, Gillibrand, who got Al Franken canned, says she believes Joe. Joe. Yep, she does. That's what she said. Um, Here's the thing that bothers me about all of this. Um, Back when I was doing radio a couple hours every day, I would occasionally talk to the women who accused Bill Clinton of all kinds of sexual improprieties. And I must say, I believed all of them but one. One, I just couldn't become convinced that she was telling the truth. When Bill Clinton, when the story with Monica Lewinsky broke, there were right-wing religious groups who wanted to do an event, I think it was at the press club, and they couldn't find any liberal minister, pastor, rabbi to speak. And they asked me to speak, and I said, yes. And I said, I know full well that you you need me because all of your people are going to be ultra-conservatives, but I'll do it. And what I said about Bill Clinton that day was he did the wrong thing. You cannot, you cannot find a justification with the the extraordinary power imbalance between an intern and the president of the United States. He should have been the grown-up, I think is what I said, and known to resist this temptation or to just tell her we're not going to continue this. And I was even more, if it's possible to be, more offended when Hillary Clinton suggested uh, about a year and a half ago that Monica was, she didn't say, she seduced my husband, but that was the implication. She said she was of age, you know, she was of age, and, uh, you know, she, you can't justify Bill Clinton's conduct with Monica Lewinsky on the basis that she was flirtatious, or she, uh, there was a famous thing that she allegedly said to a friend, I'm going to Washington, I'm going to be an intern at the White House, and I want to seduce the president. It doesn't matter whether she ever said that or didn't say it. It's just unconscionable. And for Hillary, to who I did vote for uh, under a kind of protest, but I thought that was just a despicable thing to do. Now, let's get to Tara Reid. Well, just one, Tara, let me just say yep, one quick thing on. about that. Sure. It's, the, it's the Camilla Crosby, Cosby thing where you slept with my husband, you got what you deserved. That's what <laughs> they think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. You committed adultery. Go ahead, Tara Reid. Yeah, she shouldn't be trashed. She shouldn't be insulted. I mean, I've been on social media for the last 24 hours, and the the stuff that's said about her goes way beyond simply saying, I don't believe her. I think you can say, I don't believe her, without trashing her, ridiculing her, or insulting her. And there were two, in the last two days, two very detailed, quite reasonable articles suggesting that her story does not hold up. And in addition, Lawrence Tribe, he's the Harvard professor, the non-Alan Dershowitz, high-quality, super-liberal professor, looked at the evidence that's out there and said, I'm afraid she didn't make the case. So you can you can do that. You can write those things. Here's what I think should happen. 
New York Times about a day ago had an op-ed where somebody said, why is it that Tara Reid is not invited on any cable television shows, suggesting that all these networks were kind of in the bag for Biden? And I... I think that was a good point. I think she should be on every cable show. She should go on Fox. She should let Sean Hannity give her presumably a a wonderful and easy interview. She should go on MSNBC. She should go on CNN. And because I want to be able to make a judgment, not just based on what somebody says the evidence provides, not just on her story. I want to see how she presents herself. The first day in law school, they tell you the following. When you're representing or considering representing a client, go and talk to the client and don't take any notes. Don't write anything down. Just watch your possible client. Do you believe this person? Because if you don't believe him or you don't believe her, no jury will believe that person either. I want to see her, and I want to see Joe Biden asked about this every time he appears, because I want to make sure that his denial, which I'm sure he will do, is consistent from one network to the next. You're an attorney. That's what I want to see. You're an attorney. You know, finishing up the Woody Allen book, which is a masterpiece, and he's a genius, and there's only one allegation against him. The daughter, Dylan, claims that she... She was molested by him. He was cleared by two investigations by the Connecticut police. The charges were dropped. You begin to realize that Mia Farrow, at least according to Woody Allen and things that I've heard, is out of her effing mind. He makes a credible case that Mia Farrow has poisoned the minds of some of the the kids, and some of the kids have come forward to defend Woody Allen. And I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, Woody Allen has been destroyed by Mia Farrow. She told him she was going to destroy him, and you discover that Soon Yi, the daughter who Mm. married Woody, the reason she came to Woody, according to Soon Yi, according to Moses, the son, according to Woody Allen, is because Mia Farrow treated Soon Yi as a second-class citizen because she was adopted, that she was beaten and called retarded, and that Soon Yi came to Woody Allen while she was in college, and they fell in love, that that Mia Farrow abused, physically abused these kids. And that's been said mm-hmm. by Soon Yi, and it's been said by some of, the, some of the kids, the ones who didn't commit suicide under her watch. Right. So right. you read all about this, and you think, I believe Woody Allen. Now, his career, uh, late in life, he, he can't get his book published by a big uh, imprint. Uh, right. And Amazon has dropped him, all because Mia Farrow made this accusation that was disproven by two investigations. Doesn't matter. The court of public opinion has ruled and all these actors and actresses announce, I will never work for Woody Allen. And I say, where are the other allegations? Where are the other children coming forward? Where are the other rapes? They don't, they haven't come right. forward. Joe Biden, Joe Biden, a lot of women have come forward. There are more sexual assault allegations 
waged well, against Joe Biden than Woody Allen. And, and, and somewhere along the line. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. David, those are not sexual assault allegations in every case. Inappropriate touching, as in putting your hand on someone's shoulder, it's inappropriate unless they said, I have a knot in my shoulder, would you work it out? But they're not all sexual. The, the, the hair smelling thing, I mean, I've watched that video a couple times again today. I don't know what's going through his mind, but I don't think that that alone. Well, I think I think Flores changes her story. I I think there've been I think the lawmaker named Flores talks about the kissing. I mean, the the lips moving. I mean, uh, borderline sexual assault. Let's say. But wouldn't it just? And here's the other thing, thing, Reverend. Go ahead. Here's the other thing. The Biden campaign announced this week that the New York Times looked into it and cleared him. And the New York Times had to issue a statement saying that's not true. That's so it's so not true. It's not true. And the Times said that's not true. They should have said that's an effing lie. So the one thing you don't want to do in a he said, she said is tell a lie about the he said, she said. Because mm-hmm. if you're going to lie about the New York Times if you're that psychotic that you think you can lie about what was in the New York Times and think the New York Times isn't going to step forward and say that's a lie, you'll have no problem calling Tara Reid a liar. Somebody who's as sure. weak sure. as Tara Reid, you think he's going to think twice about calling Tara Reid a liar? Of course he did it. He's a pathological liar, Joe Biden. And he's the worst candidate the Democratic Party has ever nominated. Um, yeah, I wouldn't go that far, but I, you know, I'm no Joe Biden fan. I mean, I will literally will never forget. I, I, next time you talk to Ralph Nader, I remember Ralph and I and a couple of other civil rights people going to Biden during the Anita Hill hearings, pleading, wanting to see him just to say, look, you know, because we all knew that there were two other credible, uh, allegations or women who are highly credible who would have literally been able to say the same thing that Anita Hill said happened to her happened to us and and Joe Biden would not even talk to us he wouldn't see us you're a lawyer and during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings I had Corey Brett Schneider on sure who you know sure I said is this germane to picking a Supreme Court justice, an accusation about an attempted rape that happened when this guy was in prep school. Is this germane? And should it be played out in the court of public opinion by the the Senate Judiciary Committee? just doesn't feel like it's the right place. And Professor Corey Bretschneider said, no, it's perfectly fine that that nobody's guaranteed, you know, nobody's entitled to become the the, the a Supreme Court justice and that if there's credible evidence that he lacks the character, it should be played out in front of the American people. I always felt, you know, I got to see who Brett Kavanaugh really is because sure. of that accusation, but I was a little uncomfortable. I, I you know, I thought you're, there's no way he's going to say, yeah, you got me. I tried to rape her. You got me. We, I knew the, the you know, that wasn't going to happen. There's got to be a better way. 
And it seems to me the best way is, you, unfortunately, you go to the police, but the police don't do anything. Yeah, but I think part of, I, I can't speak for Corey, but I think Corey's right. And here's why. I think once you have someone who makes a credible accusation and you decide this person's going to be heard and then he continues to say wait a minute i never did that i don't even know who this woman is it's a little bit like what happened when uh stephanie uh stormy daniels um when when she says i had sex with donald trump and he says I don't even know this woman. I had a picture taken with her once. That's it. Uh, and then they get somebody like uh, Tony Perkins of the Family Research Council on television, and they say, well, what do you think about these allegations? And he says, well, um, first of all, uh, I would never would never support infidelity, uh, but that was a long time ago. He says this to, on CNN one day after Trump is on an airplane coming back from some rally, they ask him about it, and he says it didn't happen. So then the question is, what's worse, his infidelity or the fact that he's lying about it in a contemporaneous answer to a question while he's president? And Tony Perkins may forgive him if he did it, but it's hard to forgive the lie about it if he did it. And I think it's the same with, with Kavanaugh. He can get all ticked off. He can start yelling and bloviating and crying about how abused he is. But once he says it didn't happen, then that goes at least as much, I would say more, to the character of Brett Kavanaugh than what he did or didn't do in high school. There's got to be a better way to arrive at the truth, and it's called our courtroom. I mean, we have college kids who are accused of rape, and they go on trial within the university system. They don't even get our criminal justice <laughs> system. They're tried by uh, professors and students, yep. and where regular criminal justice laws don't apply uh, how does that happen? That, that, that it- well, yeah. Well, the idea was, and I, I know about this intimately because I was on one of those student faculty boards to evaluate misconduct. And I quit, actually, over this very issue. A woman from another college had accused a person who was at the college I attended of raping her. And... She was expected to talk to us about what it was, what was happening. There was no due process for any party, and I thought it was asinine to Let think me, that a I want to ask year old this. could sit on a panel right. and discuss whether a rape had occurred without allowing her or suggesting or demanding that she go to a court where she could be heard by somebody who who mattered? A How judge, is this possible that you 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 go to a, a you go to college, and you give up your your rights as a citizen? So you're accused if you're if you're in college, and you're accused of rape. Can you say I'm not going to go before 
these people, this inquisition. I want to go before the police and a judge. Can you do that? Yep, you can do that, but very few people are willing to do it because everybody's, in the case I just described, everybody was petrified. They didn't want anything anything to be known about this. They didn't want their names to be revealed. They didn't want anything. Well, I'm sorry, hang on for one second. With, and they thought it was justice. Hang on for one not. second. Hang on for one second, because I've read about this a little, and I'm always surprised that that the parents of the guy who's accused of rape don't go to the the police or, or, or a regular judge. If you're accused of rape, you have two choices. You can go before a, 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 a tribunal set up by the college that consists yep. of students and faculty, right? That's right. And if they find you guilty, then what? You get thrown out of the college. And, That's and the then, and, uh, that, oh, but you're you're a rapist, so you don't go yeah, to prison. No, you don't go to prison. I mean, that's what I found so appalling about this. Uh, the notion that no matter what happened, even if the evidence to, again, to a lay person, everybody was a lay person. They didn't even have a, a professor who was a law professor uh, on this panel, as I recall. It was just a bunch of people who had been selected or who self-selected a willingness to look into these things. And mainly, they adjudicate things like, uh, it, did this guy really uh, throw toilet paper uh, on, the, on the trees outside the president's mansion? That's the kind of crap that you looked at. But, but these things are so serious. And the reason the person, the alleged rapist or an alleged person committing another kind of felony doesn't get mom and dad involved. How many students, 19 year olds, want to go tell mom and dad, Hey, um, just want your help here. Uh, I've been accused of, uh, this rape and, uh, help me out here. They don't want to do that. I think the parents are contacted, and I think they're coerced into going before the tribunal because they don't want to have to pay for lawyers. That was not the case with the tribunal on which I was a part until I quit. Whether they came later, I don't know. But I don't think they were. I don't think they were scheduled to ever show up. Well, there's probably a, a rational explanation for why they've decided to have these student faculty tribunals. Probably because there's so much drinking and drug use and sex on college campuses to untangle what went on is, mm-hmm. you know, impossible. I would, I would suspect. Yeah, I think that's probably frequently the case, but I think it's also to, because there are no reports. I mean, they don't issue a determination letter about whether this crime did or didn't occur. Yeah. Before, so you kind of cover it up. But if, but if there were uh, three uh, rape trials going on, uh, that would be reported. That would be in all the newspapers. And then the college would face the embarrassment of it looking like they were kind of a sexual assault central. They don't want that reputation either. Before you go, let's talk about the director, John Ford, and two movies that you watched this week, Grapes of Wrath and The Searchers. The Grapes of Grapes of Wrath, 
they don't make too many movies like that anymore because it doesn't celebrate the richest 1%. (laughs) That's correct. I mean, it's really a well done. It's not as blunt and it, it kind of ends a little differently than the novel does, but it's a very powerful film. It's in black and white. It's episodic. In other words, Tom Joad, you, you introduce to him when he gets out of prison, and then you watch him understand just what he's up against now that he's not in prison and the extraordinary uh, efforts of trying to move west under the promise, the false promise, that there are jobs there. You go out of the Dust Bowl, you leave Oklahoma, you try to get to California, and then you find out you've been lied to. And it's episodic in the sense that there are all kinds of set pieces of things that happen that are very, very engaging. And not unlike in some cases, you know, what people are going on now, that we have uh, 30 million unemployed people right here in the United States. Newly unemployed. Newly unemployed. Uh, and the other one, you know, John Ford was often criticized for those movies he made in the 40s and early uh, 50s for their depiction of uh, Native people. So he comes around in 1957, I think, to make this Vista Vision beautiful film called The Searcher. Yes. And in some way... Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Oh, the searcher, no, yes, investigation. Yeah, I mean the searchers. I mean, and it 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 could easily be claimed, and I think Martin Scorsese and other uh, directors say this is kind of his effort at redemption. This is an effort to depict Native people in a way that they are often depicted as people with a greater system of values and spirituality than the white people. And John Wayne, who uh, I think is a kind of take-it-or-leave-it actor in most movies, he really does a magnificent job in this. And they're both floating around on the Internet, and they're available on DVD, and they're they're wonderful films. And it reminds you that we just don't have a lot of John Ford's directing films. Yeah, you're a big movie watcher. Very big. And I had Colleen Worthman and uh, Frank Conniff on the show last week. And Mm -hmm. I said that perhaps one of the uh, lessons from the pandemic will be Hollywood will focus more on the working class than the ruling class. That it just feels like everything that comes out celebrates the richest 1% and kind of portrays them in a favorable light so we forgive them and idolize them and want to be them instead of wanting to take away what they've got. And both Colleen and Frank took umbrage and they say that there are plenty of films that challenge the ruling class. And I, you know, they're my guests. I don't want to get into an argument with them, but <laughs> it, it sure feels like during the 70s there were a lot of movies that attacked the ruling class uh, we That's don't, right. We don't see as many, do we? No, I'd have to agree that we don't see as many. I mean, the, the, 
And I think the evidence of that is when there is a movie that actually depicts people at work, people struggling, people fighting against the odds and the man. It's like a, a movie that Eddie Murphy uh, did called My Name is Dolomite about this guy, Rudy Ray Moore. I remember seeing some of his movies in Boston when I'd hang around, uh, go to a movie after I taught school. And, uh, but it, it's a powerful indictment of the comedy business, the music business, um, and um, but it wasn't even nominated as best picture. I mean, it, he didn't even get a nomination for best actor, and uh, it was an, an amazing film. And I, it's on Netflix. I think it was released by Netflix. I saw it in a theater. They often just release it for a week in a theater so that it's Oscar eligible. Yeah, I mean, there, th- there that's are... That's a very powerful there, film. Yeah, I mean, there are probably numbers to back this up. Hollywood does not address the plight of the the working class unless it's a motivational film like... Uh, remember The Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith that came out? Of course. 2005, sure. 2007. Sure. I remember going to see it in San Francisco and the producers were there. There was like an opening. And the story of The Pursuit of Happiness is Will Smith plays a, a salesman who's got a son and his luck turns. And the the first act is all about how... A, a good person, how, you know, you're living a good life, just a series of mm-hmm. unfortunate incidents there, but for the luck of God, you know, you can fall through the cracks and end up homeless with your son, and there's no safety net. And the message of the pursuit of happiness, which is so offensive, is he <laughs> goes to work, I think it was for an investment house in... Yeah. Uh, in San Francisco and he works really hard and he's got to pass these tests and you know will he pass the test because if he passes the test then he gets accepted into the investment house but he overcomes all these obstacles all these odds and sure enough he passes the test and he becomes you know uh, a partner in this investment house isn't this fantastic and I'm watching the movie going f you the guy has a son they're living in a homeless shelter and the yep. and the bank or the investment house are the heroes because they recognized how hard he was willing to work sure. and what he was willing to <laughs> overcome. How dare you tell that story? This should be a story of, of a safety net. And so uh, the director wasn't there, but one of the producers got up and talked about shooting in San Francisco. I remember this. My kids were there, and they're, they're talking about, you know, it's uh, we wanted to shoot – in San Francisco, but it's very hard to shoot here because of the unions. And I raised my hand. <laughs> oh, geez. And I said, you, 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 mm. earlier you said it's really hard to shoot a movie uh, because of the unions here in San Francisco. This is a, a movie about class struggle. You, you talk about, you know, you're shedding light on how difficult it is for poor people, for the homeless. Are you against unions? White San Francisco liberals. That's a rude question. That's a rude question. I hear a little mumbling. I said, are you against unions? It's a simple question answered. Are you against unions? And I got the Joe Biden brush off. No, unions built our middle class. And what I should have done is 
told that guy to go F himself. But that's how they address the poor. They victimize the poor. They say you're poor because you're not working hard enough. You know? Yeah. No, I mean, and you're right about the 60s and 70s. I mean, remember movies like John Sayles was a great director who mm-hmm. did a lot of, of, of movies about people struggling, including with unions. Yeah. What was the big uh, one? The, the shootout? What was the the shootout? No. The shootout. It, it wasn't called the shootout. Um, it was about the union. Oh, I can't remember. The Pinkerton Guards. Were, it's a John Sayles film, and it's about the Right, Pinkerton. right, it is. Um, I, I can't think of it now. Me neither. Because I now I'm obsessed with thinking that it's the shootout, no. but it's not. No. But it is an excellent film, and he, people could easily find it, and they can find others uh, from John Sayles as, as well. And... Um, this is what's got to be done. And there were movies, actually, there was a wonderful biography, a movie about uh, Woody Guthrie. There's a movie called Ironweed about labor organizing. These are really iconic films of the late 70s and early 80s. And they're just not making those anymore. I mean, you can you can read anything in the great Star Wars sagas. I love Star Wars. But, I mean, other than the fact that there are women characters in Star Wars now in 2020 are certainly better than the pathetic efforts to visualize women in the first couple of Star Wars. There's not, they're not making a point yeah. that's obvious about it's brainwashing. the class struggle or anything. It's, yeah, bra- it it's is. brainwashing. But, you know, I, I don't mind it occasionally because, uh, you know, you have to take a break from being overused. Well, now, look, we never, we didn't get to the religious right nut of the week. Yes, we did. He gave me his phone number. Oh, no, I gave you that. Yeah, but I was talking about Sandy Rios, who's okay. somebody I actually know. All right, very quickly, let's get to the... And then I'll we'll type it up. Very quickly. Okay, she she was uh, the vice president for governmental relations for the family... Re, excuse me, for the American Family Association down in Tupelo, Mississippi. She also does a daily radio program. After Trump tried to walk back his comments about drinking bleach and uh, sticking an ultraviolet light... Uh, up yourself. Um, he said it was just, it's just, uh, it's just a joke. But she, it was, but, but she said it, he didn't need to say that. So on Monday of this week, on her radio show, she says the following. She compares him to Andrew Carnegie as one of the businessmen who ha- helped shape a large portion of America. And she says, ironically, it occurred to me that often when the president says something like that and they quickly accuse him, they being the regular media, accuse me, he's crazy. He's out of his mind. How could he say that often? Well, let's see. It just turns out to be true. And I thought it was interesting that she compared him to Andrew Carnegie because Andrew Carnegie, of course, built libraries and uh, Trump once to burn the books in those libraries. And then she went on, the president is not, as a matter of fact, crazy at all. He's crazy like a fox. He's very smart. And he knows so many more things than those 20, 30-year-old reporters, maybe 40. He might just know more than they know, but they will never admit it. They just pounce like vultures on a piece of red meat, Uh, more precisely, a piece of orange meat putrefying in the sun. Well, wow. that's wow. 
my religious right now that we but I'm looking forward um you know to the summer uh, because none other than Jared Kushner said by July the country will really be rocking again and nothing turns me on like thinking of rocking with rocking. Jared and Ivanka you know and if I get an invitation I'll invite you yeah you know one of the things everybody said to me after your wife spoke at our office hour session is that we're not having a, an honest conversation about COVID-19 the way we had with your wife about herd immunity. And we're talking, That's right. you know, so when when he said, you know, drink bleach, the truth is he didn't say drink bleach. <laughs> he didn't say that. He was just being a child and he was thinking out loud. He, I mean, we know that he's an idiot, but we know that he wasn't telling people to drink bleach. He was just thinking if only there, he was basically talking about chemotherapy is what he was talking about. Like, is there a way to disinfect this thing without killing off? I'm not defending him. What I'm upset about is that while they're talking about that on the news, and our tiny little office hours, we've got Dr. Lynn, your wife, explaining herd immunity and that the debate, that there is a legitimate debate going on as to when you open up the economy and that it's about the speed limit. It's about how many people can mm -hmm. get this thing, when do they get it, are the hospitals equipped to deal with it, and there is this reality that Boris... Johnson and the British embraced, and that is we have to be willing to accept certain numbers. The Swedish are willing to accept certain numbers. They're trying to get to herd immunity while keeping the geriatric population safe. This is very complicated. It's difficult. And sure. the, the reason Mike Pence, who should rot in hell, shows up without a mask at the Mayo Clinic is there are two sides to this story. There is a legitimate argument for giving, letting healthy people like Mike Pence get the virus and, and keep the, 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 the old people or the people who have a possible comorbidity keeping them safe. So we're not having that discussion. Yep. Instead, it's look at what an no, idiot look at what an idiot Trump is, and look at what an idiot Pence is. The fact is, why didn't he wear that mask? He knew what he was doing, and why are these people saying open up the economy? Because there are people, there are scientists who are arguing for herd immunity, which I believe. The doctor said during the town hall that we're going to have to get to herd immunity some way, somehow. Right? Yeah, I mean, uh, she she's was infuriated, um, not not by anything that was was said in the uh, office hours, but I mean, over the weekend when they constantly replayed Trump looking at 
Dr. Brits and asking her, shouldn't we investigate this and shouldn't we investigate that? But I don't think that he or Mike Pence have a clue as to what herd immunity is. And I think where they had they been joining you at it, perhaps you didn't invite them, but uh, to the office hours, uh, they would have uh, uh, said uh, nothing. Uh, they wouldn't have said, oh, wait a minute, I'm volunteering to get it. That's, that's the next phase of the stuff they don't want to talk about is there is a way and it, it's been done before where you deliberate, you get volunteers and you deliberately infect them and then you test vaccines on them and see if they work. But look, it's two, three days ago, um, one health, uh, company, um, reports a very, it's important, but it's a very modest kind of change when using one of these new drugs. The stock market went up, I think, 600 points. Yeah. Because people are so desperate to get some kind of information. And just 24 hours ago, another company investigating a vaccine said that they're going to produce, I, th- I think they said one billion doses of it even before, even before they know that it works. <laughs> that's where the money is. Yeah. yeah. And that's what, that's what is building America today, sadly. You know, uh, before you go, what I don't understand, because I've gone outside now, I, you know, I obeyed de Blasio, and then I find out that de Blasio doesn't obey de Blasio. He's off taking hikes in Brooklyn. He's got the SUVs out, the security detail there. And I'm thinking, wait a second, if de Blasio is taking hikes in the woods, I, I got to get out. So I, I went out and did some shopping. And uh, one of the things I realized is that, if every American were given the right kind of mask, the right kind of gloves, I have, I have a, a visor that I'm now wearing, mm-hmm. I, I'd be a little more uh, open to opening the economy. I couldn't get a mask for three weeks. You could not get a mask. I know. The, you know, no, we had can't. a guest on the show from the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, David Wallace, and he was saying at the very least, mm-hmm. this government should be mass producing Purell and hand sanitizer. I uh, can't get Lysol. I can't get no. basically, nope. you know, and, and so the, the president of the United States is uh, uh, evoking the Defense Production Act yeah. so we can eat meat. That we don't need exactly, but we can't get Lysol. Exactly. I can't get Clorox. No. I have a question I want yes. to ask and, you. Uh, Last question, yes, yes. Uh, you are traveling with your wife, and land pirates in Europe seize your car, and they say we will let you go, Americans, if you can tell us one good thing your country has done for the world during the past 20 years. Name one thing that you can boast about, American, filthy American. What would you name? What would you tell the land pirates so they give you back your car and let you tour the Um, Loire Valley? I would say that uh, on some of the big social issues, we have made tremendous progress. For example, most of the countries where those pirates are from, 
have stopped executing people, and we're still executing them, but the amazing drop in support for the death penalty in the United States, I would champion one of the few good things we have managed to do. Don't, so in other words, don't kill me, land pirate, because I come from a country where we're killing fewer of ourselves. That's how you, that's how you defend America? What have yeah, we done for the world? Ready. No, I would, I would add a sentence and I would say, and although we're still killing people, the abolition of the death penalty is a near certainty. So, you land pirates, you louts, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't call them louts. But if you ever get arrested in the United States and get convicted, we won't kill you. All right. That would be persuasive. You think that's good? That's, that's not. That's not really. It's hard yes, to defend. Of course, it's a good thing. The past twenty years. What? What can you point to that this country has done for the world? For the world. Um. I, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, I don't think, to be honest, I don't think we've done much of anything for the world mm-hmm. because we don't focus on the world. Even, even Democrats, even the best Democrats, someone like a Jimmy Carter, who cares more now about the world after leaving office after his one term uh, than he did when he was president. We don't, we're not focused on anything. It, it, Donald Trump is a symbol of making America great by keeping America first. But to think that Clinton and the Bushes and even Carter di- didn't basically say, we got, got to think of ourselves first, yeah. I think would be a misnomer. So what we contributed uh, to the world, good CDs, a couple of good movies, but honestly, they've never been on our radar, the rest of the world. George W. Bush. That's a bummer. You know, maybe it's, it's a tough question. George W. Bush said, we're bringing America to Iraq. And I said, that's not America. <laughs> and he said, stick around. Wait. Exactly. Barry W. Lynn, the exactly. Reverend Barry W. Right. Lynn. I'm sorry you're not going to be uh, the star of uh, Office Hours. Yeah, that's too bad. Yeah, I wasn't the star last time, to be honest. That was, in fact, one of your, uh, one of the people participating, and, and I, I think you should point this out. People can communicate with each other or with. You're breaking in up. a little sidebar. Yeah. Are you there? Are we conversation? And I'm here. Okay. You're not trying to censor me, are you? Uh, yes. But anyways, somebody said uh, someone made fun of the fact that I was. Uh, because, you know, you're visible, and I guess you don't have to be visible. But then I was sitting in a laundry room, and they questioned whether Dr. Lynn had sent me down to the laundry room. <laughs> there were a couple of other rude comments. But then somebody said they would like us to start a, a, a Patreon funding effort uh, so that they could have a, a dinner with the two of us uh over the internet. That, I thought that was that was a kind a, thing to say. That's a great kind, idea. Very kind. That's a great idea. Everybody <laughs> says like, oh, you know, uh, she's his better half, and she's so much better. You know, where's she been all along? And blah blah blah. If I ever remarry, you'll perform the service. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah. I will yeah. always introduce my new wife as my lesser half. <laughs> And she, and I, I just want to say, you know, she really married above her station, didn't she? 
<laughs> Nobody ever says that about the husband. No, Boy, did she don't. did she get lucky? No. <laughs> That's because, as I've often said, uh, there's something fundamentally wrong with men, and uh, all I can do is hope just to eke out a little bit better than the average male. That's about as far as I can go. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn was the executive director of Americans United for Separation of Church and State from 1992 to November of 2017. Besides being an attorney, he is also an ordained minister in the United Church of... Oh, dear. How is this pronounced? I can do this. I can do this. Spit it out, Dave. Spit it out. Christ? Did I get Beautiful. It? Thank you. Beautiful. You've Thank got it. Thank it's, you. It's just wonderful Thank you. that you can learn at your advanced age <laughs> to say things properly. Thank you. I appreciate it. Stay on the line for okay. one second. Stay on the line for one second. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Well, it's that time of the week. It's the end of the week, possibly the world. And that can only mean one thing. Liam McEnany joins us for listener questions. (gasps) But Liam is gone. And there's a new regime. Please welcome... The David Feldman Show's darling, Laura House. Hello, world. (laughs) The most beloved. It's the end of the week as we know it. Yes, and I feel crappy. Not that great. No. Not that great. (laughs) Let's first talk about one of the more humiliating moments of my life. Mm. Last Friday, we did office hours. We're doing office hours tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern. We have plenty of room for everybody. We've That's opened, for sure. <laughs> we've opened up some spaces and I, I don't think we're going to have to turn away anybody. There's room for everybody. So, Laura, you were there. I was there. And it was sub- humiliating. It was pretty, it was pretty fun. I, I guess my favorite part was the first seven hours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is, is Lucille Ball there? <laughs> Lucy, Lucy, we have to move. Your father gave a birthday party and one of the kids got killed with an arrow. That's a true story about Lucille Ball. What? Her dad was killed. No, no, her dad threw a birthday party for one of Lucille Ball's sisters, and there was some game with a bow and arrow, and one of the kids ended up dead. Oh, gosh. And so... Don't use a real one. Yeah, so they had to move out of town over something like that. Different time, different time. Yeah, yeah. So we had the big office hours. I think I'm going to call it after party. Sure. Because it's like the end of the week and all the guests of the David Feldman show gather in mm-hmm. a Zoom room and meet the meet the listeners. 
That was cool. That part was neat. And you bailed me out. Do you remember what happened? I had a. Oh, did you did you actually offend your guest, that nice doctor lady? And she was like, "Wait, why are you doing?" She didn't the, the doing the bits about saying the most sad thing and then just doing sound effects. Actually, it was Harvey K. Oh. So this guy who listens to the show all the time is asking questions, and we're talking about COVID-19. And he says, yeah, I have a mother. She's in her 90s, and she's in a nursing home, and she has COVID-19, and I did. And was I it start- he that was upset, or was it the – but the doctor lady was around, right? Or oh, was she that- was fine with it. Harvey, Professor Harvey J.K., <laughs> Oh, doesn't, yeah, he was like, he what wrote are you to, talking about? Yeah, he, he texted me, he goes, what's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> I guess that is what makes it funny, is that it is so wrong of you to do that. <laughs> and I began so to like, panic. If you're, if you're anywhere on the first part of that spectrum before you get to, oh, I think that's funny, it's very much not funny. <laughs> That's why it's so much funnier on the other side, because it's completely unfunny and then very, very funny. It's, it's really. And so there's a I, real line. I had to find you. You and Brian were there and I didn't know you were there. And I, I then I see that you're there and I'm trying to find you and go, no, no, you have to understand. It's part of the show. <laughs> but you see, like Laura, Laura's father died slowly so i did so the more the more i explained it the worse it got it's when all you think about is comedy this is very funny <laughs> <laughs> but if you're a normal person i see how it could land on on in a not funny way yes. um yeah we were um we tuned in you know it's a little earlier our time and then we um decided to make dinner so we moved you into the kitchen, and then we didn't necessarily want to be those people who make you watch us get ready, cook dinner. Mm-hmm. We don't want to pull focus from the tour of China and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> and so we just put it on our picture or whatever, and then we were just chopping vegetables and whatnot. It, it, it's bizarre because it is not the podcast it is not entertainment. It is a meeting. That's what I yeah. tell people. It is a meeting, and I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. That's an interesting thing about this whole pandemic is, like, that crosses the line of, like, what makes it a show and what makes it just friends talking. Mm-hmm. You know, like, if... You know, when a show does like, you know, Bill Maher or whatever does like an after hours, it's not what it is. It's like, oh, we just continued what we were doing and we put it up on YouTube. Right. Yeah, it is a different thing, but you're still obviously feel responsible to make it entertaining or informative. Right. (laughs) Or something because it. It's born of the show. But, yeah, it's it's not pure entertainment. But I got to tell you from. I have a perspective that you can't possibly have because I had, we were watching, we were watching and listening and I, I, 
we were all having a pretty good time in the chat room. So oh, you probably you probably can't even read it as fast as it's happening. But everybody was because it was like Twitter, but just for people who listen to your show uh-huh. about what's happening in real time. And it was pretty good, pretty entertaining. I yeah. don't know if you hold on to it and can look at the chat. Yeah, I, they they uh, you can download the chats, and I have them. And I did not have an opportunity yet to read them, but I, you're not the only person who's told me the real show is in the chat room. The real show is in the chat. Yeah. That's so in a way, like the pressure is off you. Cause it, it is like, I mean, what it's, if it's all people who listen to you, like that's like-minded people. And so everybody's just like, I don't know. In England, you say taking the piss. Like everyone's just like. Right. Ripping on every, like, just making funny comment, you know, stuff that, like, stuff you would mutter to yourself if you're listening to the podcast. But, like, that was where the community was happening. And it was pretty funny. Like, I can't think of anything specifically, but, like, we're laughing out loud. And then you start to look for, just like on Twitter, like, oh, I like that guy. Oh, who's, who's mm-hmm. that lady? Like, you, you start finding your friends mm-hmm. <laughs> in the chat and you're like, ah, good one. <laughs> now, can you, my goal is to have people make actual connections so that they become friends and hive off and do something together. Can you do that? Because I don't know how the chat works. Um, I guess you could. That's that's pretty funny because that just made me think of, like, if that were a segment of your after party of, like, now we're going to make connections if people well we're doing that jennifer verlin i I screwed up but dr jennifer if if you come tonight let's pretend this is actually friday it's really thursday but yeah yeah but we're pretending it's friday time is weird anyway during this pandemic i mean every every it's just one long monday yeah (laughs) like you know you got to get to work but but hang on, let's go back to the the, the meeting because if, uh, Jennifer Verlin, the animal behaviors, is going to be there tonight. I screwed up her invitation, and mm. she's making love connections. She hooked up four people, and we're going to find oh. out. Right, and we're doing breakout rooms. It, you know, I'm willing to try anything. We, we, I'm fascinated. We have funny polls, and I, go go ahead. I we enjoyed the funny polls. And then it was funny to see people making fun of the funny polls. Like that's what was so great was like all your listeners are smart ass right. people. They're smart, smart ass funny people. So it was everything about it was great. It was like everywhere you looked, it was great. And then, you know, you go get a drink or dinner or whatever. You know, it's just kind of casual, interesting thing and and people are doing things in the like. If you look, you can see everybody, and they're doing. They have their pets, and yeah. they're holding up signs. And we kept putting our we kept putting our dog on, trying to uh-huh. make make her a star, I guess. So Emilio, I, we've assigned Emilio because he is over at our subreddit, and he posted minutes from the last meeting, and I read it. <laughs> And I started laughing out. It was so funny because he took it seriously. Oh, and, really? and it was really yeah. sweet. He's a, Emilio, he's a great listener. And he just wrote down minutes for people oh. who missed the meeting. 
And I read it, and it was really great. So I've reached out to him. I want to start the meeting by having Emilio read the meetings from our last meeting. (laughs) That's so great. And I just want to give people different responsibilities. Maybe, I don't know if you want to do this, but to go through, I can email you the chats, and you can be the mistress of the chat room who... Just I'm throwing this out here. I'm just suggesting maybe, you know, not always, but if I if if you want to highlight some of the chat from last week, you know, maybe. Something. Well, I was going to say, I don't know if I have like nine hours to do that. Um, <laughs> right? like, I know we don't have anywhere to go, but I still consider my time precious. Okay. But, but you know what I was thinking would be funny is, you know, when you're uh l- listeners might want to do that in the sense and in and kind of like as it goes like you know when you're in a writer's room and it's like stuff is funny but then somebody says that thing and like uh-huh. it goes on the board right <laughs> like you could have like it goes on the board concept oh so, so somebody's then, reading the chats in real time yeah, so then just somebody else reading just like when you're in a writer's room you know somebody like all caps can be like on the board and then maybe somebody keeps track of you know the 15 comments or whatever that end up being like on the board and, and we the, could do the whiteboard at the end or the next week or something right there's a whiteboard here with zoom <laughs> yeah so maybe somebody can, can write your, it down. And you can have leslie be the like literally writing it on the board yes yes Okay, uh, so then, then as a listener, I would be so excited to get my comment on that board. Like I would, I would honestly be. I would really, be, yeah. I would be like, I want to say something that, to, like that. That's a housey. I want to say something that lands and like have somebody write it on a board. That would be so great. Well, maybe we should call them houseys. You know, if you get housey, it's confusing if it's not specifically me but whatever you know no, no, the rule is if somebody says something really funny that's a housey goes, that's a housey that's a housey named after laura house something that's <laughs> really brilliant that's yeah, a housey if you, get, if you get a housey on the board i mean i'll take it i would love to be associated with that that's pretty funny all right we're going to do this every you know even when the pandemic is over i we're just going to keep doing so it. many great things are being invented that should keep going after the pandemic is over. Like hopefully some certain things will fall by the wayside and then some other things will keep going. Mm-hmm. Like this is, um, this is a little, uh, a different kind of thing, but somebody reached out, you know, I teach meditation. Well, hang on. We could call it house party. <laughs> if you want to just go ahead and give your whole show over to me again, open okay. house. Open house. House calls yeah. where we call, we, we can do phony phone calls. Uh, <laughs> or that's when I, that's when I interview doctors. Mm-hmm. It's house calls. Right. We come to you. Go ahead. So, so yeah. you said somebody. No, house has a lot of uh, those weird things. Mm-hmm. Um, no, but like, so I teach meditation and somebody reached out to me and said, oh, could you, could we, could you sort of do a little meditation lesson with me and like every day for a week? And like, that's nothing I ever would have done in real world time of like, I'm not driving to your house at seven in the morning. And, but like every day we like hop on zoom and it's a little, 
message and a little lesson and we meditate together and she's like, Oh great. This like makes me do it. And it's like, that's something that would not have come out of before the pandemic. What if, cause the Reverend Barry Lynn, <clears throat> who's the official pastor of the David Feldman show. Uh-huh. And he's married to Dr. Lynn, who was amazing. Right. Wasn't she was amazing? That, yeah. We couldn't get enough of her. I know. I know. She answered. You know what? If I can just well, let, see, put a pin in it see, for one second. Put put mm-hmm. a pin in it. What about you doing uh, like a, a five, like a, a thirty second meditation for everybody who arrives at the the party? We we because we have a invocation from the Reverend. Oh, an opening prayer, and I'll introduce you as the the best meditator in the world. Nobody's better. She's won several meditation contests mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. eyes most closed <laughs> I, want, I want that would you do a like um, a med- could we do a group meditation for like biggest bliss remember? <laughs> remember when i won that one but could we try uh, that where you yeah. you led a meditation for uh i can do that and then i could it's, it's gonna take a little more than 30 seconds but yes how I long can... would it take uh give me a few minutes to like say a little thing and then and i'll we'll do this <laughs> My, my own. That'll be our wrap it up. <laughs> All right. So you have an assignment. Yeah, I can do a little meditation. Yeah. Can Can Brian do revelry? Revelry. <laughs> yeah. All right. So he's yeah, got. He's, he's so excited to do a concert. He started doing them on Instagram. So yeah. Hang on. So I'm Is making. Is that what this, you want him to play? Uh. D- and maybe something, but that would be good to start off, you know, call the meeting to order with reverie. I'm writing this down. Okay, Brian's going to do reverie. How do you pronounce that? I don't know. Is it reveille? Reveille, something like that. All right. And uh, I'll tell a joke, and then he plays taps. <laughs> and he can also... Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, so, and then Laura's going to lead us in meditation. All right. And Emilio is going to read the minutes. Mm-hmm. And, and then you can have comments that go on the board. It's a housey. Yeah, the housey board. We're going to need somebody who really can follow the chat room. Well, this is what I think. This is what I think will happen. Just like in a, in a writer's room, if you introduce the concept or people who are listening now, I think very quick, just like in a writer's room where everybody goes, Oh, and it gets that big response. You just kind of know. And like, so if somebody, for example, you know, like in the chat puts like on the board or that's a housey or whatever, then like it's those comments that you look at. Like it doesn't have to be a, a person personally discerning, oh, I thought that was funny or I didn't find that funny. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, and can, it's kind of a group, it's kind of a group thing. Can people um, vote like, up a chat? They, they, can't, they can't vote up a chat. It's not like you vote like in Reddit, but it, but it like, 
if somebody made a comment, like sometimes some, like in the comments, somebody would make a comment and then the next three or four people are like, ha ha, or good one, or ah, that, you know. Uh huh. Uh -huh. There's comments on that comment about how funny that comment was. Right. Like it'll, it'll grow into something. I think so. I think that's a fun. Well, let me invite the listeners tonight at nine Eastern. We're doing office hours. I'm going to change the name to After Party, where all the guests of the David Feldman Show who appeared this week are asked to come to our After Party and meet the listeners. We'll, we'll mingle, and we've been. This will be the fourth one. It's a lot of fun. They go. It goes. I don't know. It, it's weird. It's weird. It's and it's. Uh, I don't I know what it is. At the exact same time. I'm by sorry. The way. Just, I'm having one called House Party at the exact same time. Oh, that's just good. So you know. Okay. So if listeners want to go to that, that's you can do either one. I guess that's like a fringe party. A what? That's like the fringe party that they're having, or like you know, at the Oscars they have the Governor's Ball, which everybody <laughs> you know rushes through to get to the HBO party or the. Yeah, I was just going to have a just an opposing one just to try to lure everyone. Yeah. So you go, oh, where is, oh, where is everyone? Yeah. So to get it, uh, to come to office hours, you, you don't need Zoom. There, uh, there's also a phone number you can dial in via phone. Mm. And I think you can even attend via Skype with a business link. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit office hours, and just say, send me an invite, and we'll send you an invite. There's going to be plenty of room. I've upgraded so that there's plenty of room. So you can all show up. You don't have to show your face. If you want to show your face, you can show your face or you can be anonymous. A lot of people choose to be anonymous. It was pretty fun. And we, um, I didn't know, because I, I don't really like parties. <laughs> so I, it doesn't even appeal to me to really mm -hmm. group meet necessarily all the time. And so, uh, but we, you know, we tend to watch movies at night and there was something so great about, oh, it's like, it's sort of, it's, it's a thing happening. Yeah. <laughs> like it's a, like it, like we actually, I actually had a little excitement, like, oh, there's a thing. Do you want to log on to this actual event that's happening? Can you get to my website? Do you mind checking? I'm having trouble logging into my website. All right, you're going to hear some clicks, which I know annoy you. You're chewing gum. <laughs> no, I'm typing. That's my hip. Oh. <laughs> Is my website down? Uh, did you know that your address comes up? What do you mean, my address? No, it doesn't. Oh, David Feldman Show. Now I see it. What do you mean, my address? Let me, I'll look to say, no, I get it. You're, you're, it comes up. Um, and I see office hours. Oh, so tell people, yeah, I'm having trouble. And it says join us. Yeah. So you go to davidfeldmanshow.com and then you click and there's the title, David Feldman Show, and then home, how to listen, and then office hours, click on office hours. And then you fill out this little form and you submit it. And that's how you get. Your invitation. You get the invitation and you just and show up. I have the link. 
Yeah, you just show up. It's different from if I'm doing an interview with a professor or an author, there's a registration process because we have limited seats. But for this, uh, any, you know, you, you just get the invitation. Uh, so let me do this, if you don't mind. Let us. But an address came up. Do you want to hear it? Well, is it my private address? Well, it, it's the first thing that came. When I typed David Feldman, I don't know if it's private. It's the first thing that came up. It says Feldman David B. Oh, it says lawyer in Beverly Hills. That's probably not you. Are you David B.? Uh, I could be. Are you at 150 South Rodeo Drive? Yes, I am. No, that's a different David Feldman. Were you at 150 South Rodeo? There's an entertainment lawyer named David Feldman, and I've I've gotten thank you notes from celebrities. Commission? No, thank you notes for the gift. So, uh, yeah. And I've been invited to some parties because he's... uh, I guess he handles some famous people. So Mm. anyway, let us do this. Let us do listener questions. Why don't you tell people what, can you go to, because I can't open my page. Can you tell people? Yeah, it's weird today. Can you give out the phone number? For listener questions? Yeah, it's ask, uh, listener questions, and then it's call me. It's not ask me anything. Well, there's ask me anything, which people know how to do. But we also have a phone number that I stopped giving out once Liam said he didn't want to do this anymore. Oh. I, don't know, I don't know where Liam is, but uh, um, is there a phone number? Is it? Is it? Oh, I see. With office hours, got it. Yeah, can you read that if you don't mind? Uh, do it as as Lucy though. Oh, that's all I do. That's all I have. Uh, oh, listener questions. Oh, it's under Ask Me Anything. Yeah. Uh, you've got questions. I've got answers. I don't see a phone number. Sorry. All right. There's a phone number. Do you see it? Okay. Let me play some. Oh, uh, call me. Oh, got it. Sorry. Yeah. What's the number? Please. 202 so it's 202-670-2752 is our phone number. Leave us a message. I stopped giving that number out once Liam disappeared, but now that Laura's doing it and there's going to be a new tone, oh. feel free to leave us a message. Let me play you some uh, voicemails that got left, and you can respond, okay? Are you ready? Okay, you- I'm scared. Well, so am I. I haven't heard them. My question is, what will characterize the PC world? By PC, I mean post-corona. Okay, bye. That's interesting. Post-corona. Like, what will comedy be like post-corona? But did he just say, But did he mean the world or comedy? I would assume the PC world... And the post-corona PC culture hissing. No, but he just said PC meaning post-corona. I just think, like, what's the tone of the world after coronavirus? Okay, that's how you take it. What do you think? <laughs> I'm not going to argue. Oh, man. Um, probably, um, 
at first, one of my first reactions to this and lockdown was, um, oh, wow, maybe consumerism will fall away and we'll all, because one of my first reactions was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I bought that kind of expensive pair of shoes a month ago. Mm-hmm. Um, or like, I was like, gosh, the stuff I thought was important a week ago does not. Now, I'll, now the only thing that seems important is, am I healthy? Are the people I love healthy? Are we okay? And I was like, gosh, maybe like it looked for a second, maybe healthcare might catch fire. And there's a, <laughs> so I, I, I felt like, oh, maybe we'll lose some of the shittiness of our, of our modern times. Yeah. And then the government kept happening and I felt like, oh, uh, I would love for it to be calmer. And we've all learned a lesson in uh, greed gone too far. Bad things happen and we're a little more chill. Yeah, but it's I, getting I am worse. Afraid it'll still be um, hatred and money is the most important thing ever. Because Joe Biden's the nominee. Well, I don't know if it's because he's the nominee. It just, it's just like, I've thought of it this way. I may have said this to you, but like part of what's frustrating is like, if this was a movie, the bad guy, this is where the bad guy goes, oh no, what have I done? (laughs) But that's not what they're doing. They're being like, oh, I can make even more money doing, doing this. And, Um, and the good guy is saying, well, I hope you've learned your lesson. We're going to do the same thing, but be more secretive about it. Yeah. So hopefully, um, you know, hopefully t- time shakes some of that out. I don't know what else, you know, sort of does that. What What do you think if it's specifically at comedy um, PC? What's your thought on that? Well, I'll address the comedy in a second. The problem I have is... Once again, this is the same opportunity we had in 2008 to elect a a good man to be president or a good woman to be president who would then change things. And we ended up with Barack Obama. And as the years go on, you begin to realize that he, you know, I love him. Not a good guy. He knew about Joe Biden. He vetted Joe Biden for vice president. He knew about Tara Reid and the accusations, but he picked him anyway. And I'd like to know. And I, when I say he picked him anyway, he picked him for, for vice president. That is not forgivable. But what's even worse is that on Super Tuesday, Joe Biden won specifically because Barack Obama worked the phones and made deals behind the scenes to get Joe Biden the nomination. And this is the least qualified man to be the nominee for the Democratic Party. This is the of all the candidates. He is the weakest. He He's being propped up by opportunistic lobbyists and the old guard of the Democratic Party. And it's going to get worse, not better. It's just bad. And and it's just a different group that's going to come in and loot the Treasury, but do it with a little more class. That's the only difference between the, the Clinton-Obama camp and the Trumps. The Clintons and the Obamas, they steal from us 
in a classy way. And, I miss that. Huh? I miss that. Yeah, I do. I miss it. It's the aesthetic. It's the aesthetic. And Bernie offered <laughs> at this a... Point, at this point, I long for that. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, he put us to sleep and gave rise to the language police. They existed before Obama became president, but the language police, the PC police, came to fruition under the Obama years because it was more important what you said than what you did. That's what the PC police care about. What are you saying is more important than what you do? And Obama and the Clintons and Joe Biden are more about what they say than what they do. The post-corona environment will be like the pre-corona environment because nothing's going to change, folks. Joe Biden is, if we're lucky, Joe Biden becomes president. And we get a couple of nice Supreme Court nominees. Yeah, that's important. Roe v. Wade, that's important. The kids will be taken out of the cages and uh, Mitch McConnell will stop everything from happening. It's bad. It's really bad. Did I answer your question? It's a real, real bummer. Hey, yeah. we're having a party tonight, folks. Nine o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> what if? Yeah. What if it keeps getting so bad people have to change? I don't know. I mean, was there is there a time we can look at? No, people don't change. Where people in power were not objectifying and abusing the disenfranchised. No, it's always been that way. But we don't learn our so, lessons. So... Essentially, we we, I mean, we want that to change, but we also at least want the best version of that we <laughs> we can get. I mean, I the the longer I'm an adult, the more it seems to me like, oh, this is and you know, and back in time and feudal lords and peons and French Revolution and you know, like it seems to me when it gets really, really bad, at some point it cracks and breaks and then there's some restructuring and change. So that's what I've, I've been hoping would come out of this, that because such a bad situation, something had to break and something had to change and that it changes for the better. Um, I guess we'll see. Yeah. I mean, that happened. That's the narrative of the New Deal, but certainly after the financial crisis of 2008, things got worse. Fewer banks, fewer corporations, bigger gap between the wealthy and the poor. Nothing changed. They even paid themselves exorbitant bonuses right after we bailed out the banks. Nothing changed. Then we try to save the working man with the Paycheck Protection Act, guess what? Big business took the small business loans and they paid themselves bonuses with that money. They paid dividends with that money. The Lakers got the money. Ruth? Is there, so when, is there anything like if, if 
I feel like it's said a lot, like, um, but young people want Medicare for all, right? Yeah. Young people want, um, you know, this a move toward socialism but in a lot of respects, But right? they don't vote. They didn't turn out for Bernie. So is that really just the problem? Because I was wondering if it was like, because in globally, when you or whatever, when you look at it overall, when boomers were young, they were the ones like the big chill that were like, we want change. And then then when they got older, is part of the problem is that young people get older and then they don't want those things anymore? They get co-opted. They take a couple of people like the Clintons and the Obamas and let them into the the 1% and perpetuate the myth of the meritocracy so that the rest of us blame ourselves for not having any money. That's how the system works. What happened to the baby boomers? They got convinced that they were ugly, had no class, had no style, and that's what Madison Avenue that's how Madison Avenue turned the baby boomers into sheep. Really? Yeah, they got advertised to. I never thought about it that way. Yeah. The answer is we don't learn from history here in the United States. The answer is Sherman, when he raised Atlanta, you know, during the Civil War, Sherman burnt Atlanta to the ground. And, uh, the problem with that is he didn't burn the entire South to the ground. The problem is that Reconstruction stopped and we gave the South a voice. It was the Compromise of 1876, I believe, Tilden versus Rutherford B. Hayes. So in order for Rutherford B. Hayes to become president, they ended Reconstruction. And the radical Republicans had the right idea, which is you, you seceded. Now you're going to pay. You're going to pay for this. And they should have leveled the South instead. Oh, instead, like pull it up by the roots. Just you guys are bad. You defended slavery. This wasn't about states' rights. Slavery. Or what if they had done something to ensure that the South could thrive in other industries that didn't depend on slavery, like how we want to stop coal mining and we want to stop coal, but it, instead of, you know, we're not really giving people another option of how to make money. If what they, if their whole industry is coal, we're just going, Hey, stop it. Don't do that anymore. Like what if you, you gave people a chance to do something else where they could. Well, that's thrive. what they did with the South. They were, you know, uh, malice towards none is what Abraham Lincoln said in his second inauguration. And I think that was a mistake. Right. But that's just like not leveling them. But it doesn't seem like something was really put in place to like help with other industries or, you know, have some kind of re-education or re, you know. You, helping you, you have to earn like, well, like, you have to earn that. Well, you have to earn it, and the South didn't earn it. The, the plantation owners didn't earn the right to have their farms make something other than cotton. See, you know, Japan and Germany got leveled after World War II, and we rebuilt them 
in our own image. They earned the right for us to feel sorry for them because we destroyed them. And now there's a social safety net and unions are strong and there are reasonable, there are two reasonable democracies. Whereas the United States, we didn't do to the South what we did to Germany and Japan. We should have leveled the South. And we malice towards none and we try to create a more perfect union and we let the states back in and they didn't really have to pay a price and they they should have been second class citizens and they immediately reemerged after the civil war after the end of reconstruction they created an underclass of african americans who became tenant farmers and the jim crow laws turned our prisons in the South into the new plantations, and there's still a problem. The South is still an effing problem, and they get equal say as New York and, and Massachusetts and Illinois, and they, they reopen their businesses in, in, in the middle of a pandemic, and we take them seriously because they're equal to us? No, they should have been leveled. Just white, just mow that whole area down below the Mason Dixon and say, okay, you want to be an American? Here's what you got to do. So that's the mistake we made. And that's why we can't change as a people because of the South. Um, sorry. Being from Texas, I never quite heard it that way. Yeah, but Texas Texas is different from the South. I'm talking about yeah, but when we were there, yeah, but and it's and it's still a problem. The South is a state of mind, really. Now, where have you learned this um, history? Is it in a book or something somewhere? Well, certainly not from the Texas school books. Um, It isn't. I'm like. I'm mortified by how that stuff was taught to us. It was a little different. It's actually what I hear um, being echoed now with the, um, there are places in my education and in my, you know, my legit, like my public education, you know, my in school of like, oh, the, the North was telling the South what they could and couldn't do. And that's why we fought. Like, it's not like, oh, we did these heinous things and, owned people and you know we they had a point it was like no you know like they can't these other states can't just tell us what to do and we so we went to war and it's like that's what I hear in this like it's so baffling to me that it's like you can't tell me what to do and it's like there's a contagious virus we don't have a cure for we didn't plan Mm -hmm. this it's it's not personal we're not mad at you it's where everybody it's bigger than all of us. Please go inside. This is insane. But yeah. When we, you we, talk to me sometimes, do you feel like you're talking to a baby? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Not you. Uh, the country. The country. <laughs> I mean, California has behaved reasonably. The state of Washington during this crisis, reasonably. Oregon, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts. They've behaved like adults. Georgia and Florida, babies. 
because they were we've we've asked the children what they want to do mm. and their children and i know people don't want to hear that but you know i'm sorry the, uh, the american the curse of the american empire is we had 13 colonies and we expanded west and we were afraid of europe we were afraid of becoming like europe internecine fragmentation everybody so we we would colonize the west but then we'd take the territory and say come on be a state we'll give you two senators and a congressperson and you can be one of us and there's the rub because if you live in Wyoming you're not one of us you should have been colonized and remained a colony with limited say. Jesus Christ, the people of Wyoming have more say than the people of Washington, D.C. How does America end? Uh, that's been answered with a whimper. It ended. It's unsustainable. Hey, we're having a party tonight, 9 o'clock. <laughs> Bring your friends, tell your friends there's going to be room for everybody. Laura House is going to be there. We keep asking that question. It, it, it's they've they've taken out the one element of destruction, and that is you can't see it. We're we're ending the way Rome ended. Rome didn't end in a day. It was over. Yeah, that's what I that's what I've been wondering. Of like, oh, what's the end? Is it when it's over? Well, but it's still going. But it's that's why I'm wondering, like, oh, what is? Well, what, what do you? What do you? What is it? When is it? You know, things were still going. To, to me, it's over, over when like another country says, "Oh, this is now this country." You know, like when, like when we remapped Europe, and they're like, "You're not this country anymore. You're this other country." That's been decided. You're this. You put this on your envelopes now. This is where you live now. No. This is, to this, me, that's when it's over, yeah, over, when you it, go, oh, we, we actually have to learn this new language. Right, but that's just branding. This, we're oh. Sonny Von Bulow, and okay. Klaus Von Bulow is running the, the, the household, and he's stupping another woman, insisting, no, no, I'm still married to Sonny Von Bulow. She's in a coma, yes, and no, I didn't kill her. Of course I didn't kill Sonny. And, oh, look at that beautiful house in Newport, Rhode Island. The Von Bulos live there. And that's what people see on the outside. They don't realize oh. that Sonny's in a coma. And, We're in a coma. And, and Kloss is off stooping other women and is not committed at all to the marriage. Ooh. So the corporations are, are Kloss Von Bulo. They've gone off. They don't need a nation state. And we're Sonny. We're Sonny Von Bulow in a coma. And, and we think we're alive. And we think we live in this beautiful mansion in Newport, Rhode Island. But we're not getting any of the benefits of living in this mansion. That's who we are. We're told we're the richest country in the history of civilization. And, but we can't even bailout. I mean, look at us. We can't even get $1,200 <laughs> to the, our people. We can't even 
Congress can't even get the checks delivered. It's over. It's over. I'm going to I'm going to take a a cry break. Well, I mean, look at this place. But where's where's our weird just cuz it can get worse doesn't mean it isn't over. Oh, okay, got it. You can be in a so coma it's and it's over. The routing, like the game is over. Everything's lost. It's 75 to 2, but the game isn't over. <laughs> it's just going to keep scoreboard. The, scoreboard. Right. Right. The, the game is over. Oh like, no, no. This is a routing. Mhm. I thought this was going to be nine innings. Nah, we're just going to keep. Why? Who says nine? We're having fun at bat. Mm-hmm. All right. Can this now, country? Can we? You what? know, I, you know, I'm a big sports person. Yes. I'm not. What has this country done right in the past? Electricity. Okay. In the past. 20 years. What can you point Netflix. to? What can you point to in this country? Netflix. Netflix. We did that. Okay. Or maybe we haven't done anything in the past 20 years because of Netflix. We did. What did we do? What good have we done? The Sham Wow. That's I've, true. But he we went to prison. Didn't he go to prison, the Sham Wow guy? <laughs> Probably. All of those guys end up being like, pedos and mm-hmm. weird like yeah but I don't think the ShamWow guy was a, a pedo but uh, what if I we just various okay you're let's say you and I are traveling right oh <laughs> this, you're going okay this is going to be nice we're traveling let's go and nowhere be the boop boop <laughs> On my way back home. Okay, we're traveling. So this is going to be a nice story, right? <laughs> I love that song. Okay, we're traveling and we're happy. And then mm-hmm. land pirates hijack oh, our car. Land pirates. Land pirates. And okay. and they they. Take us out of our car, and I immediately say, "Take my friend Laura. She's a woman. You'll probably want her." Mm. I'm having a low blood sugar attack. Let me just walk to the nearest cafe and eat. But have fun with Laura. I'll be back in an hour. No. So they say they hold a gun to our heads and they say, "We're land pirates. Defend your country. Give us a reason we shouldn't hate you for being American. What have you done in the past twenty years that we should like you?" Now, I'm being serious, Laura. Defend this country. What what can you point to and say you should you shouldn't hate Americans? We did blank. What did we do? What did we do in the past twenty years that would make a, a the Avengers the Avengers movies? Okay, that's a good answer. You won. I guess it's sort of case by case. I mean. There's so many good people and good things and people helping people and nice. What have we, I'm getting angry. I have a nice human experience. I don't know how. What have we done? 
if you're a because I've noticed this with foreigners, friends who live overseas, mm-hmm. they would always defend America, and not so much lately. What have we? What well, can you point to? It's very hard. In the past three years, we've been inundated with. Um, bold blatant you know it's been a a barrage of okay Uh, under obama i don't i know you didn't sign up for this conversation i apologize but under obama i'll change the subject what what i'm used to not knowing stuff the the answer is there's nothing i don't know i mean i it's there's got to be a spec i'm sure there are things that we've done that are that are nice but i your point is taken but i i think there's something. I feel like with the land pirates, I'd be like, oh, man, I do not pay attention to stuff. I'm Can you ask another car? I didn't know there was going to be a quiz, Ricky. I, I just I'd be like, ah, oh, land pirates. Man. Uh, I told you not to take the five. <laughs> it would turn into that. That's what they That's when you drive in California. They're like, yeah. Don't take the 10. There's land pirates. Hey, <laughs> <Aye>, matey. <laughs> Thar she blows me in the Philip 76 restroom. Thar she blows. Well, let's go to listener questions. Uh, oh, you hear that? They're cheering for our workers. At 7 o'clock every night, they cheer oh. the health care workers. And that is a reminder that this country has great people, lousy leaders. Yeah. Great people, lousy leaders, the health care workers who put it all on the line. And, uh, yeah, and our leadership just takes them for granted. Billy Brown, go ahead. Wasn't there a change not that long ago where corporate money was like didn't you, there used to be different rules about like you had to report corporate money or it could only be a certain amount and then there was citizens united or yeah citizens united and mm-hmm. such and yeah. wasn't that a huge problem just like when i grew up you, it was illegal to advertise drugs on television and you know, whiskey. There, were never, there were never ads that said, ask your doctor about this drug. Like you went to your doctor, you didn't know any drugs. That was their job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you didn't say, oh, you better give me such and such or I'll sue you for malpractice. They, they, they were, you generally left that up to them. Like those two things in my lifetime seem to have made a huge difference. And maybe not the hugest. I guess people in power always like power and stuff, but it seems to be um, a little more kind of batshit out of control. You know, they say, ask your doctor about Stunod. And I think, okay, so, hey, doc, do you know about Stunod? And he goes, no, I do not. And I'm going, well, in that case, you're an idiot. Yeah. Yeah, suddenly I know it more than you. I saw a 15-second ad. I do want to say this. Um, it's half half of a bit. Heads up. Have you seen the commercials for Sky Rizzy? No, what is Sky Rizzy? Are they just, I don't even know. Are they just letting anyone name drugs? It's called Sky Rizzy. 
It might be for herpes or yeah. uh, shizzy. If you have some bad shizzy, you hit so you can get back to playing volleyball or whatever. They're like sky rizzy. I'm like that cannot be. My friend Mark, who lives in San Francisco, he. Oh, I love that guy. Yeah, and he. One of his jobs is he names drugs and products. No, really? Yes. He came up he, with Gynamotrin. Amazing. Gynamotrin. That is so that's like pain relief for your lady part. I and yeah. I came up with the reason you need Gynamotrin. Uh-huh. That was my invention. <laughs> of just your existence. Mm-hmm. Are you the reason people need it? What is Gynamotrin? I don't know. It sounds like mo like muscle relaxer for your for lady areas. Is is it a muscle? Well, Motrin is a brand pain relieving drug. Listen, I don't know. But is the lady region a muscle? Well, all I know is when you like, I'm not a surgeon. <laughs> when you have cramps, menstrual cramps, you take a muscle relax. So there are muscles in there. I don't. I don't know that you would say it's a. Mu- I mean, it's certainly a muscle at certain parts. I can squeeze it. I mean, Look, I'm doing it now. I, 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 well, hang on. Are you talking about it? It tastes like muscles, like at an Wait. Italian restaurant. No, not those muscles. It's a muscle relax. I don't know. I don't even have to deal with that stuff anymore, so I don't really think about it. Not because but, you've aged out. It's just you just don't give it. I don't just care. don't care about I it. I don't care. Um, Jerry Stahl and I tried to sell a show about a guy who that was his job to name those things. How is Jerry? I don't know. I haven't talked to him for a long time, but I I, I saw him, you know, within the past couple of years. He was good. I got to get him back on the show. I mean, he contacted me. He gave if me, he says he's busy, you know he's blowing you off. Yeah. Well, he's busy. He's always writing. Permanent Midnight and a lot of great. I just stuff. mean we're not allowed to leave the house. If someone's like, I'm really busy right now, you just you have to know they're not interested. Are you busy? I'm busy. Right I'm now. busy doing stuff. I'm just saying if somebody's too busy. Mm. Now, your show for the BBC. Can we yeah. talk about that? Can we talk about your BBC project? Yeah. <laughs> okay, we won't talk about it. No, it just all got put on hold, and it makes me sad. Yeah. I mean, of course it did. We can't fly to Belfast and film it. That that was the job. What are we, in April? Yeah, we would have started filming in a month. To be in, God, to be in Belfast in May. The troubles are beautiful this time of year. <laughs> Stop and smell the troubles, they say. <laughs> um, yeah, it really is a cool city. I really liked being there. And then we, we film it like, you know, half hour out, outside of town. It's just like it, it, insanely beautiful. I kept taking pictures, and this one guy on set, one of the – camera assistant guys was like he just thought it was funny because he was like this is just what I grew up with like this is just what to me this is just what you know like a view is to me because I I was like can you believe like literally a dappling of sheep and Mm. (laughs) you were just like I've never even seen a dappling now a dappling of sheep is that like uh, a herd of cows and a 
I don't even know if it's, I just mean like if you look at the, it was so picturesque. It was like you looked at this, these meadows of these rolling hills and it was just like seven sheep here and. Oh, I thought that's like. Over here and it was just like a little dappling of sheep. It's not like a pride of lions. It was just like, it was just so lovely. Oh, you're right. You know what you call it? Gr- you, would, you would apply a word like that. Yeah, you know what the word is for a group of sheep? Come on. A ghetto? No. Um, a carrot? No. I have a joke. I'm going to make a joke. Is it a butthole of sheep? <laughs> that you're getting there. Oh. Hang on. Attention, everybody. David Feldman is about to make a joke. Let's see no, if Laura the, can guess it. Keep, no, what's a I have to keep guessing? Yes, because I have a joke that I'm about to make that I just came up with. Oh. And I'm declaring that I have a funny that I'm about to make. It's a herd of cows, a pride of lions, a what of sheep. What do you call a group of sheep together? Uh... Here's my joke. Are you ready? That's your joke. You ready for my joke? What do you call a group of sheep, David? Hang on, folks. Let me just clear my throat because I'm about Uh, to... Congress. Um, I I tried to go political. Yeah, hang on. Here's my funny. Democrats. Well, now you're not letting me be my... Do my joke. Attention. I'm about to make a funny... Is everybody ready? Everybody look at me and listen. You ready? Ask me the question. What what do you call a group of sheep? An orgy. At my house. On a Sunday night. Because I like to make love to sheep. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's... It's the way you said it real sad that made it seem true. <laughs> I love the pomposity of it. I just love declaring I have a joke. Is it is it called an orgy of sheep? No. That's what that's one of those words that is so weird it seems true, like a murder of crows. A mur- I was trying to remember that, a murder of crows. Yeah, that's one of those where you go, like, that's one of those weird things I go, I guess maybe it is called an orgy of sheep. Like, it's just weird enough yeah. that you go, yeah, I, 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 yeah I, I can see it, I guess. Yeah. Well, this is great. I love doing this with you. Let me just read. I have two questions. This is from Billy Brown, BB. He'll be at the party tonight. Yeah, he will. Yeah, BB. He comes to the party. He says, David, I need Howie Klein's recipe for chili with chocolate. I'm tired of farro and celery root. Have you, do you eat farro? You know, very weird. I love farro. I only recently discovered it. I love it. I can't believe how good it is. I was like, you know what? That's going to be my new rice. I'm going to be a farro person. And we were at Sprouts. And I guess it's, it's, yeah, I get, it's not an, can you hear me? Yeah. 
it's not an astronomical difference. It's still a grain, but it's so much more expensive <laughs> than rice. We were like, why is pharaoh so expensive? So then I was like, maybe I won't be a pharaoh person. Pharaoh is the Roman army marched on pharaoh. It is high in fiber, high in protein. If you, it's I'm going to go get it then. I love it. It's chewy and... It's like pasta plus a rice in that yes. one little grain. And it's healthy for you. And you you think you're going to eat a lot of it. And mm. you start eating it. And you can't. It's just so fu- filling. And it it has like this natural risotto taste and feel to yes, it. It is risotto-y. It's risotto-y, but there's no dairy in it. Yeah. I, um, you know what? I'm going to go back to Sprouts and get it. Cause I was like, I was like, is that what you want? But I do. I love, I love when I ate it. I was like, I cannot believe how good it is. Here's what I've been doing. And I'm like, and then I was like, God, how old am I? Like I'm at that, I'm at that age where I'm like, Ooh, Pharaoh is, I'm at the, I say something every day that I swore when I was eight, I would just never be. <laughs> You look at you look at adults when you're little, and you're like, "Please never!" And now I'm like, "It's all it's all I say." Yeah. Listen, I'm not a good. Sh- I don't know how to cook. Really? Yeah, but this is what I do. Cooking is so easy and fun. I take olive oil. Oh. I turn up. How the- is she? Well, sometimes Bluto comes by. <laughs> and then Wimpy. He saw my pharaoh because he's trying. Uh, he's trying he to, will never pay you for that hamburger. No, ever. he won't. He won't pay you for the pharaoh. What I do is, I you know tempeh, you know tempeh. Yeah, it's fermented grains and tofu, and so it. I take the tempeh and I just plop it down on a boiling olive oil, and I just fry it on both sides, and then I cut it like thin slices. And then throw it back into the pan and pour some soy sauce on it. And then I put that on top of the farro. And it is tremendous. It's just tremendous. Do you cook the farro? Do you put a little seasoning in there? Do you put a little like a... I hate, gar- I hate garlic. Oven? I hate garlic and onions. I'll put turmeric and I'll put a little celery and uh, salt, and red pepper, mm-hmm. and wine. I love putting, I, I cook with red wine because I'm... Okay, I can see how that would be good. Yeah. Maybe a, a can of tomatoes. Would that be good to you? Or that, you don't that, like that? That, that might work. I, I My feeling is why not just have tomatoes? If you don't, yeah, if you don't like garlic and onion, then that's uh, Yeah. That's going to rule out a lot of foods. Ricky from London writes, he's a champagne socialist. Uh, Dear Feldman, son of David, Messiah of the Staycation Church of the Feldman. Very impressed. Oh, he's, he came to our meeting last week. Very, okay. very impressive witness the birth of a digital Judeo-Christian cult. Feeling like a cross between a non-fascist Ben Shapiro and pill-popping Giordano Peterson. Unfortunately, I know exactly what he's talking about. (laughs) 
But seriously, Reverend Barry Lynn is a legend, and Dr. Lynn is even better. First time commenter, and know that as long-winded as I am being, this is brief in context of your seven-and-a-half-hour edited podcast. <laughs> Love the Zoom town hall. Wanted to prick the knowledge of the intellectuals on grassroots organization and communication of the gospel of the church of the the staycation church of the Feldman next Saturday morning. Oh, that's right, because we do it at nine Eastern, and he's watching us GMT. So he's watching it in the morning in England. Mm. He says you should get Lane to sing a northeastern folk song. Love Brian's horn and <gasps> Laura. Whoa! Love and respect all souls should be able to drink champagne if they choose. Roriki from London, and then as a joke, he says London, Ontario. No, he's really from London. That's interesting. I love London. I was supposed to be there this month. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Oh, that's so nice. Brian will be so happy for a, a... A mention. Okay. Baby Ho Bernie. That was just fan mail. That was just like. Did you write that? No. (laughs) Okay. And you'll soon learn who Bernie Ho Baby Cat is. She is uh, the star of listener questions. You you do not want to mess with Bernie Ho Baby Cat. I don't want to mess with anyone. No, but Bernie Ho Baby Cat, she runs the comments on YouTube. She's very funny. She doesn't run them, but. She doesn't stop running her mouth off. there, And she's very funny. Uh, okay. And then there's Yasser and his brother, No, Sir, who uh, Liam has antagonized. And then there's Chloe. She writes, I subscribe to your office hours. How many more people need to pitch in so you can upgrade your Zoom subscription to host... Bigger meetings. We we did that. We, we, Already done. Yeah, we can get bigger people. Uh, you're a, you're a large Zoom room socialist. Yeah, I, we can get more people in. So there's a new uh, sheriff in town, and her name is Laura House. And if you have questions that you want Laura to answer, go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Go to the Ask Me Anything drop-down menu and ask us a question and leave a message by going to 202-670-2752. Leave a, leave a voicemail. Do you hear that sound? That's Those are my balls creaking. Do you hear that? Those are my balls. They need to be, every month they have to be rotated and oiled. 202, wow. 202-670-2752. We'll play one final voicemail, and then next week we'll be loaded up with voicemails because I've been neglecting them ever since Liam left me and won't return my calls. Let's listen to one more voicemail. David, Roberto from Montreal here. Just to complete my last message, what you need to do is invite Nora Loretto uh, or her partner Sandy onto your uh excellent podcast that I have to schedule all my podcast listening around just to get your seven hours into my week. But anyway, Sandy and Nora have an excellent politics podcast called Sandy and Nora Talk Politics. 
If you just type Sandy and Nora into your iTunes or whatever podcast thing you got, uh, you'll find them. They do an excellent political podcast from the left to the left of, of Trudeau and, and the Canadian Liberal Party. And their last episode is in episode 95 is entitled Trudeau's Coronavirus Schemes. It's an excellent overview of all the scheming and conniving that the liberals are doing to not fundamentally change anything. Sounds familiar? Just like Joe Biden. Nothing will fundamentally change. And that's Trudeau's plan. You need to know it and you need to stop praising Trudeau. Other than that, David, I love you. You're the best. I listen to your show every week. As I say, I have to schedule all my other lefty podcast consumption around it. And you're the best. Fuck you, Liam. Go fuck yourself. Jesus. Oh, no. I don't scream. I swear to you, I don't scream these calls. And this is and this is why Liam isn't coming back. Because, yeah, he doesn't like Bernie. I love him. I know. I love Liam, and Liam likes playing the heel. And I think the reason, and I said to him, we have to wrap it up. I said to him, Liam, this is Bernie country. I mean, you cannot do this. He says, I don't care. It's funny. It's fun. And and, And I said, okay, but I'm telling you. Uh, you know, mm. this is life and death, you know, and you can't. And he goes, ah, it's fun. I think the Bernie bros broke him, at least from this show. I think enough people and and looking back, we're nasty. But I, you know what? We should be. We should be nasty because they're nasty. Not Liam. I see Liam is anyway. Uh, I have a joke about Asta and Nora. Would you like to hear my joke? Yeah. I just wrote it down, and I'm about to. So you need to know. What a pro you are. Oh, no, it's Sandy and Nora. I tipped the yeah. joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you do crossword puzzles, you might get this. And you need to know the thin man. <laughs> and the play Annie. Mm. Remember uh, Annie? Uh-huh. Based on the cartoon? Uh-huh. What was the cartoon called? You know, Daddy Warbucks and... and Little and Orphan Annie? Little Orphan Annie. So you need to know that there was a series of films called The Thin Man, and you need to know the the, the, the comic strip... Do we or- need to be you to get this? No, even I don't get it. So... Wow. So he recommended a podcast called Sandy and Nora. And uh, I watch the podcast featuring uh, Asta and Nora. Asta was the dog from The Thin Man. And Nora was, hang on, I just, I'm in the middle of telling this joke. Hang on. Just wrapping up this one-liner. So I would listen to Asta and Nora because Asta is the dog from The Thin Man and Nora is the wife from The Thin Man. Sandy Sandy is the dog on Little Orphan Annie. Right, and that was what... Please don't... You're interrupting my one-liner, Laura. Oh, you're still doing it? I'm still in the middle. I'm in the middle of a one-liner. 
Okay. Now I have to start all over. <laughs> Seven more hours. All right, I got to go. Oh, oh, you have to go. You yeah, have to. Are you going to come to the meeting tonight? Yeah, we'll 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 come. We'll clear our schedules. <laughs> <laughs> this is so great. All right, how do people follow you on Twitter? I'm Laura House. I know you're Laura House, but how do people follow you on Twitter? And I'm Laura House on Instagram. And I've been doing my podcast again because of one of your listeners who was like, hey, this is really helpful to me. Just so nice. Um, uh, Will you med with me? So that's on all the platforms. And you can meditate with me if you've never done it before or done it or like it. Just, you know, it's hard to do by yourself sometimes. And um, LauraHouse.com, whatever. This is the only podcast where the guests say, we've got to wrap it up. (laughs) (laughs) Stay on the line, Laura House. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. 